forward to the Greek edition. This book contains the transcript of the ever-memorable professor Proto-Presbyter John S. Romanides' tape-recorded lectures conveying his understanding of Orthodox patristic dogmatic teaching. He delivered these lectures in the amphitheater of the Aristotelian University of Thessaloniki during the first six-month period of the academic year 1983. The text of these lectures has been transcribed here with corrections in certain sentences made when it was deemed necessary. These lectures are primarily are particularly valuable because his spoken word was addressed to students, making these lectures simpler and more understandable than his written texts in terms of language and expressions, without the core and content of these lectures being inferior in value to his other written publications. At many points, Father John employs a mixture of purist and spoken Greek that we have decided not to alter. It has seemed best from every perspective to maintain Father John's frank and spontaneous style. We have followed the spelling used in his other books. It has also been deemed best for the text of these lectures to be accompanied by some commentary in order to make it easier for the reader to understand these lectures. Naturally, the text of these spoken lectures is not a scholarly treatise, but an attempt to introduce the reader to the spirit and truth of Orthodox tradition. It primarily aspires to enable the reader to recognize not only that the Orthodox tradition contains the method by which one can come to acquire the proper conditions required for his soul to be healed and see God as far as it is humanly possible, but also that this method is offered to every human being even in our days. And since God is light, this method, when applied correctly, is a pathway to the light. In this text of Father John's lectures, he simply refers to the purification of the heart from the passions. Here, Father John is not occupied with how this purification takes place. The teaching on purification is documented in the ascetic tradition of the Church. The representative text of this tradition is the latter of St. John of Sinai. Whoever wishes to be nourished by teachings on the purification of the heart can begin his research or study with this text. In the course of Father John's spoken lectures, he outlines how the Orthodox tradition has been taught, presented, and lived in Greece during the period after the revolution of 1821 until our days. He notes the importance and role of Orthodox tradition today, the requirements for its survival, as well as who are its enemies. In other words, while he is presenting the foundations of Orthodox tradition, he simultaneously attempts to offer a critique of its perennial importance and application, and this takes place within the framework of the presentation of Orthodox tradition and its eternal value, which is the aim of the present work. Since Father John speaks the truth, his words are particularly appropriate in our days because in spite of the resurgence of Orthodox patristic tradition in the Church in Greece after the first edition of the Ancestral Sin, patristic teaching and theology still remain lamentably unknown to many in this country. The confusion that dominates theological circles on crucial theological issues, such as what is paradise and what is hell, is proof of the lack of patristic theological criteria. The reader will note that Father John's words are at times caustic, but we are convinced that this quality can function in a way that brings about healing. We warmly thank the gentleman who lent us the cassette recordings of Father John's lectures, as well as all those who helped in this publication such as here are Monk Alexis Trader and Monk Arsenios Vlangoftis, 
We would especially like to express our warm gratitude to the Most Reverend Proto-Presbyter Father George Metellinos, Metellinos, Professor of the Theological School of the University of Athens, for his comments and encouragement concerning the publication of this present work, as well as for his preface. We would also like to thank Father John Romanidi's daughters, Eulambia and Anastasia, for their permission for the publication of these lectures. The attempt to bring this work to completion would not have been possible without the enthusiastic support of Parakathakirki Press that included this book in its series of publications. Gratitude for the excellent published form of this work should also be expressed to printers Palamsiston and their director Chisula Pegu. Signed, Monk Damaskinos, the Hagiorite, the Holy Mountain, January 17, 2004, memory of our venerable father, Anthony the Great, Professor of the Desert. Patristic Theology, the University Lectures of Father John Romanides. Text and comments prepared by the Monk Damaskinos Agioritis, translated by Hieromonk Alexios Trader, as published by Uncut Mountain Press. 2008. Preface to the English edition. The significance and impact of Father John Romanides' writings on Orthodox theology in the 20th century is hard to underestimate. He was a pathfinder who opened the road for academic theology to return to patristic theology and for pietism to be replaced by hesychism. He was a man who loved the truth with his whole heart and with his whole soul and with his whole mind, evidence of which exists in the pages of this book and his entire life. For the study and living out of the mind of the Holy Fathers was for Father John an entrance into the very heart and mystery of salvation and no cold academic exercise. For many pious readers raised on the vestiges of Western Christian expressions, the words of Father John will undoubtedly be new and even unbelievable, and may even come as a shock. The faith of the church herein presented is not conformed to this world, Romans 12.2, is not the product of scholastic study, but is born of God and overcometh the world, for this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith, 1 John 5.4. It is precisely this otherworldly faith which most who call themselves Christians today, including not a few Orthodox, have yet to encounter. It is therefore a great joy and honor for Uncut Mountain Press to be able to make these illuminating and liberating lectures available to the English-speaking Orthodox Christians, and especially to students of theology and future clergy. May they assist all who would be disciples of Christ to know the truth and be made free by it. John 8.32 Signed, Father Peter Alban Hears, Petro Carassa, Thessaloniki, Greece, July 27th, August 9th, 2007. Holy Great Martyr Pentelaman, Commemoration of the Glorification of St. Herman of Alaska. Preface to the Greek Edition The reading public can only rejoice in the publication and distribution of the university lectures of the well-known and respected Pan-Orthodox Dogmatics Professor Father John Romanides. The tape recording of these lectures from the first six months of the academic year, 1983 to 1984, inspired Father John's faithful disciple, the traditional monk Damaskinos Karakalinos, to transcribe them and offer them to the Orthodox faithful for their theological instruction and spiritual edification. 
Every time I speak with Father John's students, I become aware of the strong impression that his words made on them. Students from the theology department were not the only persons to attend his lectures. Many people from other departments, as well as members of the public, would also attend them and be enthralled by his teaching. This distinguished university teacher and clergyman offered another kind of dogmatics, beyond what was known until that time as the scholastic rationalist models of the academy that still burden theology in our universities. His lectures were not mere citations from patristic texts, but an entrance into the patristic spirit and experience through the Father's relationship with our triune God in their hearts. On this basis, he reformulated the patristic teaching. This testimony to Professor Fa Father John Romanides and my own findings from the study of his works have convinced me that we can refer to a pre-Romanides period and a post-Romanides period in our universities since he was the first person to enable academic theologians to understand the interconnection between the history and worship of the Orthodox Church as expressing the experience of the church body and bearing witness to the life in Christ, and not as independent scholarly knowledge unrelated to the believer's struggle for salvation. The present book makes a distinctive contribution to our history of theology in the university that began with the theological school of the Ionian Academy of 1824, and especially with respect to instruction and dogmatics, which comprises the heart of theological instruction and scholarly introduction to the faith of the Church. This is why these lectures were cer certainly proved to be helpful, not only to specialists and students, but also to the wider Church body on account of the ecclesiastical and traditional character of their author, who viewed and lived dogmatic theology as a liturgy in the Church. Father Damaskinos certainly made an important contribution in the, the laying out of the final version of this text, because without altering the exact wording and spirit of, every, of the ever-memorable professor, he took pains to iron out the phasing of the text, the phrasing of the text, and the necessary transposition of a spoken discourse, Father John always spoke and taught without a text, to a written discourse, without in the least violating the animated discourse of the teacher. For this reason, we also heartily congratulate him and thank him for his toils that will be the source of so much spiritual benefit. Signed, Proto-Presbyter George D. Metellinos, Dean of the Theological School of the University of Athens. Part 1. The Rudiments of Orthodox Anthropology and Theology. Chapter 1. What is the Human Noose? The chief concern of the Orthodox Church is the healing of the human soul. The Church has always considered the soul as the part of the human being that needs healing because she has seen from Hebrew tradition, from Christ himself, and from the apostles that in the region of the physical heart there functions something that the fathers called the noose. In other words, the fathers took the traditional term noose, which means both intellect, theania, and speech or reason, logos, and gave it a different meaning. They use nous to refer to this noetic energy that functions in the heart of every spiritually healthy person. We do not know when this change in meaning took place because we know that some fathers use the same word nous to refer to reason as well as to this noetic energy that descends and functions in the region of the heart. So from this perspective, noetic activity is an activity essential to the soul. It functions in the brain as the reason. It simultaneously functions in the heart as the nous. 
In other words, the same organ, the noose, prays ceaselessly in the heart and simultaneously thinks about mathematical problems, for example, or anything else in the brain. We should point out that there is a difference in terminology between St. Paul and the Fathers. What St. Paul calls the noose is the same as what the Fathers called the Ania. When the Apostle Paul says, I will pray with the Spirit, 1 Corinthians 14.5, he means what the Fathers mean to say when they say, I will pray with the noose. And when he says, I will pray with the noose, he means, I will pray with the intellect, or the Ania. When the fathers use the word noose, the Apostle Paul uses the word spirit. When he says, I will pray with the noose, I will pray with the spirit. Or when he says, I will chant with the noose, I will chant with the spirit. And when he says, the spirit of God bears witness to our spirit in Romans 8.16. He uses the word spirit to mean what the fathers refer to as the noose. And by the word noose, he means the intellect or reason. In his phrase, the Spirit of God bears witness to our spirit, St. Paul speaks about two spirits, the Spirit of God and the human spirit. By some strange turn of events, what St. Paul meant by the human spirit later reappeared during the time of St. Macarius the Egyptian with the, the name Nous, and only the words Logos and Dionia continued to refer to man's rational ability. This is how the Nous came to be identified with spirit, that is, with the heart, since according to St. Paul, the heart is the place of man's spirit. Footnote 3. This means that the Spirit of God speaks to our spirit. In other words, God speaks within our heart by the grace of the Holy Spirit. St. Gregory Palamas, in his second discourse from In Behalf of the Sacred Hesychists, notes that the heart rules over the whole human organism. For the noose and all the thoughts, logismi, of the soul are located there. From the context of grace-filled prayer, it is clear that the term heart does not refer to the physical heart, but to the deep heart, while the term noose does not refer to the intellect or theania, but to the energy and activity of the heart, the noetic energy which wells forth from the essence of the noose, i.e. the heart. For this reason, St. Gregory adds that it is necessary for the hesychists to bring their noose back and enclose it within their body, and particularly within that innermost body, within the body that we call the heart. The term spirit is also identical with the terms noose and heart. Philokalia 4. Returning to the text. Thus, for the Apostle Paul, reasonable or logical worship take pla takes place by means of the noose, i.e. the reason or the intellect, while noetic prayer occurs through the spirit and is spiritual prayer or prayer of the heart. Footnote number 4. Metropolitan Herothius Vlachos, who notes, Man has two centers of knowing, the noose, which is the appropriate organ for receiving the revelation of God that is later put into words through the reason, and the reason, which knows the sensible world around us, from the person in the Orthodox tradition. Returning to the text, so when the Apostle Paul says, I prefer to say five words with my noose in order to instruct others rather than a thousand with my tongue, 1 Corinthians 14, 19, he means that he prefers to say five words in other words, to speak a bit for the instruction of others rather than pray noetically. Some monks interpret what St. Paul says here as a reference to the prayer of Jesus, which consists of five words, but at this point the Apostle is speaking here about the words he used in instructing others. For how can catechism take place with noetic prayer, since noetic prayer is a person's inward prayer, and others around him 
do not hear anything. Catechism, however, takes place with teaching and worship that are cognate and reasonable. We teach and speak by using the reason, which is the usual way that people communicate with each other. Footnote 8. With respect to this venerable Nikita Stathatos writes, If when you pray and psalmodize you speak in a tongue to God in private, you edify yourself, as St. Paul says, if it is not in order to edify his flock that the shepherd seeks to be rich, richly endowed with the grace of teaching and the knowledge of the Spirit, he lacks fervor in his quest for God's gifts. By merely praying and psalmodizing inwardly with your tongue, that is, by praying in your soul, you edify yourself, but your noose is unproductive. 1 Corinthians 14.14 14. For you do not prophesy with the language of sacred teaching or edify God's church. If Paul, who of all men was the most closely united with God through prayer, would have rather spoken from his fertile noose five words in the church for the instruction of others than 10,000 words of psalmody in private with the tongue, 1 Corinthians 14, again 19. Surely those who have responsibility for others have strayed from the path of love if they limit the shepherd's ministry solely to psalmodizing and reading St. Nikitas Stathatos on spiritual knowledge in Philokalia 4. Returning to the text, those who have noetic prayer in their hearts do, however, communicate with one another. In other words, they have the ability to sit together and communicate with each other noetically without speaking. That is, they are able to communicate spiritually. Of course, this also occurs even when such people are far apart. They also have the gifts of clairvoyance and foreknowledge. Through clairvoyance, they can sense both other people's sins and thoughts, logis me, while foreknowledge enables them to see and talk about subjects, deeds, and events in the future. Such charismatic people really do exist. If you go to them for confession, they know everything that you have done in your life before you open your mouth to tell them. Chapter 2. Who is mentally ill according to the Church Fathers? Everyone is mentally ill according to the patristic teaching of mental illness. You do not have to be schizophrenic in order to be mentally ill. The definition of mental illness from a patristic point of view is that people are mentally ill when the noetic energy they have inside them is not functioning properly. In other words, being mentally ill means your noose is full of thoughts. Footnote number 9. The term used is logismo, plural logismi, which is the technical term in ascetic literature for a thought combined with an image. According to St. Maximus, a logismo can be simple, dispassionate or composite, passion-charged, a memory combined with a passion from Hirothius Volakos Orthodox Psychotherapy, the Science of the Fathers. Also, according to St. Isaac the Syrian, four causes generate logismi. Firstly, from the natural will of the flesh. Secondly, from imagination of sensory objects in the world which a man hears and sees. Thirdly, from mental predispositions and aberrations of the soul. And fourthly, from the assaults of demons who wage war with us in all the passions. Also, Orthodox Psychotherapy page 218. Although logismi first appeared on the horizon of the mind, they are immediately transmitted to the heart so that we feel as though they arise from the heart. The Lord himself referred to this saying, for out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies. Matthew 15:19. Returning to the text, in other words, being mentally ill means your noose is full of thoughts, not only bad thoughts, but good thoughts as well. Footnote 10. In its 
physiological prayerful state, noetic energy moves cyclically like an axle turning within the heart. In its ailing state, noetic energy does not turn like an axle cyclically, but while being rooted in the heart, it unfolds and cleaves to the brain and creates a short circuit between the brain and the heart. So the concepts of the brain that are all from the environment become concepts of noetic energy always rooted in the heart. So the sufferer becomes a slave of his environment. The undefeatable weapon against the devil is the healing of this short circuit between the heart's noetic energy and the brain's reason. The healing consists of the limitation of all concepts in the brain, whether they be good or bad, which is achieved only when the noetic energy of the heart returns to its physiological cyclical movement by means of unceasing noetic prayer. Those who maintain that it is possible to cast out bad concepts and keep only good ones in the brain are naive. One must know the concepts of the devil with precision to defeat him. This is achieved by means of the cyclical movement of prayer in the heart. End quote from Father John Romanides, as published in the article, Religion is a Neurobiological Illness, Orthodoxy, It's Healing, from the journal Orthodox Hellenism, Way in the Third Millennium, Agianoros, Holy Monastery, Kulumisiu, 1995. Returning to the text, Anyone who has thoughts in his heart, whether they are good thoughts or bad, is mentally ill from the patristic perspective. It makes no difference whether these thoughts are moral, extremely moral, immoral, or anything else. In other words, according to the Church Fathers, anyone whose soul has not been purified from the passions and who has not reached the state of illumination through the grace of the Holy Spirit is mentally ill, but not in the psychiatric sense. For a psychiatrist, being mentally ill is something else. It means suffering from psychosis or being schizophrenic. For orthodoxy, however, if you have not been purified of the passions and have not reached a state of illumination, are you normal or abnormal? That is the question. Who is considered a normal Orthodox Christian in the patristic tradition? If you want to see this clearly, read the service of Holy Baptism. Read the service of Holy Chrism that is held at the Patriarch of Constantinople on Holy Thursday. Read the service for the consecration of church sanctuaries. There you will see what it means to be a temple of the Holy Spirit. There you will see who is illumined. In all of the church services, as well as the ascetic tradition of the church, mainly three spiritual states are mentioned. The state in which the soul and body have been purified from the passions, the state in which the human noose has been illumined by the grace of the Holy Spirit, and the state in which the human soul and body experience theosis. Footnote 11. Although many Orthodox theologians who write in English translate the patristic term theosis as deification, that translation is problematic because the, wi the wider public associates deification with the imperial cult of Rome. Toward the end of the Republic, the Senate would formally deify certain emperors, although this practice began in Rome with the deification of Romulus as the god Quirinius. It was common to ancient and oriental monarchies as a form of ancestor worship, reverence, or even flattery. The classical Greek term for this kind of deification was Apotheosis, the term theosis, was seldom used prior to the patristic period. It, impl it implies polytheism and the notion that some individuals can cross the line separating the created and the uncreated. This deification was condemned and mocked by early Christian apologists such as St. Justin Martyr or, or Tertullian. 
In his English writings, Father John consistently avoids the term deification, sparingly uses the term theosis, as it is, although he frequently uses it in Greek, and prefers the term glorification. The value of a term such as glorification is that it reflects both the biblical continuity and the nature of the experience. According to the will of God, the prophets could see God's glory, the apostles could see Christ's glory at the transfiguration, and the saints still can see the glory of the resurrected and ascended Lord. To avoid the pagan notions associated with the term deification and in keeping with Father John's own practice, we will leave the term theosis untranslated. For verbal and adjectival forms, we will use the words to glorify and glorifying where possible. End of translator's note. Returning to the text, for the most part, however, they speak about purification and illumination, since the church services are expressions of reasonable worship. So, who is the normal Orthodox Christian? Can someone who has been baptized but not purified be considered normal? What about someone who has not yet been illumined? Or is it someone who has been purified and illumined? Naturally, someone in the last category is a normal Orthodox Christian. So, what makes normal Orthodox Christians different from the rest of the Orthodox? Is it dogma? Of course not. Take the Orthodox in general. They, are, they all share the same dogma, the same tradition, the same worship. A church sanctuary, for example, might hold 300 Orthodox Christians. Of that number, however, only five are in a state of illumination, while the rest of them are not. The rest of them have not even the slightest idea what purification is. So this raises the question, how many among them are normal Orthodox Christians? Unfortunately, out of 300, only five are. All the same, purification and illumination are specific conditions of healing that, that experienced and illumined spiritual fathers can recognize. So we have here clearly medical criteria. Or maybe you are not convinced that these criteria are strictly medical. Consider the fact that the noose is a physiological human organ that everyone has. It is not only Greeks and Orthodox that have a noose. So do Muslims, Buddhists, and everyone else. So all human beings have the same need for purification and illumination. And there is only one therapeutic treatment. Or do you think there are many therapeutic treatments for this illness? And is it really an illness or not. Chapter 3 On the Deviation of Western Chrysostom from the Orthodox Ethos Present-day Orthodox are hard-pressed to respond to these issues because they have become so far removed from this tradition today that they no longer think of the Orthodox Christian way of life in the context of sickness and healing. They do not consider Orthodoxy to be a curative course of treatment, even though all the prayers are perfectly clear on this point. After all, who is Christ for Orthodox Christians? Is he not repeatedly, repeatedly invoked in the prayers and hymns of the Church as the physician of our souls and bodies? Now if you search through the Roman Catholic or Protestant tradition, you will not find the word doctor used for Christ anywhere. Only in the Orthodox tradition is Christ called the doctor. But why has this tradition died out among the Roman Catholics and Protestants? Why are they so surprised when we speak to them about a curative course of treatment. The reason is that the need for purification and illumination, the need for an inner change, is no longer a part of these people's theology. 
For them, the one who changes is not man, but God. For them, man does not change. For them, the only thing man does is that he becomes a good boy. And when a bad boy becomes a good boy, then God loves him. Otherwise, God turns away from him. If man continues to be a bad boy or becomes a bad boy, then God does not love him. In other words, if man becomes a good boy, then God changes and becomes good. And while before God did not love him, now he does. When man becomes a bad boy, God gets mad. When man becomes a good boy, it makes God happy. This, unfortunately, is the way things are in Europe. But the bad thing is that this takes place not only in Europe, but also in Greece. This spirit holds sway over many in the church here. Orthodoxy has sunk to the point of being a religion of a moody God. When man is good, God loves him, but when he's bad, God does not love him. Footnote 13 Professor George Mansaridis, in his comments related to Archimandriti Zachariah Zacharou's book entitled Reference to the Theology of Elder Sophrony of Essex, mentions the following. The unwavering criteria of the truth and the Catholicity of the Church consists of love for one's enemies. In the teaching of St. Suluan and the elder Sophroni, people are not classified as enemies and friends or good people and bad people, but as those who have known and those who do not know God. Wherever enemies are acknowledged, it means that part of the body of humanity is cast aside and universality is restricted. Keeping the commandment of love for one's enemies means that man embraces all human beings and becomes Catholic universal. And on an ecclesiastical level, love for one's enemies comprises the criterion that assures Catholicity. The true church is that which maintains a live love for one's enemies. It is highly significant and especially appropriate for this point to be stressed in our age. Returning to the text. In other words, God punishes and rewards. So, orthodoxy in Greece today has essentially been reduced to moralism. Isn't that, which, isn't that what they used to teach children in catechism class and in Greece's independent orthodox Christian societies, those organizations that look to the West for models and have corrupted the orthodox spirit? After all I have said, if you are interested in learning why orthodoxy has reached such a sorry state, you should read Adamantios Correas. After the revolution of 1821, his reforms instituted this policy in Greece. He is the one who in initiated the persecution of hesychism, traditional monasticism, orthodoxy, and the only true cure for the human soul of man. But let's begin our inquiry elsewhere. Let's suppose that there is a research scientist who is not affiliated with any religion. He can, he can be an atheist if you like, but one who does research on religious traditions. When he reaches the orthodox tradition, he starts to dig around, discovers these things, and describes them. Then he says, hey, look at this. Here is a tradition that speaks about the soul, about the soul's noetic energy, and about a specific curative course of treatment. Later in his research, the scientist comes to the realization that if this curative treatment were implemented in human society, it would have a very beneficial effect on the health of the individual and society as a whole. Afterwards, 
as he continues searching, he begins to establish when this tradition appeared, what its sources are, how many centuries it has been successfully put into practice, and where this took place. As he persists, he discovers why this tradition no longer exists today among the majority of the Orthodox, and why Orthodoxy has undergone this change and become so distorted. And, as our researcher continues, he finds out that all this happened because hesychism, or traditional monasticism, the bearer of this tradition, was persecuted. But why was hesychism persecuted? It was persecuted because the countries in which it had flourished started to become westernized politically, as was the case in Russia after the reforms of Peter the Great and in Greece after the revolution of 1821. The, bo the modern historian Toynbee says that ortho today Orthodox culture is gradually being absorbed by Western culture. He has written an entire book on this phenomenon. Of the 26 cultures that existed in the past, he finds only five still exist in existence today. Footnote number 14, Father John is likely referring to Arnold Joseph Toynbee, Civilization on Trial, published in 1948. Toynbee was an English historian best known for his 12-volume A Study of History, a monumental synthetic work on civilization. Unlike Spengler in his Decline of the West, Toynbee did not regard the death of a civilization as inevitable, for it may or may not continue to respond to successive challenges. Unlike Karl Marx, he saw history as shaped by spiritual, not economic forces. Many critics complained that the conclusions he reached were those of a Christian moralist rather than a historian. His work, however, has been praised as a stimulating answer to the specializing tendency of modern historical research. Translator's note. Returning to the text, these are the Hindu culture, the culture of the Far East, China and Japan, European culture, Orthodox culture, and the primitive culture that still exists today in some regions of Australia and of Africa. And Toynbee's theory is that today all the cultures of the world are becoming westernized. In the past, an effort was made for this westernization to take place through the work of Western missionaries. In the past, Europeans used to send out armies of missionaries, and they still do today, whose purpose was not only to convert other nations to Christianity, but also to westernize them. And this is why all of these historical, the, all of these heretical groups are present in Greece and, and still active. Toynbee notes, however, that this missionary activity failed in the idol-worshipping societies of Africa as elsewhere because missionaries created divisions among the people. In a single indigenous family, for example, one son would become Lutheran, his brother would become Anglican, a third brother Baptist, the cousin Methodist, another cousin Pentecostal, and another cousin Evangelical, and so on, so that they not only shattered the nation into small fragments through religion, but they even shattered families. It has been established, therefore, that this kind of missionary work was a great failure in westernizing peoples in the Third World. Therefore, in 1948, Toynbee suggested a new solution, that westernization to, should take place by means of technology and the economy. Chapter 4. What is Orthodoxy? Nevertheless, in response to the process of westernization, Orthodox people and Orthodox culture do fight back. But what is Orthodox culture? Is it a culture in the sense of Western culture? No, orthodoxy is not a culture, even if Toynbee refers to it as orthodox culture. Why? Because orthodoxy is a science. 
and according to today's criteria, it is a medical science. It is not a culture. Orthodoxy is neither a culture nor a political system because it is concerned with our personal salvation, with the salvation of our souls. Orthodoxy is based on two facts. The Word became flesh, John 1.14, and in hell there is no repentance. From St. John of Damascus, an exact exposition of the Orthodox faith. Of course, Orthodoxy contains within itself all that is necessary for the creation of culture, but Orthodoxy is not a culture. Orthodoxy is not even a religion. Orthodoxy is not a religion like all the other religions. Orthodoxy is distinguished from the rest by a unique phenomenon that is not present in any other religion. This phenomenon concerns the origin, nature, and destiny of human beings, as well as how human beings can be cured. It makes orthodoxy different from the rest of the religions. Orthodoxy is a therapeutic course of treatment that heals the human personality. A genuine doctor concerns himself with the treatment of anyone who is sick, without exception and without discrimination. He does not single out only certain people from the rest for treatment. He is not interested in people's social standing, their educational level, their economic situation, their religion, or their ethical conduct. A genuine doctor only notices whether or not people who come to him are sick, and if they are sick, he takes an interest, tries to treat them, and to heal their infirmities. He is obligated to treat them. In the Orthodox tradition we have something similar to this, but even more so. And it is precisely this something more that constitutes our way of fighting back against Westernization. God loves not only saints, but all people, without exception, including sinners, people in hell, and even the devil. And he desires to save and heal every one of them. He wants to heal them all, but he cannot, because they do not all want to be healed. We know this, that God is love, and that he desires to heal everyone and loves everyone, because it has been verified and continues to be verified by the experience of those who have attained to theosis, in which God is seen, and they have seen God. Nevertheless, God cannot heal everyone because he does not violate the human will. God holds man in high regard and loves him. He cannot, however, heal someone by force. He heals only those who want to be healed and who request that he heal them. Normally, someone who is physically ill or even mentally ill goes to the doctor on his own accord and not by force in order to get well, that is, if he is still thinking rationally. The same thing happens in the orthodox therapeutic course of treatment. We must go to the church freely on our own accord without being forced or pressured. We must go to competent people who have reached illumination, are experienced, and possess the curative method of the Orthodox tradition, and then we must be obedient to them in order to find healing. Chapter 5 The Social Aims of Orthodoxy Now, what is the social aspect of our present subject? Take any human being, any person whatsoever who lives in society and must function as a healthy social entity. Earlier we referred to the healing of the humans, the human soul's noetic energy. The completion of this course of treatment automatically results in the creation of a social human being, a person whose soul is healthy and who is prepared for all aspects of social activity. And such healed people automatically and implicitly are ordained doctors for others whose souls are sick. Here the medical science called orthodoxy, differs from other sciences. Once patients have been healed, they automatically become people who can heal others. For this reason, it is inconceivable for people who have been healed not to have spiritual children, 
that is to say, other people who depend on them spiritually, other people whom they advise and guide towards healing. In the early church, there was no specific or official healer because every Christian was a healer. Healing was the mission of the early church. The missionary effort of the early church was not like that of today's Orthodox Church, which sometimes consists of advertising our beautiful beliefs and traditional form of worship as though they were nothing but products for sale. For example, we talk like this. Take a look, folks. We have the most beautiful doctrines, the most beautiful worship, the most beautiful chanting, and the most beautiful vestments. See what a beautiful robe and the bishop is wearing today? And that sort of thing. We try to dazzle them with our staffs, our robes, and our head coverings so that we can carry out our missionary work. Of course, there is some sense and some success in doing missionary work this way, but it is not genuine missionary work like that of the early church. Today's missionary work consists mainly of this. We enlighten superstitious people and make them Orthodox Christians without trying to heal them. By doing this, however, we are just replacing or exchanging their former beliefs with a new set of beliefs. We are replacing one superstition with another. And I say this because when orthodoxy is presented in this way and is offered in this way, how is it different from superstition? After all, when orthodoxia is presented and offered as a Christianity that does not heal, despite the fact that healing is its primary task, how is it different from superstition? There are Christians in the West who also have Christian dogmas and accept certain counsels. On the basis of outward appearance, there does not seem to be such a great difference between the dogmas of the heretics and those of the orthodox. The difference is not as huge as it is between Christians and idolaters. On the surface, orthodox doctrine is not so strikingly different from that of heterodox Christians, especially given the fact that orthodox doctrine as taught today in Greece is unrelated to the therapeutic treatment found in orthodox tradition. So from the perspective of doctrine, how is orthodox tradition different from the tradition of the heterodox? And why should someone who is not orthodox believe in orthodoxy and not in some other Christian dogma? After all, in the way that they are presented, neither one of them is offered as a treatment or pathway towards healing, but a superstition. These days we talk about changing our way of thinking, about changing our beliefs, about changing our outlook on life, and this is the way we view repentance. In other words, for orthodoxy today, repentance is identified merely with the acceptance of Christ, that is to say, we accept Christ. And because we accept him, we go to church, we light a candle or two, and we become good little boys and girls. If we are young, we go to Sunday school. If we are adults, we go to a religious meeting now and then. And supposedly we are living in repentance. Supposedly we are repentant. Or else, if we have done something bad in our life, we show some regret and ask forgiveness and call what we are doing repentance. However, this is not repentance. It is simply regret. Regret is the beginning of repentance, but the human soul is not purified by mere regret. In order for one's soul to be purified of the passions, the fear of God and repentance must first be present and continue throughout the stage of purification until it is completed with divine illumination, the illumination of our noose by the grace of the Holy Spirit. Since the Orthodox do not put this therapeutic treatment into practice, what makes them different from those who are not Orthodox? Is it doctrine? And what good are Orthodox doctrines if they are not used for the healing of the soul? When used in such a way, doctrine offers no benefit whatsoever. Chapter 6. What is the state of reconciliation with God? From an orthodox perspective, what is the state of being reconciled in which God makes someone his friend? Look at the services of the church. 
Baptism is identified with purification. Baptism is preceded by exorcisms that deliver man from the influence and power that evil spirits have over him. The triple submersion into and emergence out of the water that takes place during baptism grants man remission of sins and destroys the devil's influence and activity within him. This is followed by chrismation that points towards a state in which he becomes illumined by the grace of God that is through the action of the Holy Spirit. Among early Christians, after the newly illumined, footnote 17, the newly illumined refers to those who were formerly unillumined but afterwards were partially illumined by grace in a process that began with their pre-baptism instruction, continued during their baptism, and was, so to speak, completed during the service of chrismation. To return to the text, after the newly illumined had been baptized on Holy Saturday, thus receiving the grace of holy baptism, and after this initial illumination had been supplemented through the mystery of holy chrismation that followed, then they proceeded towards full illumination, which chronologically was expected to take place on the day of Pentecost, fifty days after their baptism. But what does it mean for a person to receive full illumination? It is a visitation by the Holy Spirit, who enters the noose or heart of man. The full illumination of the apostles took place through the descent of the Holy Spirit on Pentecost, and the Church wants the same thing to be repeated for every member of the Church at some moment in his spiritual journey. Thus, in the early church, the whole process of catechism for the newly illumined Christians was completed with their personal Pentecost, with the visitation of the Holy Spirit, who came and dwelt in their hearts and prayed on their behalf. Naturally, this full illumination did not happen to everyone in such a short period of time because not everyone was in the same state of preparedness. Of course, in the case of the apostles, they not only acquired full illumination on the day of Pentecost, but also reached theosis. Since Pentecost is the model for human spiritual perfection, the aim of every Christian is to reach theosis, which means to see God, his Creator, Christ, and glory. This is what happens to all the saints of the Church. For this reason we proceed immediately from the Feast of Pentecost to the Feast of All Saints, in which we celebrate as a whole the memory of all the Church's glorified saints, whom we are called upon to imitate. This is the keystone in the framework of the Church's instruction in the faith. Chapter 7 on the Meaning of Doctrine The Fathers stressed that salvation does not result automatically from Orthodox doctrine alone. Doctrine is not what saves people. It simply opens the pathway for man to reach purification and illumination. Without Orthodox dogma, however, no one can reach purification and illumination. Without an awareness and sensitivity to right doctrine, without Orthodox practice in one's daily life, and without participation in the liturgical life of the Orthodox Church, no one can reach purification and illumination. But doctrine and liturgical life are not the means by which someone purifies his soul and reaches illumination. They are, however, the basic prerequisites and the necessary foundation that enables someone to be guided towards purification and illumination. In other words, doctrine alone does not automatically lead one to these states. Chapter 8 on the Fall of Adam The Fathers teach that with the fall, the human noose became darkened. Adam's noose became darkened. The fathers are not concerned with Adam per se, but with Adam's noose and with the sickness that followed from the darkening of his noose. The fathers speak about a noose void of understanding. Throughout patristic literature, the whole issue of the fall centers on this darkening of the human noose. But how do we know that man fell? 
just from the historical description of the fall in Holy Scripture? And what does the fall really mean? What does paradise mean? What was paradise? There are two patristic traditions on this subject, which are summarized by St. John of Damascus, who gives us both patristic opinions without taking a position himself on this issue. One tradition says that Adam's noose in paradise was illumined. The other tradition says that the condition of his noose was such that he could behold God continuously and, this, and that this is what paradise meant for Adam, to see the glory of God. Both the Alexandrian tradition and the Cappadocian tradition of St. Basil the Great maintained that before the fall, Adam beheld God with his noose, while the Antiochian tradition of St. John Chrysostom maintains that his noose was simply illumined. Footnote 18, the first formed were most simple and dispassionate like angels bearing flesh. Through the commandment of obedience, the first fashioned were to hasten to the perfection of incorruption, blessed Theosis. Quote from Athanasios of Paros, from his Synopsis, Collection of Divine Dogmas of the Faith. Returning to the text, St. John of Damascus takes no position as to whether Adam's noose was merely illumined before the fall, or whether it was in a state where it could continuously behold God, that is, in a state of continuous theosis. Why does this father of the church not take a position? Because what interests him is to provide two explanations for the original state of the noose and how it became darkened. But how do we know that Adam's noose became darkened? Very simply, because we know that we ourselves now have a darkened noose. And this darkened noose needs healing. The cure has two phases, illumination and theosis. Theosis is the complete cure. But what does it mean to say that the noose has become darkened? It means that the noetic activity in the human heart is not functioning properly. Noetic energy begins to function properly only when man passes through purification and reaches illumination. After the fall, the noose is in a darkened state. Why? Because it is full of thoughts and has been darkened by these thoughts. And when does the noose become darkened by thoughts? The noose is darkened when the thoughts of our reasoning mind, theania, descend into the heart and become thoughts of the noose, that is, when the location of our thoughts becomes confused between the rational mind and the noose. Thoughts are present in our noose that should not be there because they belong to our reasoning faculty, the theania. The noose must be utterly empty of thoughts in order for it to remain pure and thus receptive so that the Holy Spirit can come and dwell and remain in it. Chapter 9, What is the Core of the Orthodox Tradition? The subject at hand is what is the core of the Orthodox Tradition. The Orthodox Tradition offers us a method for curing the human noose and soul. This cure, as we have said, has two stages, illumination and theosis. Theosis, the state in which someone is able to see God, is our guarantee that it is possible to be cured, completely cured. This therapeutic method, this treatment course of treatment, that the Orthodox tradition, this therapeutic course of treatment that the Orthodox tradition has to offer, has been handed down from generation to generation by people who, having reached the state of illumination or theosis, became therapists for others. We are not talking here simply about knowledge that has been transmitted through books, but about experience, both the experience of illumination and the experience of theosis, which has been handed down successfully successively from one person to another. 
In the Old Testament, however, only the patriarchs and prophets of the Israelites are observed to have reached the states of illumination and theosis. At footnote 21, the prophet or patriarch first hears the voice of God, the Spirit praying in his heart, illumination, and later has a vision, sees the glory of God, theosis, translators note. To return to the text, this is a historical phenomenon. Before the prophets, we have the patriarchs. Before Moses, we have Abraham. We find in the Old Testament, however, that an awareness of the states of illumination and theosis existed even before Abraham. Abraham himself had seen God. He had reached theosis, that is. This is quite obvious. We also have evidence from Jewish tradition that illumination and theosis existed in the period before Abraham among Abraham's forefathers, such as Noah. After all, this tradition of illumination and theosis is something that was handed down. It did not just turn up like that out of nothing. It did not just suddenly appear in the 11th or 12th century before Christ. We have the Old Testament, but we also have the New Testament. It is easier to see these things in the New Testament because the time period it covers is more limited, whereas the Old Testament contains 1,500 years of history. Now there is a central and unifying tradition around which this 1,500 year period revolves. And this tradition, which is the tradition of illumination and theosis that was handed down from prophet to prophet, is the core of the Orthodox tradition. In other words, the core of the Orthodox tradition is this transmission of the experience of illumination and theosis from one generation to the next. It extends chronologically from Abraham in the Old Testament until John the Forerunner. It is the prophetic tradition, the tradition of the patriarchs and the prophets. But even before the period we are talking about, there is the first period, which extends from Adam through Noah to Abraham. Today, the veracity of historical events mentioned in the Old Testament has been confirmed archaeologically at least as far back as the age of Moses. And today, no one doubts the great historical value of the Old Testament as a text. But even before Moses, as far back as the age of Abraham, they have uncovered archaeological findings that verify what is mentioned in the Old Testament concerning the person of Abraham. So we can see that the core of the Orthodox tradition is not the book of Holy Scripture, but the transmission of this experience of illumination and theosis, which has been handed down successfully, successively from Adam to our own time. Chapter 10 Is Orthodoxy a Religion? Many are of the opinion that orthodoxy is just one religion among many, and that its chief concern is to prepare the members of the church for life after death, securing a place in paradise for every orthodox Christian. Orthodox doctrine is presumed to offer some additional guarantee because it is orthodox, and not believing in orthodox dogma is seen as yet another reason for someone to go to hell, besides his personal sins that would otherwise send him there. Those orthodox Christians who believe that this describes orthodoxy have associated orthodoxy exclusively with the afterlife. But in this life, such people do not accomplish very much. They just wait to die, believing that they will go to paradise for the simple reason that while they were alive, they were orthodox Christians. Another section of the orthodox is involved with and active in the church, interested not in the next life, but chiefly in this life, here and now. What interests them is how orthodoxy can help them to have a good life in the present. These orthodox Christians pray to God have priests say prayers for them, have their homes blessed with holy water, have services of supplication sung, are anointed with oil, and so forth, all so that God will help them to enjoy life in the present, 
so that they do not get sick, so that their children find their place in society, so that their daughters are insured a good dowry and a good groom, so that their boys find good girls to marry with good dowries, so that their work goes well, so that their businesses go well, even so that the stock market goes well, or the industry they work in, and so on. So we see that these Christians are not so very different from other people who follow other religions, for these people do the very same things. Footnote 22, as we noted in the prologue, Father John's words are at times caustic. From what we have said, we can clearly see that orthodoxy has two points in common with all other religions. First, it prepares believers for life after death, so that they will go to paradise, whatever they imagine that to be. Second, orthodoxy protects them in this life, so that they will not have to experience sorrow, difficulties, disaster, sickness, war, and the like. In other words, so that God will take care of all their needs and desires. Thus, for this second type of orthodox Christian, religion plays a major role in the present life, and on a daily basis at that. But among all these Christians we have just discussed, who cares deep down whether God exists or not? Who really yearns for him and seeks him out? The question of God's existence does not even come up, since it is clearly better for God to exist, so that we can appeal to him and ask him to satisfy our needs in order for our work to go well and for us to have some happiness in this life. As we can see, human beings have an extremely strong predisposition to want God to exist and to believe that God exists because we have a need for God to exist in order to ensure everything we have mentioned. Since we need God to exist, therefore God exists. If people were not in a need of a God and could take measures to ensure sufficiency for the necessities of life by some other means, then who knows how many would still believe in God. This is what happens in Greece as a rule. So we see that many people who were previously indifferent to religion became religious towards the end of their lives, perhaps after some event that has frightened them. This happens because they feel that they cannot live any longer without appealing to some god for help. That is, it is the result of superstitious beliefs. For these reasons, human nature man, encourages man to be religious. This holds true not only for Orthodox Christians, but also for adherence to all religions. Human nature is the same everywhere. Since, as a result of the fall, the human soul is now darkened, people are by nature inclined towards superstition. Now, the next question is this. Where does superstition stop and real life begin? The Father's views and teachings on these matters are clear. Consider first someone who follows, or rather thinks that he follows, the teachings of Christ, simply by going to church every Sunday, communing at regular intervals, and having the priest bless him with water, anoint him with oil, and so on, without examining these things very closely. Footnote 23. Of course, genuine Orthodox Christians do these same things, and it is not wrong for them to desire to do them. The problem is when someone stagnates at this level. Returning to the text. Does this person who remains at the letter of the law, but does not enter into the spirit of the law, stand to gain anything on account from orthodoxy? Now consider someone who prays exclusively for the future life, for himself and for others, but is completely indifferent towards this life. Again, what particular benefit does such a person stand to gain from orthodoxy? The former tendency can be seen in parish priests and those who flock around them with the attitude described above. The latter tendency can be seen in some elders and monasteries, usually retired Archimandrites waiting to die, and the few monks who follow them. Footnote 24, as a rule, this is seen when the spiritual father and his monks are not interested in hesychism. Since 
Returning to the text, since purification and illumination are not their main focus or concern, both these tendencies, from the viewpoint of the fathers, have set the wrong goals for themselves. But insofar as purification and illumination become their focus, and the orthodox asceticism of the fathers is practiced with a view towards attaining noetic prayer, then, and only then, can everything else be placed on a firm foundation. These two tendencies are exaggerations that reflect two extremes and share no common core. But there is a common core, a structure that runs throughout orthodoxy and holds it together. When we take into account this one core, this unique structure, then every subject that concerns orthodoxy finds its proper place on a firm foundation. And this core is purification, illumination, and theosis. What will happen to man after death was not an overriding concern for the fathers. Their primary concern was what will man become in this life. After death, his noose cannot be treated. The treatment must begin in this life, because in Hades there is no repentance. This is why orthodox theology is not outside of this world, futuristic or eschatological, but is clearly grounded in this world, because orthodoxy's focus is man in this world and in this life, not after death. Now, why do we need purification and illumination? Is it so that we can go to heaven and escape hell? Is that why they are necessary? What are purification and illumination, and why do Orthodox Christians want to attain them? In order to find the reason for this and to answer these questions, you need to have what Orthodox theology considers the basic key to these issues. The basic key is the fact that, according to Orthodox theology, Everyone throughout the world will finish the earthly course in the same way, regardless of whether they are Orthodox, Buddhist, Hindu, Agnostic, Atheist, or anything else. Everyone on earth is destined to see the glory of God. At the second coming of Christ, with which all human history ends, everyone will see the glory of God. And since all people will see God's glory, they will all meet the same end. Truly, all will see the glory of God, but not in the same way. For some the glory of God will be an exceedingly sweet light that never sets. For others the same glory of God will be like a devouring fire that will consume them. We expect this vision of God's glory to occur as a real event. This vision of God, of his glory and his light, is something that will take place whether we want it to happen or not. But the experience of that light will be different for both groups. Therefore. It is not the church's task to help us see this glory, since that, that, since that is going to happen anyway. The work of the church and of her priests focuses, uh, focuses on how we will experience the vision of God and not whether we will experience the vision of God. The church's task is to proclaim to mankind that the true God exists, that he reveals himself as light or as a devouring fire, and that all of humanity will see God. Footnote 26, of course, all people have a partial experience of this vision of God immediately after the departure of the soul from the body at their biological death. Returning to the text, that all of humanity will see God at the second coming of Christ. Having proclaimed these truths, the church then tries to prepare her members so that on that day they will see God as light and not as fire. Footnote 27, in the fire of revelation on the final day, the deeds of each will be tested by fire, as Paul says. If what one has built up for himself is a work of incorruptibility, it will remain incorruptible in the midst of the fire, and not only will it not be burned up, but it will be made radiant, totally purified of, perhaps, of, of the perhaps small amount of filth. 
St. Nikitas Stethatos on Spiritual Knowledge, Philokalia 3. Returning to the text, when the Church prepares her members and everyone who desires to see God as light, she is essentially offering them a curative course of treatment that must begin and end in this life. The treatment must take place during this life and be brought to completion because there is no repentance after death. This curative course of treatment is the very fiber of Orthodox tradition and the primary concern of the Orthodox Church. It consists of three stages of spiritual ascent, purification from the passions, illumination by the grace of the Holy Spirit, and theosis again by the grace of the Holy Spirit. We should also take note, if a, if a believer does not reach a state of at least partial illumination in this life, he will not be able to see God as light either in this life or in the next. Footnote 28, we have fallen so far from the vision of him corresponding to the dimness of our sight since we have voluntarily deprived ourselves of his light in this present life. St. Simeon, the New Theologian, Extant Works, Discourse 75. Returning to the text, it is obvious that the Church Fathers were interested in the people as they are today at this moment. Every human being needs to be healed. Every human being is also responsible before God to begin this process today in this life, because now is when it is possible, not after death. Everyone must decide for himself whether or not he will pursue this path of healing. Christ said, I am the way, John 14:6. But where does this way lead? Christ is not referring to the next life. Christ is primarily the way in this life. Christ is the way to his Father and our Father. First, Christ reveals himself to man in this life and shows him the path to the Father. This path is Christ himself. If a man does not see Christ in this life, at least by sensing him in his heart, he also will not see the Father or the light of God in the life to come. Footnote number 30, at Christ's second coming, all mankind will be raised and will be judged according to their works. The sinners who did not acquire spiritual eyes will not cease to exist. They will continue to exist ontologically as persons, but they will not participate in God. The righteous will both participate in God and commune with him. As St. Maximus the Confessor teaches, the sinners will live with an eternal lack of well-being, while the righteous will live in a state of eternal well-being. Metropolitan Herotheus Vlachos, the person in the Orthodox tradition, page 162. Returning to the text, thus ends chapter 10. Chapter 11. Who are the theologians of the church? Now who are the church's theologians? The theologians of the church are only those people who have, attain, who have arrived at a state of theoria which consists in illumination and theosis. Illumination is an unceasing state, active day and night, even during sleep. Footnote 31, I sleep and my heart keeps vigil, Song of Songs 5.2. Theosis is the state in which someone beholds the glory of God and it lasts as long as God sees fit. Someone who is in a state of illumination may never reach theosis. God grants theosis and decides whether the illumined need to be led to theosis. If God does not lead someone to theosis, it could mean that this person's soul would be better off without this experience, because an experience of theosis could harm him, for example, by leading him into pride. In other words, God leads someone to theosis if that person will not be put in Dad, any, any, dan any danger spiritually. Dad, and if that person needs this experience. 
whether for support or strength or as preparation for some mission. Can I come inside? I heard you. Can I finish the chapter? God leads someone to theosis if that person will not be put in any danger spiritually and if that person needs this experience, whether for support or strength or as a preparation for some mission. Thus, the experience of theosis is not automatic. Someone who is in a state of illumination cannot acquire it simply because he wants to do so. On the contrary, a person in a state of illumination avoids asking God for the experience of theosis. But when someone needs it, God condescends and grants it revealing his glory and uncreated light. An ascetic, for example, lives in the desert, depriving himself of many things and isolated from other people, all for the love of God. Since he has already been purified, the Holy Spirit then comes to comfort him and grants him experiences of theosis. A true ascetic is never alone. At the very least, he has the Holy Spirit in his heart, who prays ceaselessly within him and who keeps him company in his apparent solitude. This is what is meant by the state of illumination. When the Holy Spirit himself deems it necessary, he occasionally also grants the experience of theosis when an ascetic has need of it, provided that it will help him, for example, to strengthen him after a demonic attack. These events are clearly seen in the lives of the saints. In these two stages of theoria, illumination and theosis, knowledge of God is clearly experiential. This knowledge is not metaphysical or the result of philosophical speculation. Chapter 12 on Noetic Prayer Noetic prayer is a very interesting subject. It is clearly an empirical state. There is no doubt that noetic prayer is a matter of experience. Even a psychiatrist cannot deny the fact noetic prayer is clearly an experience. We would disagree with the psychiatrists, however, about what sets noetic prayer in motion. If the subject of noetic prayer were considered to be a phenomenon worthy of observation and study by scientists from the hard sciences, then these psychologists, psychiatrists, pathologists, and biologists, and the rest would be duty-bound to apply the scientific method and formulate an hypothesis. Naturally, the Church has her own records that document how someone with inner noetic prayer experiences this phenomenon. It is a spiritual state, with a tradition spanning hundreds of years, in which the person praying hears the prayer being said within his heart. The saints, in turn, have interpreted this tradition of noetic prayer in a specific way, and on the basis of their interpretation, the Church knows that noetic prayer is a spiritual experience that results from the effect of the Holy Spirit's grace on the human heart. There are so many writings by the Fathers on this subject that no one can deny the existence of this long-lived tradition, even without exploring everything that Holy Scripture has to say about it. And today there are people living in our midst who have come to know for themselves this tradition by experience because they can feel noetic prayer active within them. Once these scientists admit that this is something real, they will have to make their own hypotheses in order to explain this phenomenon called noetic prayer. Naturally, some of them, and especially here in Greece, will say that this is something made up by the priests. They will claim that the priests are just talking about some figment of their imagination. If only we were blessed to have priests in Greece with such pursuits. Another group of scientists today could easily claim that noetic prayer is a form of hypnotism. I have had these kinds of discussions with doctors and medical school professors at that, who claimed that noetic prayer was a form of hypnotism. 
But even if that is all there is to noetic prayer, as far as they are concerned, a psychiatrist is still obliged to investigate this question systematically. Now with respect to hypnotism, yes it is true, hypnotism is an experience, but a psychiatrist still needs to establish whether or not noetic prayer is a form of hypnotism. Hypnotism can cause hallucinations, incoherent states resulting from a disorganization, and the proper arrangement of impressions made by human experience and stored in the memory. All the fragments of information that make up hallucinations are taken from sense impressions. A person does not enter a state of hallucination because he has lost contact with external stimuli, but because his memory has stopped following its normal pathways and the mechanism that should organize and integrate impressions and information previously stored in the brain now produces disassociation. This causes people to be imbalanced or to have dreams while they are awake. The fragments of information or perceptions that make up a hallucination, however, do exist. Even though the object seen at the time by someone hallucinating is not really in front of him, it does have some reality. Uh, footnote to 32. This also takes place with hallucinations such as LSD. Of course, when someone is under hypnosis, he can also have hallucinations resulting from a demonic influence, in which case he comes into contact with evil spirits. Returning to the text, returning to the topic of hypnotism per se, the hypnotized person falls into a trance or enters a state resembling sleep. In this hypnotic state, he can remember events from his past and answer questions posed by the hypnotist. While he is in this trance, he is like someone in a coma who has no contact with his real surroundings. Now with respect to noetic prayer, we're not dealing with something real that has been stored in the memory and that by recalled and that by being recalled causes someone to have a dream. Now with respect to noetic prayer, we're not dealing with something real that has been stored in the memory and that by being recalled causes someone to have a dream. What takes place during noetic prayer is not the same as what happens during a hallucination in which someone imagines that he sees something that is not really within his field of vision or perceived by his senses at the time. In the case of noetic prayer, what transpires in the human heart and what man feels takes place precisely at the same time that he feels it. It is not something from the past, but an experience of the present. Furthermore, no one who is hypnotized or hallucinating has an alert mind, but someone in a state of noetic prayer is not only alert, he can also simultaneously feel something quite clear-cut taking place within him. There is something else, there is someone else, praying in his heart on his behalf with unspoken sighs. Romans 8.26 None of this is observed in someone under hypnosis. During noetic prayer, the believer is well aware that he, that what is taking place inside him feels natural and has been set in motion from within, but not by himself. This is not simply an unambiguous experience, it is also something that the believer can simultaneously observe and participate in if he chooses to do so. This experience is genuine, and the burden of proof for this lies not with the Orthodox who are knowledgeable about this experience, but with the scientists who have doubts about it or want to investigate it. If scientists provide their own interpretation for this phenomenon called noetic prayer, they are responsible for proving that their interpretation is correct. After all, the Orthodox have an age-old tradition 
for their interpretation call of noetic prayer. For the Orthodox, there is no question about the genuineness of noetic prayer, and the Orthodox interpretation of it is indisputably correct. After all, we are not dealing with an interpretation of an experience from the past which cannot be verified or reproduced, but with an interpretation of a real experience today. This reality is alive within the Orthodox Church. It is an experience that continues to be repeated and handed down from generation to generation. The Church uses her own language, an ecclesiastical language, to talk about this. Through the voice of St. Paul, she says, We do not speak with human wisdom, but with the power of the Holy Spirit. Quote, and my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. 1 Corinthians 2, 4. Returning to the text, what does this mean? Why does the Apostle Paul make a, make a contrast between the power of the you Holy Spirit and the so wisdom upset. of this world? He makes this contrast because someone who has become a temple of the Holy Spirit, by the Holy Spirit entering him, dwelling in him, and making an abode in his heart, such a person has a keen sense that there is a power in his heart. And since he can feel this activity of the Holy Spirit within, the words of others, their philosophical or theological arguments, do not convince him that he has become a temple of the Holy Spirit, because he already knows this directly by personal experience. He can feel the Holy Spirit within him. He can hear him serving as both a priest and chanter within his heart. In other words, the Holy Spirit bearing witness to the human spirit, Romans 8.16, is what makes this person absolutely certain that his body has become a temple of God because the Holy Spirit has come and taken up abode in his heart. The Apostle Paul describes this state when he says, The Spirit of God cries within our hearts, Abba, Father. Galatians 4.6 Footnote 36 In other words, the Holy Spirit within us cries out towards the Father, saying, My Father. Returning to the text, now, was the Apostle Paul describing a reality or an illusion? Was St. Paul's head in the clouds when he was saying these things? If you pay close attention to what St. Paul says in chapter 8 of his epistle to the Romans, you will see that he is talking about real prayer in the human heart. But the Apostle Paul is not the only one to speak in this way. David uses this language in his Psalms, and the Old Testament speaks in this manner as well. From all of this, we can see why the early Christians who were being prepared for noetic prayer, first memorized the entire Psalter. The Psalter was so important to them because it helped them to practice noetic prayer. Today it is debatable how many Christians have read the entire Psalter. In the old days, Christians used to read it over the departed before the funeral. Perhaps it would be the only time that they would read it in its entirety. The priest would read the Psalter, and if he had a chanter close by, he would have the chanter read it as well. In the old days, in order to be ordained deacon, you had to demonstrate that you knew the Psalter by heart. Footnote 37 from Canon 2 of the Seventh Ecumenical Council. Returning to the text, why? Why was the Psalter so important in the early church? It was so important because the Psalter contains prayers associated with noetic prayer. In Jewish tradition, in prophetic tradition, in an early Christian tradition, people prayed noetically using the Psalms. This is why St. Paul says, I will pray with my spirit, I will pray with my mind. I will chant with my spirit, I will chant with my mind. 1 Corinthians 14.15 Hence, noetic prayer is not only words, is not only prayer with words, it is also psalmody, or prayer with the psalms. 
we have examples from tradition of noetic prayer using the Psalms. One of these examples is provided by St. John Cassian, who taught noetic prayer with the Psalms. There is plenty of evidence for this assertion. Footnote 39 in Father Ioannikios Balan, the Romanian Book of the Elders, references made to a Christian layman who had unceasing noetic prayer, unceasingly reciting the Psalms. Returning to the text, so it is necessary to answer these questions with a philosophical proof when those who believe and have attained to the state of noetic prayer have this experience within? Since this experience exists, what is the use of metaphysics? What is the use of philosophy? How could philosophy be helpful? Has philosophy ever really helped anyone in this personal life to acquire this state of noetic prayer that acts ceaselessly in his heart so that he might become a temple of the Holy Spirit? If someone has not had this experience but would like to experience it, he normally goes and is taught by those who do have it. This experience of noetic prayer is usually a prerequisite for an experience of theosis, although there are some exceptions. During the experience of theosis, man experiences the uncreated glory of God. This experience of theosis is exclusively a gift of God. God grants it to whomever he wishes to grant it, whenever he wishes to grant it, and for as long as he wishes to grant it. It is not dependent on any human endeavor. Under normal conditions, however, one prerequisite is noetic prayer. Chapter 13. Theology and the Scientific Method if a student is interested in astronomy, he will read astronomy books about the celestial bodies and later observe the stars in the sky. When he grows up, if he desires to study the stars in more detail and to know them at closer range, he will go to college, study the stars through a telescope, and see those things that are invisible to the naked eye. This is precisely what happens in the spiritual life. The Christian who desires to see the glory of God must pass through certain stages or experiences through which he advances spiritually. As we have said earlier, these stages are purification, illumination, and theosis. The state of total illumination comes when unceasing noetic prayer becomes active within the human heart. Then a person literally becomes a temple of the Holy Spirit. In spite of this similarity, the sciences, including any of the hard sciences, do not have any special and decisive experience corresponding to a state of illumination. Only a state corresponding to theosis is present in the exact sciences permitting our analogy. Just as someone who is in a state of theosis can see the glory of God, so a scientist who has the instruments appropriate to his science, a telescope or a microscope for example, can see the desired object in order to observe it and study it. As soon as you take up a natural science, you can immediately see the object you are learning about and come into a direct contact with it. Scientists are inspired by what they observe. A biologist is inspired by the flora and fauna that he observes. A microbiologist is inspired by the microscopic organisms that he can see through his, tele his, through his microscope. Hence, a microbiologist is, so to speak, microbi microbiologically inspired. An astronomer is astronomically inspired. Scientists of all sorts are inspired by the object of their research. So what should the equivalent state of inspiration be for a theologian? And the word theologian does not refer to earning a degree in theology, but to being accounted worthy of seeing God. Naturally, a theologian should be divinely inspired. But who is divinely inspired? Someone who has seen God. Now why do we call someone who has attained to illumination an illumined person? 
He is an illumined person because he has the Holy Spirit dwelling within him and teaching him. And how does the Holy Spirit teach him? By noetic prayer. By praying in this person's heart, the Holy Spirit teaches him and lets him know what he should say or do. Someone in such a state continuously receives insight about what the will of God is on any given subject. Hence, the Holy Spirit himself is, the, is this person's teacher in the art of prayer. In theology, God is not only the object of human inquiry, he is also man's teacher who guides him to knowledge, the knowledge of God, which is nothing less than the vision of the uncreated light. Now, in the exact sciences, how does a student achieve his proper place in his scientific field? Doesn't he need someone to teach him the science he's studying? Is he only taught by books, or is he taught also by living scientists? Of course, he must also be taught by qualified scientists. He has to go to college and get connected with a professor who knows the subject matter that interests him. In this way, the student also becomes convinced that his professor is truly knowledgeable about what the student desires to learn. Of course, the student realizes that his professor does not know everything. He learns this from the professor himself. A consistent and reputable scholar will clearly reveal to his student what he knows and what he does not know in his field. Thus, the student learns from his professor what remains unknown as well as what is already known in the scientific field he has chosen. He also learns the method or methods for acquiring knowledge. In other words, he is trained in research methods. He is taught how to distinguish between the known and the unknown, as well as how to sift useful knowledge from useless information. He also learns how to enlarge the focus of his study or, or inquiry by further research. So if his professor is completely frank with the student and informs him about what he knows and what he does not know, if he teaches him how to do research, then the student can develop gradually into a specialist in his field just like his professor. From all these details regarding vital questions of methodology, we can see that the empirical method for learning a science thoroughly corresponds to theology, the patristic method for acquiring the knowledge of God. We can also see that both illumination and theosis are empirical states that are utterly, utterly unrelated to metaphysics or philosophical reflection. In terms of methodology, initiation into the state of illumination is no different from the corresponding initiation of students into any exact science. In order to reach the state of illumination, you have to go and get connected with a spiritual father who has already attained to this state, who is inclined to teach you the method for acquiring the knowledge of God, and who is willing to help you advance spiritually. Chapter 14 on Religion This is the question that is now before us. Should we identify religion with teachings about the immortality of the soul and the existence of God for the sake of the life to come? Should we moreover identify religion with the final victory of universal justice? Are we obligated to have religion because there must be a God of justice who will ultimately judge all mankind so that the unjust will be punished in hell and the just, in other words, good boys and girls, will be rewarded in heaven? If our answer is yes, then we must have religion so that justice will ultimately prevail and the human longing for happiness will be fulfilled. Is it conceivable for good boys and girls to be unhappy after their death in the life to come? It is inconceivable. And if they were wronged in this life, is it possible for these good boys and girls who suffered unjustly to receive no justice in the next life? It is impossible. And in heaven, shouldn't they lead a pleasant life, a life of happiness? Of course they should. But for all of this to happen, life after death has to exist as well as good, as a good and righteous God who will settle the score with good and just judgment. Isn't this how things stand? 
he has to exist, at least according to the worldview of Western theology in the Middle Ages. But then modern psychology comes along and discredits all of this. Modern psychology tells us that these views are products of the mind because human beings have an inner sense of justice which calls for naughty boys and girls to be punished and good boys and girls to be rewarded. And since compensation fails to take place in this life, the human imagination projects this idea into another life where, where it must take place. This is why someone who feels vulnerable becomes religious and believes in his religion's doctrines. It also applies to someone who is devoted to justice and has a profound and earnest feelings about what is right. They both believe because the doctrinal teaching that they have accepted satisfies their psychological need for justice to be done. Their reasons are not based on philosophy or metaphysics, but on purely psychological considerations. Given the above grounds, it is only right that good people be rewarded with justice and happiness in this life if they are ever to be rewarded at all. In fact, justice and happiness must prevail in this life because these people do not know if they will have another life, since the arguments that we have mentioned for the existence of another life are clearly based on human psychology. They are not scientific arguments or arguments that are based on experience and scientific methodology. Thus, these people believe in life after death simply because they want to believe in it. This is also why the religion is really centered on the existence of another life where injustice is punished and justice is rewarded. Thus, you can see why so many serious-minded people living in America and Europe today can no longer accept such arguments on the basis for religion. This is also why such a large number of scientists have rejected religion altogether and have been driven to agnosticism, while their respective colleagues in Eastern Europe have been driven to atheism. Footnote, this was said in 1983. However, in recent years, many communists have abandoned their strict atheism of the past and have become agnostics. So in this respect, they resemble European and American agnostics. On the other hand, there are religious people in communist countries and in America who continue to believe in life after death because, as we have explained, they want to believe even though they do not have scientific arguments to support their convictions. This is the general state of affairs. Now, what is orthodoxy's position on all of this? Is orthodoxy also a religion that is identified with the fate of man after death, or is it a religion that is interested exclusively in this life here and now that will have repercussions for the next? Of course, it is the latter case. The fathers explain the reason for this with one small sentence. In Hades, there is no repentance, from St. John of Damascus. In other words, after death, the possibility for repentance does not exist. However, modern Greek theologians follow their teacher, Adamantios Choreus, and use metaphysics to approach the subject. By copying Latin and Protestant methodology, they have placed themselves utterly outside of Orthodoxy's patristic tradition. Chapter 15 on two kinds of faith. Human beings can have two kinds of faith. The first kind of faith, which has its seat in the mind, is the reasonable faith of acceptance. In this case, a person rationally accepts something and believes in it, in what he has accepted, because this faith does not justify him. When Holy Scripture says, man is saved by faith alone, Ephesians 2.8, it does not mean that he is saved merely by the faith of acceptance. There is, however, another kind of faith, the faith of the heart. It is referred to in this way because this kind of faith is not found in the human reason or intellect, but in the region of the heart. This faith of the heart is a gift of God that you will not receive unless God decides to grant it. 
It is also called inner faith, which is the kind of faith that the father of the young lunatic in the gospel asked Christ to give him what he said, give to give him when he said, Lord, help my unbelief, Mark 9.24. Naturally, the father already believed with his reason, but he did not have the deep inner faith that is a gift of God. Inner faith is rooted in an experience of grace. Since it is an experience of grace, what would this, what would, what would this make inner faith as far as an Orthodox Christian is concerned? Inner faith is noetic prayer. When someone has noetic prayer in his heart, which means the prayer of the Holy Spirit, in his heart, then he has inner faith. Through this kind of faith and by means of prayer, he beholds things that are invisible. When someone has this kind of vision, it is called theoria. Theoria, in fact, means vision. As a rule, there are two ways for vision to take place. When a person has not yet attained to theosis, it is still possible for him to see by means of the prayer that the Holy Spirit is saying within his heart. After attaining to theosis, however, he can see by means of theosis in which both his inner faith, i.e. prayer of the heart, and hope are set aside, and only love of, for God remains as a gift of God. This is what St. Paul means when he says, But when that which is perfect is come, then that which is in part shall be done away. Footnote number 45, 1 Corinthians 13.10 and 13.13 13, 13, Since faith and hope have fulfilled their purpose and man has reached the point of seeing God, the source of his faith and hope, he now simply knows and loves the one who is love. Returning to the text, when the perfect is come, faith and hope are done away, and only love remains. And this love is theosis. In theosis, knowledge comes to an end. Prophecy is set aside. Tongues which are noetic prayer cease, and only love remains. St. Paul says this in passages of great clarity and beauty. The Church Fathers, in turn, offer interpretations of these subjects that are indisputably correct. Footnote 46. The entire Philokalia is concerned with these issues. End of chapter. Chapter 16 on Apologetics, the Question of the Soul. An Orthodox theologian is under no obligation to take the existence of a Platonic-style Frankish soul into consideration because unlike the Franks who were followers of Plato on the question of the soul, the fathers refused to follow Plato on this topic. Naturally, modern Greeks have some trouble recognizing this because they are in, in such awe of Plato and Aristotle. Modern Greeks learn to admire them so much in school that the fathers turn into performers on the stage who dance to the music of Plato and Aristotle. How else, other than by being followers of the ancient Greeks, could the fathers have become great fathers in the eyes of modern Greeks? In Greece, the sole criteria for greatness is if something comes from ancient Greece. This is also why, why the Feast of the Three Hierarchs has taken on particular form, taken on the particular form it has taken in Greece, portraying the Three Hierarchs as a continuation of the great Hellenic spirit of ancient Greece. But if you read the Three Hierarchs, and above all, St. Chrysostom, you will see that St. John Chrysostom consistently ridicules the ancient Greeks. He is renowned for deriding them. As far as St. Chrysostom is concerned, the word Hellenine, Hellene, which ended up meaning idolater, is nothing more than an insult. Basil the Great and Gregory of Nyssa do not lag far, far behind him for that matter, but as Cappadocians they belong to another tradition. In terms of modern science, an orthodox theologian 
is under no obligation to engage in apologetics like the Latins do over the question of the soul's immortality, the existence of a spiritual soul, or metaphysical epistemology. He is under absolutely no obligation whatsoever. On the contrary, I would say that he is obligated to do precisely the opposite, that is, to try not to engage in apologetics and simply to present the patristic positions on these subjects. Christianity appeared during an age in which idolatry or paganism was the law and in which the various philosophers, Platonists, Aristotelians, Pythagoreans, and so forth, dominated the field in which Greek and Latin speakers discussed questions concerning the soul. Most of these philosophies were also religions with a following, such as Neoplatonism, which was clearly a religion. Naturally, those who want to say Plato claim to, to save Plato claim that he did not have a religious system so that he will not be characterized as the founder of a religion. I personally suspect, however, that the ancient Platonic system was itself also a religion. Platonism was not only a religion, but Plato himself also founded a religion, since he incorporated his religious convictions within his philosophical system, since Plato did not separate his religion from his philosophy. Platonism, per se, is a religion. Of course, you can hardly make the same case with Aristotle, because Aristotle did not accept the individual immortality of man. For Aristotle, man as an individual is not a soul, so at least from this point of view, Aristotelianism is not a religion. However, from another angle, it is a religion, because Aristotle himself believed in the gods of that time, and because he himself was religious as everyone else in his age. In fact, he was not above believing in magic, since his view of religion was also magical. Chapter 17 on Human Thoughts and Concepts Now what is the origin of human thoughts and concepts? Are the categories of human thought, words, or, and concepts innate to the human mind, or are they acquired, gained through external impressions? Although this was discussed in, discussed in ancient Greek philosophy, it still continues to be discussed today. We know that Aristotle explicitly thought about this problem. This same question was re-examined later during the Middle Ages. And when we reach the age of the Enlightenment, John Locke and David Hume again returned to these metaphysical categories in their highly cognate studies. And this brings us to the modern era. Today, the exact sciences are also wrestling with this question. We can see psychologists, psychiatrists, biologists, doctors, biochemists, and others applying the empirical method of research in order to ex explore the question of how thoughts originate and are created in the human mind. Today this topic is not so much a question of logical processes on man's part as examined by philosophy and metaphysics or of philosophical reflection as it is a matter of empirical investigation. Currently, the year, footnote, the, the year was 1983, scholars are discussing whether human language is innate or acquired. From linguistics, we learned that every language has such a remarkable development with the passage of time that a linguist can attest to important differences in the same language from one century to the next. So when you read ancient texts from an earlier age, you cannot be certain that you fully comprehend those te texts or even the vocabulary of that period. In other words, you cannot be sure how specific words were used then and what they meant. For example, when you compare ancient Greek with modern Greek in this way, you discover a large number of words that are preserved in modern Greek but have a different meaning today. So these words no longer signify precisely what they did in antiquity. At any rate, what matters for us is that the church fathers are quite familiar with the fact that expressions convey specific concepts. 
Thus, in order to understand the fathers properly, we must know not only the expressions that they used, in other words, what they said and taught, but we must also know the corresponding concepts. And when we say the fathers, we do not mean only the fathers in the New Testament, but the fathers in the Old Testament as well. The New Testament fathers refer to the Old Testament prophets as the fathers of our fathers. This is also why we celebrate the Sunday of the Holy Forefathers. So the aim is not merely to know the fathers' sayings or expressions, but also the concepts they used and the particular expressions or sayings they used to communicate them. Now, when we examine the entire patristic tra tradition, we note that the fathers stress that idolatry begins when someone identifies expressions or concepts about God with God himself. They make this claim because God cannot be identified with any human concept. The uncreatedness of God literally cannot be expressed through concepts. Although we can attribute names to God, for example, we say that God is good, bountiful, merciful, and so forth, this practice is, strictly speak, speaking, improper. And we know that it is inappropriate because of the prophets and the fathers' experience of glorification or theosis. During theosis, concepts about God have to be set aside. This experience discloses the fact that no created concept corresponds to the uncreated reality of God. There is absolutely no identity or similarity between our concepts or names for God and the reality that is none other than God himself. And this explains what is ascertained during the experience of theosis, that God is not unity, he is not one, he is not trinity. There are some lovely passages on precisely this issue by St. Dionysius the Areopagite and St. Gregory of Nyssa. All the other church fathers agree with these passages because all the fathers share the same experience. Chapter 18. What is the fundamental doctrine of the patristic tradition? Today some people view what is called apophatic theology as a philosophy influenced by Neoplatonists. Footnote 48. Neoplatonists are philosophers who belong to the last school of Greek philosophy that took shape definite shape in the 3rd century Rome under the direction of Plotinus, A.D. 205-270, the author of the Aeneids. Returning to the text, there is no question that the terminology of the Neoplatonists is similar to that of the Church Fathers. The Neoplatonists also have their own apophatic theology, but there is one crucial difference. difference. Neoplatonism is characterized by ecstasy, an experience that the Church Fathers view as demonic. During an ecstatic experience, the human mind or reason, logisticon, leaves the boundaries of time and space, loses any train of thought, and is supposedly united with unchanging reality. In other words, Neoplatonists claim to transcend time and the world of change. In this process, the body, as far as they are concerned, is bad or negative. At any rate, the body does not participate in the Neoplatonic experience of ecstasy. For them, apophatic theology in its entirety is simply the purging of human thought by the removal of all defects inherent in its limited nature. This release from the defects of human thought is the source of Neoplatonic apophatic theology. However, they are not making an effort to be freed from the created universe, but from the world of change, because Neoplatonic philosophy and metaphysics do not have principles or concepts such as creation ex nihilo or uncreated existence. They do not make the distinction between the created and the uncreated. In contrast, the basic category of Christian thought is the clear distinction between the created and the uncreated, together with the teaching that between the created and the uncreated, there is absolutely no similarity. 
This is not only the fundamental doctrine of the patristic tradition, but also of the Jewish tradition until today. Chapter 19, What is the Experience of Theosis? Notwithstanding the importance of the distinction between created and uncreated reality in patristic theology, medieval scholastic theology in the West would confuse these categories with the categories for changeable and unchangeable reality. In scholastic theology, which was really a mixture of Aristotelianism and Platonism, both sets of terms became interchangeable. Aristotle speaks about an unmoved mover. He claims that there are about 49 unmoved entities that are in a state of pure actuality. Although they themselves do not move, they do cause motion in others. Like a magnet, they, they move other beings by attraction. The presence of entelechy, the self-actualizing fulfillment of a thing's distinctive nature, is what drives motion to completion. Through entelechy, something in a potential state achieves its, actual or its active or actual state. For example, a seed from a tree is a potential tree. When it falls to the ground and finds conditions appropriate for growth, it sprouts and becomes an actual tree. While it is still a potential tree, it has not yet been perfected, because its inherent entelechy has not completed the course of its development. For a seed, perfection is attained when it becomes a tree. But according to Aristotle, there are also unmoved movers that do not possess this inherent potential, but are in a state of pure actuality or are completely active by nature. He maintains that there were always in existence, that they were always in existence, that they will always exist, and that they move all things by attraction. Whatever undergoes this transformation from a potential state to an actualized state progresses towards its perfection and the attractive force that guides it towards this perfection originates in the unmoved movers. That is Aristotle's teaching in a few words. Now we encounter the same ideas on this topic in the Neoplatonists that we encountered in Aristotle. Plato, on the other hand, did not deal with this subject as far as we know. But when we turn to the Church Fathers, we encounter a certain St. Dionysius the Areopagite who is accused of Platonizing and Neoplatonizing even though he clearly tells us that God is not solely an unmoved mover. He is also moved. In other words, God not only moves all things, but he himself is also moved. There is in God an aspect that is capable of suffering or undergoing change. Naturally, St. Dionysius, in writing this in opposition to Aristotle and the Neoplatonists, but it, but it is also irrefutable proof that St. Dionysius the Areopagite was by no means in league with Neoplatonists, even though he used their language. The suggestion that God is not only an unmoved mover, but also moved, is heresy to Neoplatonists and Aristotelians. It is an idea that does not withstand the test of reason, and that consequently indicates that the Fathers did not practice philosophy. When the Fathers say that God is both an unmoved mover and also moved, they show us that we cannot apply any human categories to God. If we do try to apply them, then we will run into logical contradictions at every turn. This truth about God, however, is not derived from philosophy, but from the experience of theosis. By experience, the fathers know that our concepts about God lose all value when we gaze directly at God himself and behold that reality, which is none other than God himself. Thus, our concepts about God are used only as a means for helping someone to see God. When that person beholds God, then faith and hope pass away, and only love remains. These are St. Paul's words, and they are unequivocal. 1 Corinthians 13.13 13.
When you behold God who is love, then faith in God and all the concepts related to faith, together with hope in God and all the concepts related to hope, are set aside. The concepts are taken away because they are replaced by the vision of the Beloved Himself. During an experience of theosis or glorification, this love is the vision of God. Then a person is glorified. He sees Christ in glory and partakes of the glory of Christ. He experiences participation in God. People usually relate to their fellow man on the basis of their impressions of him that they have already formed. But when man gazes directly at Christ during an experience of theosis in which Christ reveals himself to him in his glorified theanthropic, theanthropic nature, man is unable to keep in mind any human concept or previous opinion that he had presumably formed about Christ because absolutely nothing within creation, material or immaterial, with the exception of Christ's human body, resembles the uncreated reality and glory of the glorified Christ, whom he now beholds. Man simply accepts Christ as he sees him. Man cannot describe him. He cannot speak objectively about him, because human words are not capable of describing Christ's uncreated reality or his divine nature. And this is the case because there is no similarity between the created and the uncreated. At this point, we must stress that in the Christian tradition, the experience of theosis is not at all related to any form of ecstasy. Theosis is not an ecstasy. It is not something that only the human rational faculty experiences. During the experience of theosis, the entire man participates in this experience. Even the body participates with all its senses in normal working order. When someone sees Christ in glory, the, that person is completely alert. So this person does not merely see something in his mind. He sees with his body as well. If you read the book of Job, you will see that it refers to the fact that Job's flesh saw God. Footnote number 50, Job 19, 26, And though after my skin worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh, flesh shall I see God. Also Job 42, 5, I have heard of thee by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye seeth thee. Returning to the text, in other words, Job's body also participated in the vision of the glory of God. This is the Jewish tradition at its very best. Throughout the duration of this experience of glorification or theosis, man's body does not lose contact with its surroundings. But this presupposes that a person has grown accustomed to seeing the glory of God because he has, he has previously had comparable experiences. A person is disoriented only in the beginning when he first experiences theosis. He can even be temporarily blinded by the excessive brilliance of the uncreated light, but he, him, but he does not lose his mental faculties. His mind functions normally. He can think just like everyone else, but his sense perceptions may be impaired since he is not yet accustomed to the uncreated light. He may be temporarily blinded like St. Paul was blinded the first time that he saw the glorified Christ on the road to Damascus. When we say that St. Paul was blinded, it does not mean that his eyes were damaged, but that he was temporarily blinded by the overwhelming brilliance of the light of Christ's glory. When the apostles' senses were no longer overpowered, he could again see normally. It is not that same it is not that some miracle took place and he regained his sight he simply did not see for a period of time because his eyes were overwhelmed when the uncreated light becomes visible it is much more luminous and intense than the light of the sun and yet it is by nature different from sunlight it is the very light of the transfiguration in fact this light is not even light as we understand it and are familiar with it why not because the uncreated light transcends light 
When the vision of light comes to an end for someone in this state of glorification, that person continues to have normal relations with other people in his life during the entire period in which the energy of theosis still affects him. We see this clearly in the lives of the saints. Although the saint is in a supranatural state during an experience of theosis, he continues to mix with those around him as before. The only difference is that he does not eat, sleep, or relieve himself for the duration of this state, since his condition is above nature and his life is sustained solely by grace, the grace of the Holy Spirit. If this state lasts for 40 days and 40 nights, as it did with Moses on Mount Sinai, Exodus 34, 28-31, the person in this state does not sleep, does not grow tired, does not eat, does not drink, and so forth, for so many days and so many nights. In other words, he is freed from the body's blameless passions or the natural passions of the body. These phenomenon occur because the functioning of the digestive system and the requirements for sleep are suspended. Then man becomes an earthly angel. But apart from this difference, he behaves just like everyone else. He walks around, he talks with others, he interacts socially, he teaches, and so forth, and at the same time he still remains in this state. Folk tradition from the villages in Asia Minor, especially in the old days of the Turkish domination, preserves accounts of a village priest in such a state for the duration of the Divine Liturgy. Nevertheless, he continued to read, chant, make exclamations, read the prayers, and finish the service. How are we to explain this? Although it is true that unceasing noetic prayer of the heart is discontinued during an experience of theosis, that does not mean that reasonable worship necessarily has to stop. The mind or intellect can continue to pray using texts, especially since it does, it does so for the instruction of others. Of course, the priest who experiences theosis during the divine liturgy does not need to pray using texts for his own benefit, but he does so for the benefit of those who are following the liturgy and need to hear him. So the priest continues to celebrate the Divine Liturgy until the end. Footnote 52. This also took place with St. Seraphim of Serov during the Divine Liturgy. In his case, however, on account of the excessive glory and the newness of the state of Theosis, it appears as though his contact with his surroundings was interrupted. By the time of his famous conversation with Motovilov, however, he was accustomed to the state of Theosis and no longer disoriented by the brightness of the light. See the life of the saint. Translator's note. Returning to the text. Some of today's academic theologians look down their noses at these descriptions from folk tradition and make fun of them. They do not realize that when it comes to such matters, folk tradition falls well within the scope of the experience of illumination and theosis, which is backed up by an entire tradition of patristic thought that provides us with theological interpretations for these phenomenon. So it is clear that we cannot identify these phenomenon with the ecstasies of the Neoplatonists or even with the ecstasies of the Middle Platonic school if we take into account the writings of St. Justin Martyr, the philosopher, and use them as a key for interpreting the teaching of that school. I mention the Middle Platonic school because some historians of philosophy claim that Platonism was not a religion but became a religion in the form of Neoplatonism starting with Plotinus and his disciples. But in the first part of Justin Martyr's dialogue with Trypho, St. Justin describes how he personally became an adherent of Platonic philosophy, how he found a Platonic philosopher who assumed the responsibility of teaching him, and how he expected to see God at any moment. This means that Justin Martyr, who lived a considerable time before the appearance of Neoplatonic philosophy, spent his time doing spiritual gymnastics or spiritual exercises. He believed that in this way he would suffer an ecstasy at any moment and see God. 
This also means that his teacher was not merely a philosopher, but rather a type of spiritual father, an instructor or guru, as we would say today, who guided him to religious experiences, which for us are just demonic experiences. The Hezekist theologians discussed these issues at length. For example, St. Gregory Palamas denounced the ecstatic experiences of the Platonic, Platonists as demonic. Today, since such language does not strike some people very well, since they do not like the sound of the word demonic, they will replace this word with contemporary psychological or para parapsychological jargon and call these experiences hallucinations or parapsychological phenomenon. And indeed, those who seek ecstasies really suffer from these hallucinations. Nevertheless, as far as the Church Fathers are concerned, all these phenomenon are still clearly demonic. Chapter 20 on Eros According to the Neoplatonists, God does not yearn or have Eros for man, but man yearns for God. They view Eros as a deficiency, because they claim that man yearns for something that he lacks. In their opinion, wherever yearning or Eros is present, it implies insufficiency even in the relationship between God and man. In ancient Greek philosophy, this lack or deficiency is called Eros, since someone who is not perfect has Eros, that means that Eros is for the imperfect. For the Neoplatonist, perfection involves the repression or des of desire or Eros. It is only because man is an imperfect being that he yearns. Since God, on the other hand, is perfect, he does not have Eros. God cannot yearn because he is perfect and self-sufficient. This is the reason why the Neoplatonists consider him to be an unmoved mover. Now consider what holds true for Orthodox tradition. When St. Dionysius the Areopagite claims that God is also moved, he is saying something else. He also mentions how some people have had discussions about whether Eros and Agape are the same, and have come to the conclusion that they are not the same. Eros is different from Agape. Footnote 54, Agape is the Christian term for the love between the persons of the Holy Trinity and the Trinity's love for mankind. It is characteristic of Christ's disciples and is manifested most clearly in the self-sacrifice of the cross. It implies unselfish behavior and placing one's brother first in matters large and small. Agape is ineffable, gift or fruit of the Holy Spirit that is shed in the human heart. God is agape. St. Paul's hymn to agape offers a summary of the traits that manifest the presence of this divine gift. Agape is long-suffering and is kind. Agape does not envy, agape does not boast, is not puffed up, does not behave unseemly, does not seek its own, is not provoked, takes no account of evil, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Agape never fails. 1 Corinthians 13, 4-8. Returning to the text. That is why they maintain that God has agape for man, but does not have Eros. Meanwhile, man has Eros for God, but he should only have Agape. But when St. Dionysius enters the discussion, he brings up his own experience of theosis and reaches the conclusion that God not only has Agape for man, but also Eros. He also claims that Eros and Agape are the same thing for God. Now, what Platonist could ever say that God has Eros for man? That is out of the question as far as they're concerned. Footnote 55, God is a person and loves man. For this reason, St. Maximus the Confessor who follows St. Dionysios says, Theologians call the divine sometimes 
an erotic force or eros, sometimes love, agapi, sometimes that which is intensely longed for, eraston, and loved, agapiton, Consequently, as an erotic force or eros, and as love, agape, the divine itself is subject to movement, and as that which is intensely longed for and loved, it moves towards itself everything that is receptive of this force and love. From Hierotheus Vlakos, the person in the Orthodox tradition. Chapter 21 on Terminology, Expressions, and Concepts in Theology the Fathers stressed that all the expressions and concepts that a person can have are products of human thought. Concepts and expressions do not come down from heaven, and God did not personally create concepts and expressions in the human mind. The Fathers based this teaching on their experience of theosis, which leads them to stress that every human language is a human invention. Man is the creator of the language with which he communicates with his fellow man. There is no divine language. God does not have his own language that he gave to man, and he does not even communicate with man via some special language that he gives to those whom he communicates. Language is the result of human needs. People formed it in order to help them communicate and interact. So language is not what it was made out to be by Dante, a good member of Protestants, a good number of Protestants, and the Frankish theologians of the Middle Ages. It is also not what the Muslims claim for the Quran that the Quran and its language came down from heaven. The Muslims even maintain that there exists an uncreated Quran in heaven. On this very issue, there is an important discussion that took place between St. Gregory of Nyssa and the Eunomians. The Eunomians believed in the existence of a divine language that God revealed to the prophets and that included the names for God that the prophets mentioned. So the Eunomians were claiming that the names for God were the essence of God and that these names for God mentioned in Holy Scripture conveyed concepts that corresponded to the reality that is God. Of course, this is not the case. In line with the above, we cannot make any distinction between a divine language and human languages, because there is no divine language with which God speaks to mankind. There is also no way to discern which words are appropriate for theology and which are not. There is no unambiguous distinction between acceptable and unacceptable terminology. The only criterion that we can use for terminology about God is the criterion of reverence. There are words that are not in good taste for us to use when referring to God. For example, it is disrespectful to say that God is a smooth operator. There are other words, however, that are respectful enough to use when we speak about God, such as saying that God is light. In this context, the epistemology of the Fathers, which is clearly empirical, is in its entirety quite useful at least for Orthodox Christians, and perhaps for other Christians as well. You could even call it quite modern. After all, when the Fathers composed their writings, they did not suspect that a Frankish tradition would later develop under the influence of Augustinian thought. Most of the Fathers in the East were not familiar with Augustine. Those who did know something about him did not consider him very important, at least in the earlier days. In any event, the Fathers did not read Augustine's writings and certainly could not imagine that the entire Western tradition of Goths, Franks, Lombards, Normans, and others would later embrace him as their only source of guidance in theology. Unfortunately, Augustine espoused the epistemology of the Platonists, Neoplatonists, and Aristotelians. Since his epistemology was clearly Aristotelian-Platonic, it was also completely different from that of the Church Fathers. What sets 
Augustine theology, apart from the rest of patristic theology, is that he theologically accepts the very essence of Platonism by accepting Plato's archetypes. According to Plato, all things in the world are copies of certain archetypes. Naturally, the fathers not only thoroughly rejected this teaching and the very essence of Plato's archetypes, but they even excommunicated from the body of the church those who accepted Plato's archetypes, because the acceptance of these archetypes is a form of idolatry. Footnote 56, see the conciliar decrees of the Holy and Ecumenical Seventh Council for Orthodoxy. Today I do not know if there is any serious-minded human being who accepts this teaching. From what has been said so far, you can see why Orthodox Christians do not make a distinction between secular and religious terminology. There are not secular words on the one hand and religious words on the other. All the words that we use for concepts about God are secular words. It is enough that they be respectful. Thus we see God, or the Old Testament Yahweh, being described as a rock. But is God a rock? In the spirit of Platonic philosophy, we should only use abstract expressions for God. We should employ terms like nous, logos, intellect, hypostasis, substance, trinity, unity, and so forth. Nevertheless, the Bible uses words like mountain, rock, stone, water, river, sky, sun, and so on. In other words, if we take a look at the Old Testament, we will find many names attributed to God that are not taken from human form or nature, but from inanimate creation. The energy of God is described as a cloud, fire, light, and so forth. Since the time of the prophets and even earlier, Jewish tradition has known that man cannot make any image of God because God does not have any image in the material universe. In the Old Testament, any image of God whatsoever is forbidden. This is why Jews did not have icons or images in the Old Testament. The only exact image of God the Father is Christ, the Word of God who became man. God does not have any other images outside of Christ. A common human being is not an image of God. Only Jesus Christ, the God-man, is the image of God. With the exception of Christ, in his human nature, nothing in the created world is an image of God. Footnote 58, Adam was fashioned in the image of Christ. Strictly speaking, man is not an image of God the Father, but he is an image of Christ. Returning to the text, this is the reason why we are are free to borrow any name or concept and to attribute it to God as long as we do so in an apophatic way, because God does not have any likeness in the created world, and because there are no concepts in the created world that can be attributed to God as a way of identifying him. So on the one hand, we, we do attribute a name to God, but only if, on the other hand, we also take it away from him. For example, although we say that God is light, we negate this at the same time by saying that God is also darkness. We do not add this qualification because God is not light, but because God transcends light. God does not lack anything, but he exceeds everything. This will become clearer as we proceed. At this point, we come to a crucial difference between the apophatic theology of the Church Fathers and that of the Western scholastic theologians of the Middle Ages. Even today, if we open up a dogmatic textbook written by Roman Catholic theologians, we will come across their claim that there are two ways to theologize. One way involves attributing names to God, and the other negative way involves removing these names from God. But what is absurd is that for, the, for them, these names are not taken away from God in order to avoid attributing them to him, but in order to purify the names of their imperfections. But you will not find such a thing in the Church Fathers, for whom the method of attributing names to God is really quite simple. Names are given and they're taken away. In other words, they make use of opposites. 
But when the fathers speak about God and attribute opposites to him, they negate Aristotle's law of contradiction, and in so doing, overturn the entire edifice of Aristotelian philosophy. This means that the fathers do not follow the rules of logic when they deal with theological matters or talk about God. Why? Because the rules of logic are valid insofar as they are valid only for God's creation. The rules of logic or philosophy are not applicable with God. There is not any philosophical system or system of logic that can be applied to God. The fathers consider those who think that they can approach God via pure mathematics to be terribly naive, simply because there is no similarity between the created and the uncreated. What is valid in the created realm is not valid for the uncreated reality that is God, because there are no rules from created reality that can be applied to uncreated reality. The fathers do not say anything about God on the basis of philosophical reflection. They do not sit at their desks like the scholastics in order to do theology, because when the church fathers theologize, speculation or reflection is strictly forbidden. The only sensible way to study the Bible is not to speculate, that is to try to, try to understand Holy Scripture by employing the reason or abstractions, but to pray. But what do we mean by prayer? Noetic prayer, because noetic prayer by means of the Holy Spirit visits the believer and prays within his heart. When this occurs, the believer is illumined and becomes capable of rightly understanding the concepts from the Old and New Testament and is also in a position to be led from his present state of illumination to theosis. If and when someone reaches theosis, he will know from the very experience of theosis precisely what is meant by the sayings and concepts that he comes across in the Bible. This now brings us to an imp interpretive key. When those who reach theosis and who wrote Holy Scripture use expressions or concepts, these concepts are divinely inspired in the sense that they are based on the experience of illumination or theosis. This also applies to the expressions or concepts used in the writings of the Church Fathers and the Saints. In other words, they wrote what they wrote on the basis of this experience, and because of this experience, what they wrote is divinely inspired. Chapter 22 on Two Forms of Revelation This is why there are two forms of revelation. We have revelation as noetic prayer and revelation as theosis. Of course, the basic key is the second kind of revelation as glorification or theosis. Through theosis, we fully comprehend the revelation of illumination. In this way, we encounter an understanding of revelation and divine inspiration that is thoroughly and exclusively empirical. But why does God not reveal words or some new terminology during this experience of theosis? When the Holy Spirit comes and prays within the human heart, he does not pray with new words that he brings alone with him, but he prays with familiar words that are already in the mind and are taken from human experience. For example, the Holy Spirit uses the very same prayer that the believer uses when he prays in his mind, so that the self-same prayer becomes the prayer of the heart. For instance, the monk says in his mind, Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me. When the Holy Spirit enters his heart, then these very same words will become the prayer of his heart. From this point forward, his heart will be praying with those these words rather than his mind. When the Holy Spirit prays within the believer, he prays with the same words that the believer himself used previously. This also explains the tradition of noetic prayer taking place with the words of a psalm or some extemporaneous prayer. In this case, the particular psalm or the words of a prayer become the prayer of the human heart. So the experience of illumination does not reveal to us any new words or terminology. We cannot claim that the Holy Spirit came to the fathers and revealed to them terminology, such as one essence or three hypostases or co consubstantial. 
That is not revelation, but theological terminology that the fathers employed to contend with heretics. Terminology is not revelation from God, since properly speaking, even inspiration is not revelation from God. Simply put, when the fathers were inspired, they would compose a text from expressions and concepts with which they are already f were already familiar. They would take these expressions and concepts from the tradition of piety, from what they already knew about the faith, from what they already know about the faith, from the Old Testament or from the New Testament. They would use nouns taken from common experience so that everyone can comprehend their meaning. But when God reveals himself through theosis, all sayings and concepts are set aside. According to the Church Fathers, when someone speaks about God, footnote 60, if someone is not in a state of illumination, he is not allowed to theologize. This patristic position is expressed best by St. Gregory the Theologian in his well-known first theological discourse against Eunomians. Quote, All people, my friends, are not in a position to philosophize about God. No, they are not. The subject matter is not so cheap and lowly that anyone can approach it. And I will add that the subject is not for every audience, nor for every hour, nor for every place, but it is for certain occasions, before certain people, and within certain limits. Everyone is not permitted, because theology is permitted only to those who have been examined and been accomplished in theoria, and have been previously purified in soul and body, or at least are beginning, are being purified. Returning to the text, according to the Church Fathers, when someone speaks about God, he is to do so on the basis of the inner experiences he has accumulated, the supporting testimony of the Holy Spirit in his heart, and the documented experiences of Church tradition of those who have attained to theosis. Since he is already in a state of illumination, he turns to those who have had who have experienced theosis as guides in his theology. In other words, he uses those expressions and concepts that the saints who reached theosis in the past and present used and handed down to the church. Here we have the basic key to the patristic tradition. Whoever speaks about God is found in a state of illumination and speaks about God on the basis of the documented experiences of those who have experienced theosis, the Old Testament, the New Testament, and patristic texts. He also prays on the basis of their documented experience. This explains why the most important prayers of the Church are the Psalms of David, which are the foundation of the liturgical life of the Orthodox Church. After the Psalms comes the spiritual songs and hymns that the Apostle Paul speaks about. All these Psalms, songs, and hymns are the building blocks that provide structure to the Church's liturgical life. They act in unison to guide and prepare the believer for illumination provided that he is a struggler and is purified from his passions. And when someone enters a state of illumination, he uses these psalms, hymns, and prayers that he hears in church. In other words, when someone is in a state of illumination, the Holy Spirit uses the prayers of the liturgical tradition as he prays within that person. And when the believer finds himself in this state of illumination, that is when he speaks about, that is when he speaks about God. He does not speak about God merely on the basis of his own personal experience in general, but on the basis of a specific personal experience in which the Holy Spirit himself bears witness to the believer's spirit. Footnote 61, the Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit. Romans 8.16 Returning to the text, So someone in this state of illumination who studies the writings of those who have experienced theosis does so on the basis of this certainty provided by the Holy Spirit's testimony. When he reads the Old Testament, the New Testament, the patristic texts, the Acts from the Church Councils, the Saints' Lives and Discourses, 
as well as the Church's liturgical texts. The Holy Spirit's testimony enables him to interpret correctly these writings of those who have experienced theosis. If he also happens to have undergone an experience of theosis, then he is not able then he is not only able to interpret these writings correctly, but he is also able to theolo theologize correctly. In this way, he, he also becomes a theologian of the church. Consequently, there is a fundamental difference between someone who has experienced theosis and is a true theologian on the one hand, and someone who is in a state of illumination and practicing theology on the other. The difference remains even if the person is in a state of illumination even if a, the person in a state of illumination has had a small taste of the experience of theosis. So a th theologian really speaks about God, but someone making a theological interpretation also speaks about God. However, the mere fact that someone, while making a theological interpretation, speaks about God does not mean that he is a theologian. He will literally become a theologian when he reaches the state of theosis and sees Christ in glory. Then all the truth that man is able to know in this life is revealed to him, because Christ is the truth, which is personal. Until someone reaches theosis, he is simply a student of theology who speaks about God. He will become a graduate with a degree in theology when he experiences theosis. Of course, those who have earned a degree from a theological faculty at some university are nowadays considered to be graduates with a degree in theology. But these self-styled theologians do not bear any relation, relation to the genuine theologians of the patristic tradition. If we use the criteria of the Apostle Paul and Church Fathers such as St. Simeon, the new theologian, regarding who is truly a theologian, we will see that contemporary modern Orthodox theology under the influence of Russian theology is not patristic theology, but a distortion of patristic theology, because it is written by people who do not have the above-mentioned spiritual prerequisites. Only when you are strictly, when you use strictly scientific criteria can you acquire some objectivity in your research and in your conclusions. Chapter 23, Concerning Objectivity and Research in Theology. But what do we mean when we talk about objectivity and research? In the exact sciences, objectivity is acquired through observation and analysis. For example, how did we learn that there are nearly 100,000 genes in a cell? We observed them in an electron microscope, we photographed them, and we counted them. Footnote 62, this was said in 1983. From that time until the present, enormous strides have been made in this field. The same procedure is also followed in astronomy using the telescope. Before 1926, all astronomers believed that there was only one galaxy. But today astronomers know by the use of radio telescopes that there are at least 100 million galaxies in the universe. In other words, you look at something and verify it by the experience and of observation. Everything in, in the exact sciences revolves around this objectivity which is derived from observation, experimentation, and measurement. The chief characteristic of this objectivity is an experiment's repeatability with the reproduction or confirmation of the same results. In other words, many scientists at different parts of the globe can simultaneously verify something that one of their colleagues first discovered. Scientific knowledge is subject to verification and redefinition by other researchers at different locations and times. So the evidence of many reliable scientists gives rise to objectivity and defines it in the exact sciences. What then can be objective in patristic theology and how much does it differ from sub subjectivity? 
The diverse theologies that circulate today in Orthodoxy are simple estimates about what patristic tradition is. They are subjective assessments. How can today's Orthodox theologian acquire objectivity in his theology? The problem is that he accepts the truth of his faith as a given because he has usually been raised in the Orthodox faith since childhood. In other words, he believes in advance because he is an Orthodox Christian. He accepts Christ in advance. He accepts the truth of Christ's teachings in advance. He accepts the teachings of the Church Fathers in advance. He accepts the decisions of the local and ecumenical councils in advance. He accepts the canon law of the Church in advance, and so forth. Under such conditions, how can a modern Orthodox theologian possibly acquire objectivity in his theological method? This is the fundamental problem today. Chapter 24, What is the Core of Orthodox Tradition? We happen to be entrusted with a treasure, the theology of Orthodox tradition. Orthodox theology is the culmination and product of centuries of experiences that have been repeated, renewed, and recorded by those who have experienced theosis at different times. We have the experience of the patriarchs and the prophets as well as the later experience of the apostles. We call all of these experiences glorification. To say the prophet was glorified means that the prophet saw the glory of God. To say the apostle was glorified means that the apostle saw the glory of Christ. Seeing the glory of Christ, the apostle ascertained by his own experience that the glory of Christ in the New Testament is the glory of God in the Old Testament. Hence, Christ is the Yahweh and the Elohim of the Old Testament. Although it is not clear in the Old Testament who the Holy Spirit is, the apostles discovered who he is by experience. Their experience repeats the experience of the prophets, there is a difference between the apostles that there there is a difference because the apostles were glorified after the incarnation Yahweh of the Old Testament now has the human nature of Christ although three of the apostles were partially glorified during the transfiguration on Mount Tabor all of the apostles were fully glorified at Pentecost during which they reached the highest state of glorification that any human being can ever reach in this life after the experience of the apostles come the experiences of the glorified who include, include the church fathers and those saints who reached theosis. And so the experience of theosis continues to appear in each generation up to the present. Footnote 63. During the past few decades, many saints of the church who have experienced theosis have become known, such as Elder Paisios the Hagiorite, Elder Sophronia of Essex, England, Elder Porphyrios of Athens, Elder Yakovos of Avia, Elder Yosef the Hezekist, Elder Ephrem of Katanakia, among others within and outside of Greece. Returning to the text, This experience of theosis is the core of the Orthodox tradition, the foundation of the local and ecumenical councils, and the basis for the Church's canon law and liturgical life today. If the contemporary Orthodox theologian is to acquire objectivity, he must rely on the experience of theosis. In other words, we can positively state that a student of patristic tradition has acquired objectivity in his theological method only when he has personally undergone purification and illumination and reached theosis. Only in this way will the researcher not only understand the patristic tradition, but also verify for himself the truth of this tradition through the Holy Spirit. Chapter 25, Who is a Prophet in the New Testament? The Church bases her entire teaching both about both the Holy Trinity and the Incarnation of God the Word on her teaching about divine grace. St. Paul writes 
God has placed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, 1 Corinthians 12.28. In time, most would interpret this passage as indicating that for St. Paul, the prophet was the bishop in the churches of the early Christians. So first there are the apostles, then the bishops, and after that the presbyters, who according to this interpretation of St. Paul are the teachers in the church. If you read St. Paul's 14th chapter in his first epistle to the Corinthians, you will see that in this chapter he clearly refers to the existence of many prophets or Christians with the prophetic gift of clairvoyance in the parish of Corinth, since he writes, Let the prophets speak in groups of two or three, 1 Corinthians 14.29. There must have been at least three prophets, and perhaps there were as many as six or seven. From this we can conclude that all the prophets in Corinth were not bishops. So what does St. Paul mean by the word prophet? Its meaning becomes clear in another epistle, where the Apostle Paul writes that the mystery of God has not been revealed to previous generations in the way that it has been revealed to his own generation, namely in the way that it has been revealed now to the Apostles and prophets. Ephesians 3.5 This means that in the Old Testament Christ did not reveal himself in the way he has now revealed himself to the Apostles and prophets. At this point, St. Paul is not talking about the Old Testament prophets, but about the prophets in the church. First of all, this means that an apostle is someone to whom Christ has revealed himself in glory. This explains why in chapter 15 of his first epistle to the Corinthians, St. Paul's list of all the people to whom Christ appeared includes not only those appearances after Christ's resurrection, but also after Pentecost. In other words, St. Paul does not distinguish between appearances of Christ before Pentecost and afterwards. So merely being a disciple of Christ before his crucifixion is not the primary way to know that someone is an apostle. The primary characteristic of an apostle includes having an experience in which Christ reveals himself in glory to that person after his resurrection. St. Paul writes, I do not know Christ according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. 2 Corinthians 5.16 Because in order to know Christ according to the flesh, St. Paul would have had to spend time with Christ before his, re his crucifixion, something that St. Paul did not do. After the crucifixion, burial, and resurrection, we do not know Christ according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. In other words, we see Christ noetically with the eyes of our soul and in glory during, during an experience of theosis. Secondly, St. Paul's words about the mystery of God now being revealed mean that a prophet is another type of believer to whom Christ has revealed himself. So when someone acquires this particular experience in which the post-resurrectional Christ appears to him in glory, or when someone sees Christ in glory, this experience automatically makes that person either an apostle or a prophet. This means that when St. Paul refers to a prophet, he is speaking about someone who has reached theosis. We can see this clearly in St. Paul's statement, when one member of the church is glorified, then all the members of the church rejoice with him, 1 Corinthians 12.26 which he mentions before listing those whom Christ has placed in the church, first apostles, second prophets, and so forth, 1 Corinthians 12.28. Moreover, scholars now admit that St. Dionysius the Areopagite's comments about bishops from that time period reflect the historical reality. In other words, just as the Apostle Paul's prophet is someone who has reached theosis, so St. Dionysius the Areopagite's bishop is someone who has reached theosis. Furthermore, at that time, the bishops of the church were selected from those prophets whom St. Paul mentions. Footnote 70, 
The prevailing custom was to use the title bishop for the first among the prophets in a parish and to refer to the remaining prophets as presbyters, although in the beginning it was common for all the prophets to be called presbyters. It is noteworthy that the church at Corinth had at least five prophets, 1 Corinthians 14:29. Paul was not very concerned about the title bishop or presbyter since he considered them all to be prophets and as such to be at the foundation of the church together with the apostles, Ephesians 2:20. As in the case of the apostles, their ordination was directly from Christ by means of theosis, Ephesians 3.5, and afterwards by means of the recognition of this theosis by their peers who had also experienced theosis. Uh, excerpt from Father John Romanidi's work on Roman Fathers of the Church, the works of Gregory Palamas. Returning to the text, Now we learn from Nikitas Stithatos that there are people who have been con consecrated bishops directly by God himself although they are not recognized as bishops by others. Nevertheless, they really are bishops. In other words, by having reached theosis, they have the spiritual authority of a bishop. At that time, the parish of Corinth was apparently in commotion because believers with kinds of tongues, which are different forms, which are the different forms of noetic prayer, or at least some of them, thought that they should be put on par with everyone else. This is why St. Paul tries to restore good order to the church by telling them that in the church there are first apostles and then come the prophets, then the teachers, and finally those with kinds of tongues. In chapters 13, 14, and 15 of his first epistle to the Corinthians, St. Paul makes pains to give a thorough presentation of, orthodoxes, of orthodox ecclesiology. Apparently, in the Apostle Paul's parishes, all the members of the body of Christ were clearly called by God. Footnote 71, of course, St. Paul stresses, stresses that God is the one who places each one in the church. He begins with the apostles and prophets who have reached theosis and ends with kinds of tongues. These spiritual stages are the stages of the baptism of the, Holy, of the Spirit, which is distinguished from the baptism of water, as it appears until today in the services of baptism and chrismation. Those who are found in, the, in, the number, in this number compromise the royal priesthood. The private persons, 1 Corinthians 14, 16, are the laymen who do not have the baptism of the Spirit. They are not yet numbered by Paul among the members that God has placed in the church. Returning to the text, because everyone has received a visitation by the Holy Spirit in his heart. To recap, apparently in the Apostle Paul's parishes, all the members of the body of Christ were clearly called by God because everyone had received a visitation by the Holy Spirit in his heart. They were divinely called members of the body of Christ, because they were all ordained by the Holy Spirit himself. So the prophets in his parishes attained to glorification or theosis, just like the apostles did. Meanwhile, the parish's teachers and those ranked below them had only attained to illumination. Chapter 26 on the Mystery of Chrismation if we now relate this information from Corinthians with what is mentioned in the prayers from the service of Holy Chrism, we can clearly see that the mystery of chrismation was viewed as a mystery for the illumined, that is, for those who had already received the visitation of the Holy Spirit in their hearts. In the early church, the mystery of chrismation and the mystery of baptism were apparently not celebrated together. While the mystery of baptism was performed unto remission of sins, the mystery of chrismation was intended for those who had already become members of the body of Christ because they were presumably called by God through the presence of the Holy Spirit already praying in their hearts. The mystery of chrismation 
was performed to seal or authenticate this event. That is why during the mystery the priest exclaims the seal of the gift of the Holy Spirit when he anoints the Christian. So this seal was the church's confirmation that the Christian who had just been chrismated had reached the stage of illumination. That is why chrismation is called confirmatio in the Latin tradition, meaning confirmation. It was the confirmation that this particular Christian had passed through the stage of purification and had reached a state of illumination. So the church comes along and seals him, considering him to be, from this point on, a full member of the body of Christ. So in the early church, the baptized were considered to be members of the church only after chrismation. Through baptism, they received remission of sins. Through chrismation, they became members of the church. Today, infants are chrismated immediately after their baptism. Chapter 27 On Laity, Clergy, and the Church Notwithstanding the earlier understanding of baptism and chrismation, we see a strange development in the history of the church. The quality of the church's royal priesthood, 1 Peter 2.9, did not remain at its original level. Footnote 73 the regeneration of man, the revelation of the heart, and the discovery of the hypostatic principle cultivate in man a fervent love for the entire world that is expressed by sacrificial prayer on behalf of the whole world. With a heart aflame with love, man emerges from the narrow, limited boundaries of self and lovingly, lovingly enters the hypostasis of the other. To a certain extent, he lives Christ's self-emptying and anguish in Gethsemane by lamenting for the entire world. In the lives of many saints, we see that they had this compassionate heart for all creation, even for the devil. This sacrificial prayer that arises when the believer experiences the appearance of God and uncovers his own personhood is called the royal priesthood. Those who pray noetically have what is called the spiritual priesthood. Metropolitan Herotheus Vlachos, the person in the Orthodox tradition. Returning to the text, Even in the days of the first Christians, both laity and clergy were present from the very beginning. St. Paul calls the laity idiotes or untrained person. The church fathers in turn explained that St. Paul's untrained persons are the laity. A layman is someone who has been baptized but has not yet been called from on high so that he could enter the royal priesthood or become a member of the clergy. A clergyman was considered to be called by God when the Holy Spirit entered his heart and began to pray there. In other words, he had become a temple of the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 6.19 and consequently a member of the body of Christ that is the church. This is why the Apostle Paul first tells the Corinthians, Ye are the body of Christ, and members in particular. 1 Corinthians 12.27, and then explains what he means by saying, God hath set some in the church, first apostles, second prophets. In other words, he gives us his own definition for the body of Christ. Later the church fathers inform us that at a certain point in history, men were ordained into the clergy who would have been considered to be laymen in the early church. Afterwards, some of these men were also consecrated bishops. St. Simeon, the new theologian, has particularly written a dissertation on this subject. This means that a certain practice crept into the church. Men who were unqualified to belong to the clergy of the church were ordained to the clergy. In other words, men were ordained who had not met the spiritual prerequisites for the priesthood. St. Simeon the New Theologian was so highly successful in rebelling against this abnormal situation that the Church called him the New Theologian. From his era until, this, until the time of St. Gregory Palamas, a great battle raged within the Church about the qualifications for the election of a bishop. 
On account of this hesychistic controversy, as it came to be called, St. Simeon, the new theologian's position ultimately prevailed and was sanctioned. Candidates for consecration as bishops of the church were to be selected from monks within the hesychistic tradition of purification, illumination, and theosis. Chapter 28 on Frankish Domination and Hesychism Throughout the entire period of Turkish domination, bishops continued to be selected from monks within the hesychist tradition. For that matter, the same practice also persisted during the Frankish domination that preceded it. Footnote 77, Father John uses the term Frankish to refer to the theological and cultural synthesis of Germanic tribal paganism and Augustinianism that began under Charlemagne, eventually extinguished the Orthodox Catholic Church of the West, and inspired the Crusades, which contributed to the fall of Constantinople in the East. In this case, the Frankish domination may also refer to the Venetian rule in the islands. Translators note. Returning to the text, a large segment of the Orthodox Roman world that was later enslaved to Turkey had previously been enslaved to the Frankish states. It is worth noting how vehemently the Franks struggled to subjugate the Orthodox Christians to Frankish bishops during the many centuries of the Frankish presence in parts of Greece and the Middle East. After all, the Franks did not allow Orthodox bishops to be consecrated. And this practice should hardly surprise us, since we are all familiar with the Frankish domination in recent Greek history when the Dodicanisa, I'm sorry for the pronunciation, were under Italian rule and the Franks refused to allow the consecration of an Orthodox bishop for those islands. The plan of the Roman Catholic Church and the Italians was to subjugate the Orthodox Christians to Frankish bishops in this way. That is, what is, that is what we call Frankish domination. Frankish domination was not merely an episode from the Middle Ages before the Turkish domination, since there was a Frankish domination in Greece, even after our liberation from the Turks. What is really significant is that the Franks who governed Eastern Roman territories during this entire period were very much aware of the fact that Orthodoxy found and finds her strength in the Hesychist tradition. Hesychist piety has always given Orthodox Christians the strength to endure slavery. But how does Hesychism give anyone such strength? Someone with noetic prayer is not afraid of anything, because in his heart he has the Holy Spirit whose testimony supports him and who informs him that he possesses the true faith in God as well as the correct convictions about God. Such a person is in a position to undergo any torment whatsoever for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. The Franks are not the only ones who are aware of this. Even the Turks knew it. For centuries, hesychism has been recognized as orthodoxy's strength. However, the Franks did not view hesychism as representative of patristic tradition, but as a distortion of patristic tra tradition. They would never admit that the hesychist tradition is the genuine Christian tradition of the first Christians, in spite of the fact that this very tradition was also present in the West for many centuries. Unfortunately, this tradition was lost when it was engulfed within the tradition of the conquerors of Western Roman culture, in other words, in the tradition of the Normans, Goths, Franks, Burgundians, Lombards, and the rest of the Germanic tribes. This means that hesychism is not merely an Eastern phenomenon. It is a universal Christian phenomenon that was originally present throughout all of Chrysostom. If you correctly interpret St. Paul, you can see that he repeatedly speaks about noetic prayer which is the heart of hesychism from the standpoint of methodology. The Apostle is speaking about this prayer when he writes, I will pray with the Spirit, I will pray with the noose, 
and I will chant with the spirit, I will chant with the noose. Footnote 78, 1 Corinthians 14.15. See the discussion of this passage in uh, section 1. Returning to the text, the church fathers understood this prayer to be noetic prayer. If you need proof, look at St. John Chrysostom's commentary and see how he interprets these passages from the Pauline epistles. So the Hezekist tradition is not Byzantine tradition, but early Christian tradition. The Franks knew full well that they had correctly identified Hezekism as the source of orthodoxy strength. So what did they do to get rid of it? After the revolution of 1821 and the founding of the modern Greek state, the Franks deliberately set out to undermine Hezekism. And Adamantios Correas took it upon himself to do just that. After the revolution of 1821, Correas declared war against Hezekism at the same time that the Russians and the Europeans were also setting their sights at undermining Hezekism and uprooting it from the Christian tradition. This is how we've reached the point where today we consider Hezekism to be an unimportant detail within the Orthodox tradition and an insignificant phenomenon from the past. In fact, we learn from the textbooks that we used in junior high that Hezekism is a heresy a trivial and marginal tradition. Let's summarize what we've said so far. First of all, St. Simeon, the new theologian, starts a revolution. Next, this tradition manages to elevate at least the hierarchy. From that point, this tradition continues until the Greek Revolution of 1821. And finally, the Greek Revolution comes along and nearly buries this tradition. But what happened next? The plan to bury Hezekism spread to the heart of the Orthodox patriarchates. The Archbishop of Athens at the time, Melitios Metazaxis, took it upon himself to see that that burial completed. Apparently, Metazaxis was an important Mason. And I say apparently because the Masons themselves claim that Melitios Metazaxis was a Mason. So Metazaxis first became Archbishop of Athens, then Patriarch of Constantinople, and finally Patriarch of Alexandria. As Metazaxis made his, this tour of duty from Athens to the Patriarch of Constantinople and from Constantinople to the Patriarchate of Alexandria, he was in fact first Metropolitan of Kytios in Cyprus. He buried Hezekism wherever he went. The only Patriarchate to which he could not go was Antioch, because Antioch had revolted against Orthodox Roman culture during the previous century and would no longer accept Greek Orthodox bishops. Otherwise, Metazaxis would have gone there as well. He was also expelled from Jerusalem. I suspect that the Romans, Catholics, and Protestants played some role in this development since the burial of Hezekism has always been and still is one of their aims. In the meantime, a renowned Roman Catholic specialist on Orthodox subjects named Martin Judgy, who lived from 1878 to 1954, writes a book in Latin about the dogmatic teaching of the Eastern Church. In this book, he announces the death of Hezekism. He writes, quote, We can now say that Hezekism has disappeared. A contemporary Greek historian and author of the history of the Greek nation has said the same thing. He triumphantly announces that Hezekism is dead, and the words Rom Romanos, Romois, and Romanism, footnote, Romanidi, or Roman culture, and the language of Roman and purified and spoken Greek 
respectively, have now disappeared from Greek language and that modern Greeks no longer have a problem with their ethnic identity. Since Hesychism and Roman culture are not unrelated, the plan was to extinguish them both. Recently, a Roman Catholic theologian named Daniel Sternon wrote a large article in French about polemism. In it, he explains, he presents a complete bibliography and fully describes the interests of past scholars in Hesychism. His article begins as followed, as follows. When Judgey wrote his book on doctrinal teaching, he announces the death of Hesychism, that is, that Hesychism no longer exists. Sternone wrote this survey of the complete bibliography on Palamite studies in 1972. Of course, at the time there were only a few works on Hesychism, together with some translations of patristic texts by monks from the past two centuries. In the monasteries, some monks had beautifully translated into modern Greek quite a few of St. Gregory Palamas's works. Naturally, Judgey was not interested in doing research about what the monks were writing. He was solely interested in publications about Hesychism that could be found in the libraries of the theological schools, which at that time had forgotten about Palamas and Hesychism. Later, Sternon continues, however, dozens of works on Palamas have appeared within a short period of time, leading to a revival of Hesychist teaching in Orthodoxy's official theological schools. Today, Interest in Hesychism happens to be on the rise. Many works related to Hesychism have been translated into foreign languages, and many heterodox have become orthodox on account of Hesychism. However, we happen to be at a curve in the road on the subject of Hesychism. Behind the scenes, a battle is being fought that the student world is not aware of. It has reached the point of downright slander, not only on theological subjects, but even on non-theological topics. The aim of this slander is to prevent the spread of Hesychism. One group in particular from Athens has made up insulting catchphrases in order to mock hesychism. They invent catchphrases because they are not professionally capable of holding a serious theological discussion on the history of doctrine or the dogmatic teaching of the Church Fathers. Instead, they spread the spirit of scholarly research that is conducted in Protestant circles, even, even though the Orthodox prerequisites for Old and New Testament research are completely different. So they, they sling their catchphrases and ridicule the leaders of hesychism to those living both in Greece and abroad. They also resort to more direct methods to hinder the church in Greece, which has already taken up a position in favor of hesychism. One of her bishops, Pantolemon Karnikolas of Corinth, has labored at length on patristic texts. He has compiled an index for the Philokalia, arranged the key to the church fathers, and translated the book The Way of the Pilgrim. So, the hierarchy of the Greek Church has positioned itself on the side of theological leaders for the revival of this Hesychist tradition. In spite of this, the other side, comprised of philosophers and heralds of the end times, still tries to attack, even though those who really speak about the end times are those who practice Hesychism, not relaxation. Footnote 83, Father John here is making a play on words from the Greek words representing hesychism and relaxation. Genuine orthodox eschatology is hesychism. These philosophers use social and political issues as a mask to hide their filthy culture in order to bury our Roman culture. For this reason, do not be naive. Christ told us to be as wise as serpents. Chapter 29 on Conservatives and Liberals in their mudslinging campaign, 
the opponents of the Hezekiah revival have now called the supporters of this tradition conservative. But what does the word conservative mean in the West? In the West, a conservative is someone who still identifies the Bible with God's revelation to mankind and the world, because in the old days, Protestants and Roman Catholics believed in the literal inspiration of Holy Scripture. In other words, they believed that Christ dictated the Bible word for word to the prophets and writers of the Gospels by means of the Holy Spirit, so that the writers of the Bible were like scribes who wrote down whatever they heard the Holy Spirit say. But now biblical criticism has come along and discredited this line of thought, dividing those in the Protestant world into conservative and liberal camps. For example, the Lutherans are divided into conservative and liberal factions. In America, there are separate Lutheran churches, one church for liberals and the Church of the Missouri Synod for conservatives. One faction does not accept the Bible as revelation on absolute terms, while the other faction does. One can also observe the same phenomenon with the Baptists. The liberal Baptists do not accept the Holy Scripture as literally inspired revelation, while the others embrace it as a revelation that is inspired word for word. You can also find the same division among the Methodists. In fact, this split between liberals and conservatives over the issue of Holy Scripture can be seen in all the Protestant denominations in America. Now ask yourself whether this division can be applied to Orthodox tradition. Are there conservative fathers and liberal fathers with respect to the Bible? Is there a single church father who teaches the literal inspiration of Holy Scripture? Is there a single church father who identifies the Holy Scripture with the experience of theosis itself? No, there is not one, because God's revelation to mankind is the experience of theosis. In fact, since revelation is the experience of theosis, an experience that transcends all expressions and concepts, the identification of Holy Scripture with revelation is, in terms of dogmatic theology, pure heresy. Can someone who accepts this patristic teaching on theosis be characterized as conservative because of, based on the split over Scripture in the Protestant world? When liberal Protestants hear about this patristic principle, they say, oh yes, that's liberalism, while conservative Protestants say, no, it's heresy. In other words, when we follow the fathers, we Orthodox are heretics as far as conservative Protestants are concerned. You may well ask, who are the Orthodox liberals and the Orthodox conservatives? They are those who do theology in a way that corresponds to the theology of Protestant liberals and conservatives. This is the reason why certain theologians in Greece have been divided into liberal and conservative camps. The liberals follow liberal Protestants on these subjects, while the conservatives follow their conservative counterparts. But can we classify patristic tradition using such character characterizations and buzzwords? Of course not. Nevertheless, a hesychist theologian of the Eastern Church will be viewed as a liberal in the West because he refuses to identify the written text of Holy Scripture including its sayings and concepts, with revelation. Since revelation is the experience of theosis, it is beyond comprehension, expression, and conceptualization. This means that the labels conservative or liberal should not be applied to those who adhere to orthodox tradition. Based on what is meant by revelation, the fathers are neither liberals nor conservatives. Simply put, there are church fathers who are saints of the church, who have only reached illumination, and there are saints of the church who have also reached theosis and are more glorious than the former class of saints. This is the patristic tradition. 
either you attain to illumination or you attain to theosis once you have already passed through illumination. Orthodox tradition is nothing other than this curative course of treatment through which the noose is purified, illumined, and eventually glorified together with the entire man, if God so wills. Therefore, is there such a thing as an illumined liberal or an illumined conservative in this context? Of course not. You're either illumined or you're not. You have either reached theosis or you have not. You have either undergone this treatment or you have not. Apart from these distinctions, there are no others. Chapter 30 on Divine Inspiration Today, Protestants and Roman Catholics are under the impression that God gave Holy Scripture to the Church. This idea has so greatly influenced modern Orthodox thought that the Orthodox even agree with Protestants and Roman Catholics on this point. Moreover, Orthodox and Roman Catholics agree that God also gave sacred tradition to the Church. With respect to, tr to tradition, the Protestants are showing some signs that they are reconsidering their position. But now the Orthodox Church has to face a certain paradox. When you read the Old Testament, the New Testament, and even writings from tradition, you will run across opinions that science proved to be false at least 150 years ago, especially on account of the breakthroughs in research made by the exact sciences. Naturally, this creates a serious problem for someone who does not fully grasp what the Fathers mean when they speak about divine inspiration. This problem mainly applies to the study of the Bible. In their tradition, the Franks followed Augustine, and identifying revelation with the revelation by God of concepts to man. In fact, they identified revelation not only with concepts, but also with the expressions, that is, terms and words, that conveyed these concepts. But if you accept this opinion, then you have already subscribed to the so-called literal divine inspiration of the Bible. This means that God manifests himself in order to dictate, as it were, expressions and concepts to the writers of the Bible. Once you adopt this train of thought, however, you inevitably reach the conclusion that God is really the author of the Bible rather than the prophets and evangelists. Since Western theology followed this way of thinking, the appearance of modern science created a serious problem when it overturned certain positions found in the Bible. It was as if science were proving that God is a liar since he himself had earlier dictated or said something else. It is now a commonly held opinion that the work of divine inspiration is restricted exclusively to what is documented in the Bible. When we say divine inspiration, the Bible, the prophets, the apostles, and the apostles immediately come to mind. Now, if you are also a conservative, you will bring to mind some ecumenical counsel outside of Holy Scripture, since a conservative Orthodox Christian believes that the decisions of the ecumenical councils are also divinely inspired. If you are even more conservative, you will bring up the Church Fathers. If you are even more conservative still, you will point to canon law, the, the liturgical life, and even priestly robes and head coverings. In the last case, you are completely conservative. On a scale from 50 to 100, you have hit 100. You are 100% conservative. But what is important in all of this is that most believers suppose that divine inspiration extends over large segments and many facets of life in the church, if not over the entirety of life in the church. Contemporary Orthodox theology is quite confused on this point. There is confusion as to what divine inspiration is, what it means, and where it is found. All Christians, Orthodox and Heterodox alike, can agree that the Bible is divinely inspired. Of course, we are not looking at 
any definitions for divine inspiration or making any qualifications about which portions of the Bible are really divinely inspired. For the time being, we simply assert that the Holy Scripture is divinely inspired. Since Holy Scripture is divinely inspired, what Holy Scripture says holds true, including Christ's promise to his apostles that he would send the Holy Spirit who would guide them into all truth. John 16.3 So, it is the person of Christ who sends the Holy Spirit, and it is the Holy Spirit who guides into all truth. Nevertheless, the question is raised, to whom in particular does Christ give the Holy Spirit, and whom in particular does the Holy Spirit guide into the fullness of truth? The Roman Catholic answer to this question is that the Holy Spirit was originally given to the apostles, and that when they consecrated the bishops, the bishops also received the Holy Spirit. As for the priests, they also participate in the Holy Spirit after a fashion. This conviction of the Roman Catholics can be clearly seen in their service for the consecration of a bishop when the consecrating bishop says to the candidate being consecrated, Receive the Holy Spirit. This gives the impression that the person being consecrated has lived his entire life until this time without the Holy Spirit, whom he now receives at this moment of his consecration. There is no doubt that the act of interpreting the Bible is the work of the Holy Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit who guides interpreters to interpret Holy Scripture correctly. But how does this guidance take place? When medical science claims that a given drug treats a particular disease, they usually know from previous studies how that drug acts therapeutically within the human body. In every science, when we observe a specific phenomenon and say that something happens or takes place, we can usually determine what that something is. In our case, the question is, how does the Holy Spirit lead someone, whom does he lead, and of what does this leading consist? Some people say that when an ecumenical council decides something, that decision is infallible, because ecumenical councils are divinely inspired and so forth. It is as though they want to force us to accept as an infallible teaching whatever an ecumenical council has decided and proclaimed. Of course they are right. An ecumenical council is infallible. Yes, it teaches infallibly and con contributes to our faith. But how did it become infallible? What makes it infallible? Why is it infallible? Why are its decisions infallible? Modern Orthodox theology speaks a great deal about divine inspiration, but as far as I can tell from what I have read, Orthodox theologians, theologians excuse me, talk about divine inspiration. But I have not found any description of this divine inspiration that they are discussing. We have already noted that the Orthodox, Roman Catholics, and Protestants agree that the Bible is divinely inspired. But what does divine inspiration mean? What characterizes the state that can be described as divinely inspired? And if this state survives somewhere, where does it survive? Someone may well say, so were the prophets and the apostles the only human beings who were divinely inspired? After the apostles, are there no more divinely inspired people? Do we have no divinely inspired texts outside of the Holy Scripture? Do we possess no divinely inspired writings by other writers who were likewise divinely inspired? If our answer is yes, who are these divinely inspired people? And if they exist, how do we know that they are divinely inspired? We know that the prophets were divinely inspired. We similarly know that the apostles were divinely inspired. Leaving the prophets and the apostles aside, who else was or is divinely inspired? Moreover, 
What are the different stages of this divine inspiration and how can they be distinguished? How does God inspire someone? How do we know that someone is inspired by God and not by the devil or by hallucinations? When Christ said that he would also that he would give us the Holy Spirit who will guide us into all truth, he was not speaking about ecumenical councils. He did not say that this would take place in the church's ecumenical councils. This new teaching about the infallibility of the ecumenical councils is not contained within Holy Scripture. Christ simply said that the Holy Spirit is the person who will guide us into the fullness of the truth. Before saying this, however, he said, If you have love for each other, I and my Father will come and dwell in you. Footnote 86 Jesus answered and said unto him, If a man love me, he will keep my words, and my Father will love him, and he will come unto him, and make our abode with him. John 14.23 Returning to the text, He also said, Now you see me, but later you will not see me. But if you have love, you will see me, and the Spirit will come and dwell in you, and will guide you to all the truth. Footnote 87 a little while, and ye shall not see me, and again a little while, and ye shall see me, because I go to the Father. John sixteen sixteen. Returning to the text, Christ made all these statements in those chapters from St. John's Gospel that are read by the priests on Great Thursday and are quite basic. But why are these chapters so basic? Why is Christ's high priestly prayer so very important? Why did Jesus pray for the unity of the apostles? What kind of union was he praying for? Was he praying perhaps for the union of the churches? What is this union? When Christ says that the Spirit will guide you into all the truth, he certainly means for it to be understood within a certain context. What is that context? Chapters 14 through 17 of the Gospel according to St. John go into great detail on the relationship between love and the Apostles' spiritual state. They also refer to the outcome of love. However, the fullest expression of love is revealed in the experience of theosis. Theosis is the fullest expression of love. This love that wells forth from the, from the experience of theosis completely heals the human person. When the Holy Spirit enters the human heart, this love is awakened and the believer becomes a dwelling place or the temple of the Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit comes and dwells in man, he brings with him both the Father and the Son. Then the entire Holy Trinity dwells in the believer. But how does the believer know that he has become a temple of the Holy Spirit? How is this determined? A genuine spiritual father can recognize when his spiritual child has received the Holy Spirit and become a temple of the Holy Spirit, because there are specific patristic criteria on this subject. What are they? When Christ speaks about the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the church and on the faithful, he is not speaking in the abstract. This outpouring does not imply that he will send the Holy Spirit to the entire church in general. It also does not mean that the entire church as a whole will receive the Spirit because of apostolic succession in the ordination of bishops and priests. This outpouring also does not mean that the Holy Spirit is somehow guaranteed to dwell permanently within the hierarchy on account of the consecration of bishops because the presence of a bishop does not guarantee that the Holy Spirit will be active in the midst of a council. Proof of this is the existence of many bishops within the church who have been condemned as heretics. If these bishops possessed the Holy Spirit, they would not have fallen into heresy. Therefore, consecration to the episcopacy excuse me, neither proves nor guarantees that the Holy Spirit dwells in a particular bishop. 
Hence, the grace of the episcopacy is not what leads the church into all truth. In this passage from St. John, Christ is speaking about something else. The fathers clearly teach that in this passage, Christ is referring to two states. In one section, he refers to illumination, while in another, he refers to theosis. When Christ says that all may be one, to whom is he referring? Naturally, he is speaking about the apostles. He asks the Father that the apostles become one as we are one. Note that Christ does not use the masculine form of the word the word one, but the neuter form. So, how are the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit one? The answer is that they are united as one by glory, energy, and by essence, but not in their persons or hypostases. They are not united through their persons because the Father the fathers teach that with respect to each other, the persons in the Holy Trinity are, and I'm sorry for the pronunciation, akononita. They cannot be merged or reduced to a common entity or person. What is common in the Holy Trinity is the essence and the neutral and the natural energy of the essence or glory. To repeat the sentence, what is common in the Holy Trinity is the essence and the natural energy of the essence or glory. Now then, how then can we become one as the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are one? What is this oneness and what kind of oneness can we in the Holy Trinity share? What is this common trait? The answer is that we can become one in glory. As the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are one in glory, because they have glory in common, so we will likewise become one when we all participate in the glory of God. As the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are one in glory because they have glory in common, so we will likewise become one when we all participate in the glory of God. We will become one when all of us, or at least those of us who are counted worthy, become partakers of the grace of the Holy Spirit and behold the uncreated light. When someone is glorified, he becomes a communicant of the uncreated glory of the Holy Trinity. Then he is united with both the Holy Trinity and his fellow believers who are also united with the glory of God at that particular moment. So at the mystical supper, Christ prays first of all for the purification of the believers, then for their illumination, and finally for their theosis. Consequently, when Christ says that the Holy Spirit will guide you into all the truth, he is not referring to all people in general, but specifically to those who will share in the experience of theosis. Only when a person reaches theosis will he be guided into all truth. Consequently, all truth about God, but not about the created order, is known only in the experience of theosis. All the fathers have had this experience or similar experiences, since some of them were in a state of illumination while others were in a state of theosis. This is why they all approached Holy Scripture in precisely the same way and likewise interpreted fundamental passages in Holy Scripture and texts by the other Church Fathers in the same way. What can we conclude from all this? When the Fathers were in the state of illumination or theosis, were they or were they not divinely inspired? Naturally, they were divinely inspired. After all, what does divine inspiration mean? It means that someone is inspired by God in contrast to being inspired by the devil or demons. In the latter case, that person would be diabolically inspired or demonically inspired. In terms of divine inspiration, the highest form of revelation and the supreme illustration of theosis were experienced by the apostles on the day of Pentecost. 
Pentecost is the key to Orthodox theology regarding divine inspiration. If you grasp the meaning of Pentecost in the patristic tradition, at least you will know what theology is and what a theologian is, even if you are not a theologian. Just as you do not need to be a doctor to know what medicine is and what a doctor is, in the same way you can know what theology is and what a theologian is and who is making the theological remarks without personally being a theologian or making theological remarks. Chapter 31. Is Orthodox Theology a Positive Science or a Religion? Today's topic is whether or not theology is a science, and if it is a science, what kind of science is it? Nowadays, theology is classified with the theoretical sciences in the contemporary sense of the word theoretical, but not in the patristic sense of the word. Of course, in patristic terms, theology is a theoretical science because it has to do with theoria, which is what makes someone a theologian. In the patristic tradition, the word theoria means vision. Someone who can see has theoria, and theologically speaking, you can see in two ways. First of all, you can see by means of inner faith, that is, by means of noetic prayer, because noetic prayer is a form of the vision of God. At the time of prayer, the believer can see in the sense that he can feel God praying within him. This feeling is called a noetic sensation and is clearly something you experience. This noetic sensation is the first stage of theoria in the sense that a state of theoria is a state in which you can see God. The second stage of theoria is theosis or the vision of God, that is the vision of the uncreated light during which noetic prayer is set aside. During theoria the human noose is healed, since theology involves the healing of a patient whose noose does not function properly. We cannot view this tradition as a theoretical science in the contemporary sense of the word theoretical. On the contrary, theology is clearly a positive science, at least as positive a science as the field of psychiatry. It is worth noting that although a psychiatrist does not always know precisely what his patient is suffering from and what his patient needs in order to be restored to health, orthodox theology and therapeutics always know precisely what every human being is suffering from and precisely what the appropriate treatment is. Orthodox theology is completely unrelated to contemplation. Any kind of ecstatic experience or meditation, footnote 88, such as yoga and so forth. Returning to the text, the purification of the heart or the soul is a well-defined process that does not bear any relation to these those previously mentioned practices. Orthodox theology is concerned with the heart's purification from the passions so that the, the human soul can be restored to health. And this process of purification is the same for everyone. During purification, the believer not only needs to drive out bad thoughts from his noose, but even good ones. This is extremely important because only when the noose is purged of all thoughts, logis me, footnote 89, that is, impassioned thoughts, memories, and fantasies. Returning to the text, only when the noose is purged of all thoughts, logis me, and passions, is it possible for the grace of the Holy Spirit to dwell within the human heart. In other words, once the noose is purified, man becomes receptive so that the Holy Spirit can come and pray without ceasing in the human heart. Footnote 90, according to Abba Barsanufius, Christ tells the soul, quote, Purify your heart from the thoughts of the old man, and I will grant you your requests. For my gifts are given to the pure, 
and can be contained in a pure place. Returning to the text, the parable of the sower is essentially a teaching about how to acquire noetic prayer. The seed sprouts and bears fruit. The bearing of fruit refers to the state of illumination in which the Holy Spirit unceasingly prays noetically on behalf of the believer while the bearing of much fruit refers to theosis. Now, is orthodoxy a religion or not a religion? Many people, myself included, maintain that orthodoxia is not a religion because religion is equivalent to superstition. A religious person is a superstitious person with certain fantasies about God. He superstitiously resorts to religion to find help to cope with his problems in this world because he is afraid of death, because he suffers from poverty, or because he feels psychologically insecure. This is why you can even find wealthy people becoming religious. Religion is not the monopoly of the poor. Of course, Marxists cannot understand this, since they think that if you eradicate poverty and liberate man from his fear of starvation, then he would not need to become religious, because religion would serve no purpose in his life. Communism now, footnote 92, is the year is 1983. Communism now promises the moon. All it takes is for those who govern to put communism into practice correctly. Of course, as an idea and as a community of equality, communism is attractive. In practice, however, equality cannot be realized in this way. For real equality to exist, the human personality must first be healed. If it is not healed, any ideological system whatsoever, no matter how perfect it may be, cannot be implemented because instead of genuine, representat genuine representatives of the ideology working for the system, those looking out for their best interests will always find their way in and corrupt it. Chapter 32 On the Difference Between Orthodoxy and Heresy During the Middle Ages, those in power were well aware of the difference between orthodoxy and heresy. What is the difference? The difference is really quite simple. In heresy, the human noose is not healed, while in orthodoxy it is. In orthodoxy, the healing of the human personality is a reality. The saints are proof of this. Throughout history, heretics have been a lot like modern-day quacks. They would promise some kind of life after death, but in this life here and now, they could neither cure their followers nor offer them anything more than yet another superstition. Heresies were religions about the afterlife. And a heretic was someone whose doctrines were not orthodox and whose doctrines consequently hindered him from reaching purification and illumination. Footnote 93. Grace remains inactive with respect to someone's healing when that person does not hold correct doctrinal criteria. Returning to the text. Orthodoxy, however, offers this cure and can guide the believer to purification and illumination. Medical science has broad interests. Among other things, it is concerned that the environment and our society at large provide the appropriate conditions for our continued psychological health because healthy surroundings help us to maintain our psychosomatic well-being. Similarly, in preventative medicine, a doctor also has to take an interest in concrete social situations that are favorable for a healthy life.
Nevertheless, the physician's main concern remains the health of the body and the treatment of the particular ailments that afflict his patients. When a priest of the Orthodox Church has a patristic mindset and experiences, he fits into the same scenario. His main concern is the health of every human soul. He keeps in mind the word, the words, Seek ye first the rain. Footnote 94 Although, forgive the pronunciation, Vasilia, uh, the, although the Vasilia of God is translated as kingdom of God in most English trend, versions of the New Testament of the Divine Liturgy, Father John in his English works vigorously maintained that such a translation is a serious error. On his website, he wrote, quote, The Greek term Vasilia of God designates the uncreated rule of God and not the created kingdom Vasilion, the, the created kingdom ruled by God. Elsewhere, end quote. Elsewhere, he would note that failure to recognize this has prevented many from seeing that Christ's promise that his disciples would see God's ruling power was fulfilled at the transfiguration. It has also re resulted in fruitless discussions about when the kingdom will come and comparisons with various political systems. In this translation, the word basilia in scripture and elsewhere will be translated as reign or rule, as Father John would certainly have desired. End of translator's note, returning to the text. He keeps in mind the word, Seek ye first the reign of God and his righteousness, Matthew 6.33, and strives to help people find the rule of God hidden within, in other words, to discover how to allow God to rule their inner man. But how is this rule of God discovered? It is discovered when the believer's noetic energy and activity is set in motion. Thus, the Orthodox priest with a patristic mindset focuses his effort on setting in motion the noetic energy of everyone who approaches him. The full sweep of his effort and interests extends to all issues troubling society. But this does not mean that he, and by extension of the Church, should replace his main therapeutic work with all these other peripheral tasks. Throughout the entire course of the Middle Ages, St. Dionysius the Areopagite was the theologian of the Orthodox tradition par excellence. All the fathers invoked him, after St. Maximus the Confessor, as the greatest authority in the Orthodox Church. Of course, we are accustomed nowadays to consider the three hierarchs to be the most important Church Fathers, especially after the establishment of their common feast. Nevertheless, St. Dionysius the Areopagite played a definitive role in the formation of patristic tradition. St. John of Damascus himself stayed close at the heels of St. Dionysius the Areopagite. So if you want to see how our ancestors throughout the Middle Ages if you want to see how our ancestors thought during the Middle Ages, you have to take Dionysius the Areopagite very seriously, regardless of your opinion about his precise identity. Chapter 33. What is the metaphysical approach to theology? We have already mentioned the fact that there is no similarity whatsoever between God and creation, and this absence of similarity means that no analogy can be made between, between the created and the uncreated. Now what is the metaphysical approach to theology? 
In order to have metaphysics or ontology in theology, some kind of analogy between the created and the uncreated certainly has to be made. Western philosophical and theological tradition has two different such analogies and correlations in contrast with orthodox theology where such relations are not drawn. The question is, why not? Most simply because the fathers stressed that no similarity whatsoever exists between the uncreated and the created or between God and creation. This also means that no analogy, correlation, or comparison can be made between them. This implies that we cannot use created things as a means for knowing the uncreated God or his energy. Now the West has traditionally accepted two forms of analogy, the analogy of being and the analogy of faith. Although the followers of Augustine defended the analogy of being, Augustine himself employed both analogies and confused the philosophical method of inquiry into church dogmas with biblical inquiry. In his investigations, he included both the Bible and philosophical speculations in his logical analysis. William of Ockham also made a very important contribution to the historical development of Western theology. He was the father of nominalism and wrote a comprehensive and damning critique of the analogy of being. Nominalists reject every type of distinction between divine essence and divine attributes, in other words, between divine essence and energies, and maintain that the distinction is only in name. Thus, William of Ockham helped create a school of thought that did not accept an analogy of being between the created and the uncreated realms. He taught that philosophy is incapable of helping us discover knowledge about God. Using very powerful philosophical arguments, he wrote a damning critique of the archetypes or universals in Platonic tradition, and nearly extinguished the earlier school of Western Platonists. In so doing, he instigated a serious crisis in the Western theology. This is extremely significant for Orthodox tradition since the Orthodox Church officially condemned Platonic and Neoplatonic teachings on archetypes. The Sunday of Orthodoxy marks the memory of the official condemnation of this particular teaching of Plato and the Neoplatonists. The Orthodox Church also officially anathematizes those who accept this teaching about Plato's archetypes because the Platonic conception of God is clearly anthropomorphic. This teaching about archetypes or forms in the mind of God epistemologically undergirds the entire so-called scholastic theological and philosophical tradition and is essentially a de denial of divine freedom. According to Frank Franco-Latin theology, an analogy of being and an analogy of faith can be made between created beings and uncreated archetypes, forms, ideas, and principles that supposedly exist in the mind of God. On account of this analogy, they believed that if you use human reason to penetrate the essence of beings and their, me their meaning as universals, you can explore the divine essence. As we have already mentioned, this teaching was condemned by the Eastern Orthodox Church at the Seventh Ecumenical Council. This condemnation firmly established and safeguarded the patristic position that there is no similarity whatsoever between the uncreated and the created or between God and creation. Nevertheless, Augustine and the entire Western tradition followed the Platonic approach to God. William of Ockham did not reject the analogy of faith, which he understood as Holy Scripture. For him, the Bible describes what pertains to God as it really is. He also taught that knowledge of God is possible only by means of Holy Scripture. In, an, in the analogy of faith, 
an analogy is made between God and creation. This an analogy is not derived from philosophical speculation as in the case of the analogy of being but from God's revelation to mankind that is recorded in the Bible. The analogy of faith means that in the Bible God reveals his attributes to us and that we cannot truly know these divine attributes from philosophy. Of course at this point Occam directed his attack against Augustine's philosophical method in general but not against the analogy of faith or his, or his philosophical method that relies on Holy Scripture. Luther, the founder of Protestantism, also adopted this analogy of faith. Of course, Luther correctly taught that there are two kinds of faith. One kind of faith is cerebral and involves acceptance by reason. You accept something with your reason and believe that what you accept, but this is not the faith that justifies man. When the scripture says man is saved by faith, only by faith, uh, Romans 3.28, it is not referring simply to this faith of rational acceptance, but to inner faith. Luther observed that the Bible in fact mentions another kind of faith that is a gift of God and active in the region of the heart. Although Luther arrived at this conclusion, he did not proceed further. He did not finish exploring the subject by examining more closely the patristic understanding of inner faith. Now the Orthodox tradition does not even accept an analogy of faith because you cannot make an analogy by faith between teachings in the Bible and the truth about God. Why not? Because there is absolutely no similarity between God and creation. This is the reason why biblical concepts about God are concepts that can be set aside and are set aside during the experience of theosis. Before theosis, these concepts are clearly helpful, necessary, correct, and right, but only as guideposts towards God. The Bible is a guide to God, but the description of God in the Bible does not bear any similarity to God. Holy Scripture talks about God. It talks about the truth, but it is not the truth. It is a guide to the truth and the way who is Christ. The words in the Bible are simply symbols that contain certain concepts. These concepts lead us to God and direct us to Christ, but they are no more than thoroughly human concepts. So you cannot hope to theologize correctly simply because you have read the Bible and base your theology on the Bible. If you do this, you cannot avoid being a heretic because Holy Scripture can be corrected, correctly interpreted only when the experience of illumination or theosis accompanies the study or reading of the Bible. Without illumination or theosis, Holy Scripture cannot be interpreted correctly. You cannot become a surgeon just by reading books on surgery. You also have to take courses in medical schools and be trained in surgery by an experienced medical professor. In the same way, in any branch of the exact sciences, you need to be trained in order to be able to verify and confirm a theory on the basis of your training and experience. A theory is established as true by experimentation and empirical knowledge. In the same way, you cannot verify biblical truth unless you approach the Bible with the help of experts, that is, by means of people who have the same experience as the prophets or the apostles. These people are the church fathers and their experience has illumination and theosis or glorification as its cornerstone and foundation. Chapter 34 on Theosis There is a lot of orthodox literature available on theosis and some writers give the impression that theosis is an injection of divinity that man receives through the church's mysteries. Some people even believe that the mysteries of the church exist so that orthodox Christians can go and receive their divinity injections when they participate in the sacraments. 
In St. Simeon the New Theologian's Prayer Before Holy Communion, he writes that the body and blood of Christ deify and nourish me. For this reason, certain devout souls think that they receive an injection of divinity by communing of the Immaculate Mysteries. And since they have received their dosage of divinity, they also have their ticket to heaven securely in their pocket. But St. Simeon wrote these words, those words about himself. He was conveying his frequent post-communion experience of attaining a state where he participated in the uncreated grace of God. In other words, after Holy Communion, God granted him experiences of theosis. But do we attain such a state of union with God every time we receive Holy Communion? Can we claim to have participated in, in the divinity or the uncreated glorifying grace of God without knowingly having sensed that glorifying grace? Simply because we have communed of the Immaculate Mysteries? Unfortunately, devout souls in Greece who are now making these remarks about Theosis have driven us to such a pitiful state. But in the patristic tradition, Theosis is not a divinity vaccination, but the vision of God or glorification. When someone has reached a state of illumination, which means the Holy Spirit has entered him and is praying within him, then he has met the preconditions required in order to be led to divine vision. When God so wills, he leads him to divine vision or theosis, and then that person sees Christ in glory. Theosis is this vision of Christ and this vision of Christ alone. Orthodox Latin writers use the corresponding term glorificatio, which means glorification, to refer to this experience. This is why you will not run across the term theosis in the Latin Orthodox tradition. In the first epistle to the Corinthians, we encountered this term when St. Paul writes, if, if one member is glorified, all the members rejoice. Footnote 98, 1 Corinthians 12.26 Most English translations of the Bible mistranslate this verse as one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. In other words, uh, returning to the text, in other words, when one member of the parish is glorified, then all the members naturally rejoice with him by virtue of the bond of love. When a person is glorified, he automatically becomes a prophet. What St. Paul calls glorification, the patristic tradition refers to as theosis, the experience by which a Christian becomes a theologian. The term glorification can also be found in the Father's writings, but the more prevalent term is theosis, a term which theologically describes glorification. In order for man to see God, he must become God by grace and participate in God. No human being left to his own resources is, is able to see God, no matter how hard he tries. Only when God glorifies someone is that person who has become a God by grace able to see God by means of God. Only when someone is within the uncreated light, is made radiant by the uncreated light, and by grace becomes light, is it possible for that person to see the uncreated light. Footnote 99, on account of this experience, the prophet David and those who attain to theosis after him say, In thy light shall we see light. Returning to the text, when we say that man is glorified, it means that his entire body, in fact his entire being, is within the uncreated light. And since he is found within the light, he can see the light that surrounds him. 
but at the same time all his surroundings appear to him to be radiant and permeated by this light because this light is pervasive. It bathes, illumines, penetrates, and permeates all things. Someone who can see sees the light of divinity permeate all of creation. This is what is meant by the expression God is everywhere present, and the phrase from the angelic hymn and the divine liturgy, heaven and earth are full of thy glory. When heaven and earth are filled with God's glory or light, this fullness is called kriasis or a mingling. The ruling power of God is none other than this glory or light of God, a rain that is uncreated and everywhere present. Although everyone is found within this rain, everyone does not participate in it. Only those who experience illumination or theosis partake of this rain during those experiences. So when someone meets the preconditions required for a pure heart, he has this glory or rain revealed to him. During an experience of illumination, the light of the glory of God is an internal light, while during an experience of theosis, the bodily eyes also take part in its vision. The coming of the reign of God is none other than this revelation of God's glory to man. So during an experience of theosis, you can see what is already present, surrounding you and within you. This light is simply revealed to you so that you might know it. In this way, you know what you believe because you have seen it. You know, you now know that the uncreated glory of God can mingle with God's creation. Chapter 35, The Created, the Uncreated, and the Incarnation Now there is no similarity whatsoever between this uncreated glory of God and creation. The fathers say that although we do not know God's essence, we do know some, and only some, of God's energies. When they say this, however, they are not using the verb to know in the standard sense of the word. They are not making an analogy or contrast. When we Orthodox say that we know the energy of God, this does not imply that our knowledge of God's energy is like our knowledge of the energy of created things. For example, our knowledge of God's glory is not like the knowledge of nature's energies. For example, nuclear energy, thermal energy, solar energy, kinetic energy, the force of gravity, and so forth. Studied by biologists, physicists, astronomers, archaeologists, and others, because when we say we know something in the sciences, it means that we have knowledge about some object or phenomenon that we can describe. The known object is describable. We know its description and are able to describe it. But what enables us to describe it? Its resemblance to another object that we already know. A similarity exists between the object we want to describe and something else. Another aspect of knowledge is difference. Similarity and difference form the basis of human-created knowledge. When similarity and difference are present, an object can be described. Similarity and difference make an object susceptible to description and classification according to genus, species, etc. These categories of similarity and difference are found are the foundations of human knowledge. But according to Aristotle's logic, the law of contradiction also applies in the sphere of human knowledge. This law states that it is impossible for a thing to be simultaneously its opposite. For example, it is impossible for an object to be totally white and totally black at the same time. It will either be white or it will be black. In a similar way, 
It is impossible for an object to be simultaneously big and small, heavy and light, existent and non-existent, good and bad, and so on. But the fathers do not observe this law of Aristotle if they are speaking about God. Although this law is invalid in patristic theology, the heretics both accepted it and used it. But why don't the fathers observe Aristotle's law of contradiction, this axiom from Aristotle's logic? Because there is no similarity whatsoever between the created and the uncreated, and since no similarity whatsoever exists, no description of the uncreated whatsoever can be made. Furthermore, since there is no similarity, there also cannot be any difference. Created things are relatively similar and relatively different. But what makes up this similarity among created things? First of all, they are similar in substance. All created and material things are composed of the same essence or universal substance, including all visible and material substances such as the earth, clouds, mist, air, stars, stones, plants, animals, as well as the various forms of energy such as light, heat, and so forth. Einstein proved this with his law of mass energy equivalence. In philosophy, the common name for this universal substance is matter. It is the dust, clay, and earth mentioned in theological texts. Secondly, material and visible things are similar in structure. All material bodies are made up of atoms, and all atoms resemble each other to a certain degree. So from this point of view, all material things are relatively similar. What makes material things different is the form of the universal substance and the structure of the atoms. That is, two objects may differ because one is in the form of energy and the other is in its condensed state as matter or because of differences in the composition of individual atoms and their collective arrangement within a lattice structure. The same phenomenon is observed in the cells of living organisms. They are also relatively similar and relatively different. Irrational living organisms, plants and animals, and human beings are relatively similar insofar as they are structurally and materially made up of the same basic building blocks, that is, atoms and cells. They differ insofar as humans, by nature, have an immortal soul formed in the image of God and capable of noetic activity, while other living beings do not. Angels and human beings are relatively similar in terms of immortality, the ability to reason, to be depicted, to be self-determining, and so forth. Yet they differ in terms of glory, immateriality, and the like. Angels and demons are relatively similar in nature, but differ in glory. Angels are glorified by grace, whereas demons are deprived of divine glory. Now God and creation have absolutely no similarity. This means that when we say that the uncreated differs from the created, we are not using the concept of difference the way we would in science or philosophy speaking about relative differences. We are talking about an absolute difference. Footnote 103. Christ is the one bridge between the created and the uncreated, as well as the one point that unites them both. In his person, divine nature is united with human nature without change, separation, or division. More, more precisely, divine nature assumed human nature and the hypostasis or hypostasis of the word. This enables man in the image of God and potentially in his likeness to actively become a person through his life in the church and union with Christ. 
Of course, man is potentially a person from birth, but he must activate this hypostatic principle by the power of Christ. He becomes a person by his communion with God. The ascetic and sacramental life activates the hypostatic principle in man. End of quote from Metropolitan Herotheus Vlachos. May his blessing be upon us from the book of the person in the Orthodox tradition. Returning to the text, we are talking about an absolute difference. This is why the fathers went so far as to say, if created things are beings, then God is a non-being. And if God is a being, then created things are non-beings. And again we repeat that this is because there is absolutely no similarity between the created and the uncreated, but since there is no similarity whatsoever between God and creation, this means that even the Bible cannot be used on its own as a bridge to God. The Bible uses sayings in order to express concepts, and all the concepts that it uses are taken without exception from aspects of creation that can be all, all be described. There is not even one created thing that is indescribable. All the names for God in Holy Scripture are taken from human experience. All these names are descriptions. But when you have an experience of theosis, you discover that God is anonymous because you cannot find a single human or angelic name that can be properly attributed to God. You cannot even find a single human or angelic concept that can be attributed to his existence or being because God does not resemble anything that we know. This is why all names and concepts are set aside in the presence of the vision of God. Footnote number 104. In regard to the names which we apply to God, these reveal his energies which descend to us, yet do not draw us closer to his essence, which is inaccessible. For St. Gregory of Nyssa, every concept relative to God is a a simulacrum, a false likeness, an idol. The concepts which we form in accordance with the judgments and understanding which are natural to us, basing ourselves on an intelligible representation, create idols of God instead of revealing to us God himself. There is only one name by which the divine nature can be expressed, the wonder which seizes the soul when it thinks of God. End of footnote quote from Vladimir Lossky, The Mystical Theology of the Eastern Church. Turning to the text. St. Dionysius the Areopagite has written a very beautiful passage that is cited by the Fathers. It tells us that in the final analysis, God is neither unity nor trinity. Footnote number 105. It is not something, neither is it any kind of degree, it is not mind, it is not soul, it is not moved, nor again does it remain still. It is neither in space nor in time. It is in itself of one kind, or rather without kind, being before all kind, before movement, before stillness, for all these things concern being and make it many. When we make affirmations and negations about things which are inferior to it, we affirm and deny nothing about the cause itself which, being wholly apart from all these things, is above all affirmation, as the supremacy of him who, being in his simplicity freed from all things and beyond everything, is above all denial. Again, Vladimir Lossky, quoting uh, 
St. Dionysius the Areopagite and the mystical theology of the Eastern Church. Returning to the text, it tells us that in the final analysis God is neither unity nor trinity because God does not correspond to anything the human mind conceives or could possibly conceive. For example, we say that there is one God. Of course, when we say the word one, we visualize a number or a unit. We imagine that there is one God just like any isolated individual is one person. The same thing happens when we say that God is three persons, but God is not three anything. He is not three subjects. He is not three objects. He is not one subject, and he is not one object. Whenever we think, we always think in terms of a subject and an object. The subject is what observes, while the object is what is observed. But when we say that the Father loves the Son, we are not dealing with a subject-object relationship, as St. Augustine mistakenly thought. In this case, the Father is not the subject or the one who loves, and the Son is not the object or the one who is loved. Augustine called God love that loves itself, and used this subject-object relationship in order to construct a theology of the Holy Trinity. But since God is neither a subject nor an object, he cannot be constructed as the subject of his love or the object of his love. So in God there are not three persons like three persons in a family. Now there are certain Orthodox theologians of Russian descent who claim that God is a personal God. They claim that God is not the God of philosophy, a construction of human philosophical thought, but that he is a personal God. Western tradition makes similar statements. But in patristic tradition, God is not a personal God. In fact, God is not even God. God does not correspond to anything that we can conceive or would be able to conceive. The relationship between God and man is not a personal relationship, and it is also not a subject-object relationship. So when we speak about a personal relationship between God and man, we are making a mistake. That kind of relationship between God and human beings does not exist. What we are talking about now has bearing on another error that some people make when they speak about a communion of persons and try to develop a theology based on a communion of persons using the relations between the persons and the Trinity as a model. The relations between God and man are not like the relations between fellow human beings. Why? Because we are not on the same level or in the same business with God. What we have just said holds true until the Incarnation. However, after the incarnation of God the Word, we can have a personal relationship with God by means of and on account of the incarnation. But this relationship is with God as the God-man, the Anthropos, as the Son of God and the Son of Man. Since God became man, the incarnation brought about a special relationship between God and man or Christ and man, a relationship that is nevertheless non-existent when we consider the Holy Trinity as a whole. We do not have a relationship with the Holy Trinity or with the uncreated divinity that is like our relationship with Christ. In other words, our relationship with the Father or with the Holy Spirit is not like our relationship with Christ. Only with Christ do we have a personal relationship. The Holy Trinity came into personal contact with man only through the Incarnation, only through Christ. This relationship did not exist before the Incarnation because we did not have a relationship with God as we do with other people 
before the Incarnation. Being uncreated, God is accordingly not a human being. That is, in his uncreatedness, God neither is a human being nor resembles a human being. So when God became man, he did not become something that he already resembled. Incarnation does not mean that God assumed a nature that was somehow similar to his own. There is absolutely no similarity whatsoever between human nature and divine nature. This is the reason why the fathers stress that man is not the image of God. Only the Word or Son is the exact image of God. The Word is the image of the Father. And since the Word is the image of the Father, Christ as the Word is also the image of the Father. But since there is an interchange of properties, footnote number 108, Camucatio idiomatum Latin or apodosis idiomatum in Greek is the theological consequence of the union of the two natures in the person of Christ. When the word became flesh, the flesh also became word. In the person of Christ, human nature remains human, but is penetrated by divine nature. End of footnote. But since there is an interchange of properties between the two natures in Christ, the incarnate Word, who is also human, the very humanity of Christ is also the image of the Father. So the human nature of Christ is the image of the Father on account of the Incarnation. Man is not the image of God. Although some people certainly refer to man as the image of God, it is improper to do so. Literally, man is fashioned in the image of God but he is not the image of God. Footnote number 109, Christ is the image of God and man is the image of Christ. In other words, man is the image of the image, that of Christ. Returning to the text, although the Bible relates that in the image of God created he him, precisely what is meant by this verse was fully revealed only in the Incarnation. Footnote 110. In other words, in the Incarnation it was finally revealed that man had been created in the image of Christ, his chronologically subsequent prototype. Returning to the text. What is meant by this verse was fully revealed only in the Incarnation because from the very beginning human destiny was to become like Christ, to become God by grace, and to attain the state of being in the likeness. A person actively become, becomes in the image when he becomes like Christ in compassion. So when someone manages to imitate Christ, he also begins to become an image of the Father by grace as he partakes of the glory of Christ. In this way, someone who attains to a state of theosis, in other words, a state of being in the likeness of Christ, becomes Christ by grace and God by grace. That is when he becomes like Christ and differs from Christ only in terms of nature. Notwithstanding, Christ is God by nature, not by grace. When the Word became flesh, he became human by nature. The Word did not become human by grace. He became human by nature. The Incarnation does not imply a mere adoption of human nature. God the Father did not adopt a human being through the Incarnation in order to dwell within him and in so doing to make that human being God. Rather, through the Incarnation, 
the very Word and Son of God became human by nature. In this way, divine and human natures were united in the person of Christ. The divine nature of the Word and the human nature coexist in the person of Christ in a union without confusion, without alteration, and without division. Christ is not merely a man. He is the God-man, the Anthropos. He is simultaneously both God and man with the distinct properties of both natures. When we look upon Christ, we are gazing at the incarnate Son of God. After the incarnation, the Word and Son of God is united once and for all with human nature in the person of Christ. Footnote number 111. St. Gregory the Theologian said in his Discourse on the Nativity of Christ, quote, He came forth then as God with that which he had assumed, one person and two natures, flesh and spirit, of which the latter deified the former. Although the apostles were eyewitnesses and servants of the word, they did not recognize that the human nature he assumed was deified. And if they were scandalized by the human and blameless passions that they, they saw him experience, how much more were most people unable to recognize this theosis? When the Lord was transfigured, his countenance shone like the sun and his garments became as white as light. In this way, the inward theosis of his human nature by the hypostatic union of God the Word could be recognized by the outpouring of divine rays. Hence, John from Damascus celebrates the feast with the following words, The flesh is simultaneously glorified by being brought from non-being into being, while the glory of the divinity becomes the glory of the humanity, for both are one in Christ who is consubstantial with the Father and of one nature with the human race. Although his holy body always participated in and was made rich by divine glory by virtue of the ultimate hypostatic union with the glory of the indivisible divinity, so that the glory of the Word and the glory of the flesh were one, nevertheless this glory was not obvious in the appearance of his body for those who were not capable of beholding it. It is not that he transfigured what he had not assumed or, or, or transformed, but what appeared to his familiar disciples was transfigured. What did the human nature of the Lord enjoy on account of this divine work? By communion, his human nature directly enjoyed the advantages and the magnificence of the divinity, so that his human nature became life-giving, all-powerful, all-knowing. We must, we must know that although the nature hypostatically united to God the Word was deified, it nevertheless remained unchanged and did not lose its natural characteristics. That is, being subject to suffering, corruption, mortality, and the other natural and so-called blameless passions. It continued to have these characteristics even after its theosis, so that first of all, they would make Christ's incarnation believable, and people would not consider it to have been imaginary. Secondly, so that by these sufferings the Lord would heal what we suffer, irradiate the irrational passions by the natural ones, and simply so that he might be victorious as a man and grant the victory to us, his relatives who share his human nature. End of quote from St. Nicodemus the Hagiorite, The Way of the Feasts. Returning to the text, now, when someone attains to a state of illumination, he becomes, by God, a temple of the Holy Spirit. When he attains to a state of theosis, he becomes God by grace, and like Christ by grace, but never by nature. 
This is why the union between all other human beings and God is not hypostatic as, as it is in the case of Christ. There is only one hypostatic union between God and man, and that takes place in the person of Christ through the union of the Son and Word of God with human nature. Man is united only with the energy or grace of God. Man is never united with the essence of God or with the hypostasis of the Word. He is only united with the human nature of Christ during Holy Communion. In other words, man is united with the deified, resurrected, and glorified human nature of Christ, and thereby he is united with the uncreated energy of the human nature of Christ. Footnote 112, on account of the hypostatic union with God, the word human nature is the fount of uncreated glory. In other words, man is united with the deified, returning to the text, the deified, resurrected, and glorified human nature of Christ, and thereby he is united with the uncreated energy of the human nature of Christ, or uncreated divine grace. This grace from Christ's humanity is what saves, resurrects, and heals man, body, and soul. Chapter 36 Christ in the Old and New Testament now the Apostle Paul calls Christ the Lord of glory in the New Testament. But what do you find when you search through the Old Testament in order to discover who the Old Testament writers call the Lord of glory? In Jewish tradition, the Lord of glory is the angel of glory who appears to the Old Testament prophets. When God reveals himself to the prophets, he does so by means of this angel or Lord of glory. St. Paul teaches that this Lord of glory is the incarnate word who was crucified by the Jews. Footnote number 113, quote, which none of the princes of this world knew, for had they known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. From 1 Corinthians 2, verse 8. Returning to the text. Now what happens in the New Testament is like what happened earlier in the Old Testament. The Old Testament prophets saw the angel of glory during an experience of theosis in which God would reveal himself to the prophet by means of this angel who is the pre-incarnate word and son. After the incarnation, the New Testament saints saw Christ who was present in precisely the same way in every revelation and in every experience of theosis. St. Paul describes this experience as something that is revealed to the apostles and to the prophets of the New Testament in that generation and which had never happened to anyone else before them. Footnote 114 How that by revelation he made known unto me the mystery, as I wrote afore in few words, whereby when you read ye may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known unto the sons of men, as it is now revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. End of quote from Ephesians chapter 3, verses 3 through 5. Returning to the text. For St. Paul, God's revelation in the New Testament after the resurrection of Christ was none other than the revelation of Christ in glory which took place when Christ revealed himself. The Old Testament Jewish tradition, the New Testament Christian tradition, and the tradition of the Holy Church Fathers also revolve around this experience of God's revelation 
as the pre-incarnate angel of glory in the Old Testament or as Christ in glory in the New Testament. And as evidence for this statement, I can direct you to the example of one of the saints within the patristic tradition who offers his own personal testimony to this fact. This saint is St. Gregory the Theologian, and his testimony is his own experience of theosis. In his struggle against the Eunomians, the Apostles, and the Old Testament prophets were not the only witnesses he called upon to make this his case. He also invoked his own personal experience of theosis as evidence. Chapter 37 Our Knowledge of the Holy Trinity Now there are certain distinctions that arise from the experience of theosis. For example, how do we know about the distinction between the persons in the Holy Trinity? How do we know that there are three lights and that these three lights are one light? The Church Fathers did not take the Bible as their starting point for making theological statements, but in order to make sense of the Bible they did begin with their own experience of theosis. This is why not only do we find in the Fathers arguments an appeal to the authority of Holy Scripture, but we also find an appeal to the authority of their own personal experience of theosis, particularly when they were vehemently attacked the heretic, attacking the heretics. So by personal experience, the fathers knew full well that God is light. But God is not just light, he is also darkness. Of course, this darkness is not like created darkness that results from an absence of light. Created darkness does not have its own substance, because we repeat, there is no similarity whatsoever between God and creation. So where did the fathers learn that God is not only light but also darkness? On the one hand, they learned this naturally from the Bible. The Old Testament prophets in the entire Jewish tradition taught that there is no similarity whatsoever between God and creation. But on the other hand, they also learned this by their own experience. Since they themselves beheld God and knew God, they were able to make sense out of the earlier writings of the prophets and the saints of the church on this subject. Moreover, when the fathers read about the prophets seeing God, the fathers immediately recognized and knew in their hearts that they had also seen what the prophets were striving to describe. When the prophets spoke about God's revelations to them, they mentioned that in their experience, an angel of God revealed himself, whom they called Yahweh, the Lord of glory, the angel of great counsel, and so forth. This angel, who is who was called God or Yahweh in the Old Testament, was always present in God's revelations to the prophets. God never, never revealed himself in the Old Testament without being revealed by means of this angel or Yahweh. This means that we already have clear references in the Old Testament to two persons of the Holy Trinity. They are God the Father and the angel, the son. This is a fundamental teaching for all the church fathers, East and West, Greek-speaking and Latin-speaking. Augustine was the only exception. All the other Latin-speaking church fathers belong to the same tradition. Examples include all those Western church fathers who wrote in Latin about the dogmas of the Holy Trinity. such as Cyprian of Carthage and Hilaron, among others, as well as the ecclesiastical writers Tertullian and Novatus. Augustine was a unique ex exception. 
Now, what do we know about the Holy Trinity from what personal experience from the personal experience of the church fathers? We know that God we know that the Holy Trinity is light, 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 one light. God is simultaneously three lights and one light. In the Creed we confess I believe in one God and in one Lord Jesus Christ, light of light, and so forth. So the word is light of light and God of God. This teaching about the Holy Trinity is not simply a teaching from the Bible because it also emerges from the experience of theosis during which the scriptural teaching on the Holy Trinity is verified since it coincides with the personal experience of the Church Fathers. During an experience of theosis, the Fathers are encompassed by light and see light by means of light. In this way, any given Holy Father sees light by means of light. In other words, when he is in the Holy Spirit, he sees the Father by means of the Word. In the light of the Holy Spirit, he sees the light by means of the light. This epistem epistemologically epistemological experience is repeated in the life of the Church in every age and every generation. It is our source of knowledge about the existence of three lights that are one light and a verification of that knowledge. One of these three lights wells forth from Christ's human nature, which is more glorious than the sun. This is what is meant by God, and these are the very limits and bounds of human knowledge. However, when we talk about the doctrine of the Holy Trinity, we use words and concepts, even though all our concepts are borrowed from human experience. So we are inevitably talking about things that are created. For example, when we say the word light, we are not able to form an image of the uncreated light in our mind or invent a concept for it. Why not? Because if we have the experience, if we have not experienced the uncreated light, an image of the sun's created light will come to mind when we say the light, when we say the word light instead of an image of the uncreated light. What do we mean when we use the expression the uncreated light? We intend to signify a light that is not created. And although we seem to be talking about the uncreated light, merely uttering the word light automatically forms an image of created light in our imagination because that is the image we have stored in our memory. So our thoughts then turn to an image of sunlight, electrical light, the light of a fire, and some other source of light. Next, we think of darkness and contrast it with the uncreated light. And we say that the uncreated light is not darkness but light. And so we find ourselves again associated the, associating the uncreated light with the created light that enables us to see. But all these speculations about the uncreated light do not have anything to do with the reality of the uncreated light. They are no more than a figment of our imagination. In this way, we, we remain in the final analysis forever entrapped in our knowledge and experience of created light. If two, if two New Testament prophets from the age of St. Paul were to run into each other and to speak about the uncreated light, each prophet would be able to understand what the other was trying to say because they speak a common language. The same would hold true of two saints today who share the same experience of having seen the uncreated light. But when we talk about the uncreated light, we are not speaking from our own experience or about our own experience. We are talking about the experiences of others who have seen the uncreated light. Astronomers who have looked through a telescope at a star that is invisible to the naked eye find themselves in the same situation. They can also speak about their common experience using the same language. But when we read about this star in their books without having any illustrations, 
Is it the same thing as them seeing the star? Having personal experience of a phenomenon and consequently being able to talk about it are quite different from merely having read about it. According to this scenario, what is the Bible? How is it different from a book on astronomy? An astronomer is a person who looks at the stars. He observes them and studies them, but someone who merely reads about the stars is no astronomer. So if I just read the Bible and the writings of the Church Fathers and even other books on Orthodox theology, does this mean that I am a theologian? Who fully comprehends the Holy Scripture and the writings of the Fathers? Is it someone who simply reads these texts, or is it someone who has already personally experienced what these writings describe, mention, and analyze? Naturally, it is the person who also has experience in the Holy Spirit. In this way, the Fathers maintain that someone who simply reads the Bible or the writings and afterwards speaks about what he has read is simply making theological statements. But is such a person literally a theologian? Of course not. Chapter 38 The Holy Scripture Through the Eyes of Western Theology If someone wants to discover the correct interpretation for a medical problem, whom will he ask, a medical student or a medical school professor? He will ask a medical school professor. The same holds true for theology, but the stages of theology are different. In the Old Testament, we have the prophets. But just who are these prophets? Augustinian and medieval Latin tradition claimed that God spoke to the Old Testament prophets and that the prophets heard these, the words spoken by God. This interpretation can be found in Western theology even today, since Western theologians still identify a prophet with someone who has received a message from God. But in the Jewish tradition, a prophet is someone who has been glorified. He is someone who has seen the glory of the angel or to put it differently, he has seen the angel in glory. In particular, Moses had such an experience when he beheld the burning bush that was not consumed. During the experience at the bush, God the Father was present as light. The Holy Spirit was present as fire. And the Son, or the Word, was present as the light by means of which Moses could see the light. One, uh, footnote 115, Exodus 3, verses 2 through 4. And the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush burned with fire, and the, but the bush was not consumed. And Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush is not burnt. And when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called unto him out of the midst of the bush. Translator's note. Returning to the text. This is the patristic interpretation for this revelation of God, an interpretation that affirms that the Holy Trinity was present at the burning bush. So Moses was within a fire that did not burn. This fire did not consume the bush and the flames did not devour it. The bush remained intact. This clearly indicates that we are not dealing with a created fire, because if the fire were created, the bush would not, the bush would have been utterly consumed. The only other possibility would be that some kind of miracle took place. If you do not accept the Orthodox teaching on theosis, you can easily reach such a conclusion and end up filling your pockets with all the miracles that they will find, that you will find reading the Old Testament. 
But in the Orthodox tradition, we do not view the phenomenon of the unconsumed burning bush as some kind of miracle. It was simply the revelation of God's glory. But for Augustine and those like him, the burning bush was a big miracle. After all, God did not let the fire burn up the bush. If you read the Old Testament through Western eyes, you will find it jam-packed with miracles. But if you read it through patristic eyes, you will not find such miracles. Instead, you will simply find revelations of God's glory and descriptions of these revelations. We also run across the same kind of misinterpretations in comparable New Testament passages. If someone does not understand the experience of theosis and is not within the patristic tradition, which is the heir to the Jewish tradition and holds certain keys to the interpretation of Holy Scripture, he will not be able to interpret correctly or properly what he reads in the Bible. Chapter 40, Patristic Distinctions and the Holy Trinity. The patristic distinction between essence and energy as well as the distinction between the three divine hypostases is based exclusively on the experience of theosis. In the Old Testament, the experience of the prophets is the source of the distinction between God, the angel, and the spirit. In the New Testament, the experience of theosis in connection with the incarnation gives rise to the distinction between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Since the apostles and the fathers had the same experience that the prophets did, the apostles and the fathers were able to verify the truth of the expression, the light in the light through the light. In the New Testament, the Father is not incarnate and the Holy Spirit is not incarnate. The experience of theosis confirms that only one light is incarnate and that light is the Word. And that light is the Word. So there is a union between Christ's human nature and the uncreated, a union that is unique. It does not include all three lights, but only involves one light. The Fathers teach that the hypostasis characterized by the phrase in the light is not incarnate. Only the hypostasis characterized by the phrase through the light is incarnate. After the incarnation, the phrase through the light becomes synonymous with the phrase through Christ's human nature. Through the light of Christ, we see the fount of light, the Father in the light of the Holy Spirit. At this point, the phrase through the light is directly linked to the phrase in Christ's human nature. Through Christ's human nature, through the incarnate word, we see the Father in the Holy Spirit. The experience of theosis enables someone to interpret correctly what is portrayed in the Bible. Of course, this does not mean that there are no other interpretations of the Bible because other interpretations of the Bible do exist. There are the interpretations by heretics like the Arians, the Eunomians, the modalistic monarchians, the hmm, dynamic monarchians, the Tropicici, the Nestorians, and others. But why are all of these other interpretations wrong, and why is the Orthodox interpretation the only right interpretation? Why should a scholar come to the conclusion that only Orthodox Christians correctly interpret Scripture? What compels me to conclude that a heretic does not correctly interpret Scripture if I approach this question scientifically? Naturally, modern Orthodox theologians are in absolutely no position to enter this discussion when they start talking about the Church's bishops gathering together at an ecumenical council 
and passing judgment infallibly because these bishops are members of an ecumenical council and because they have received from God the Holy Spirit and a canonical ordination. Such theology has no place in this discussion because the Holy Spirit does not come and illumine some bishop in this way merely because his consecration was canonical or because he joins other bishops in a council, even an ecumenical council. The Holy Spirit does not provide illumination merely because the church has a need or because all the members of the church say a prayer together. There are other substantial preconditions that must also be met. In other words, the bishop must already be in a state of illumination. Next, the Roman Catholics come along and harp on their favorite theme, saying, If the Pope passes judgment on an issue, his decision is infallible. It is as though the Holy Spirit's presence in the Church turns the Church into a place for settling disputes, with the Holy Spirit playing the role of arbitrator between theologians, so that the Church can decide which theologian is right or which theology is correct by means of some kind of arbitration. But is this the work of the Holy Spirit? Is this the way the Church determines what is true? Chapter 41, The Distinction Between the Essence and the Energy of God Footnote number 117, the orthodox theological term energy should not be confused with the standard meaning of the word as power or capacity for doing work, e.g. electrical or nuclear energy. It also has no relation to the use of the word energy by those in the New Age movement when they speak about energy contained in crystals that can transform and heal the human consciousness. Energia is a term used by Aristotle to mean action, operation, and energy. In the New Testament, the term meant exclusively action and activity. During the patristic period, the term was used to describe God's activity, working, influence, and active force. St. John of Damascus dedicates a chapter to the subject of the many connotations suggested by the term energia in his exact exposition of the Orthodox faith. He notes that every nature has a corresponding force and activity that are called energy. The term energia includes natural responses arising from nature, that is, hunger and thirst, are natural energies of human nature, activities appropriate to a nature, that is, eating and drinking are natural energies of human nature, and the result of the force or activity. An energy reveals that a life is voluntary, rational, and independent. End of footnote and translator's note. Returning to the text, which is chapter 41, the distinction between the essence and energy of God. To begin, in Orthodox tradition, we talk about the theological distinction between essence and energy. And although we contrast God's energy with his essence, it is understood that the energy is the natural energy of the essence. But this natural energy of God's essence does not differ from God's essence and is not separated from it. The essence and the energy of the essence are not divergent realities. Nevertheless, some of our theologians talk about the energy of God as though it were different from the essence of God. They say that the essence of God is one thing, but that the energy of the essence is something else altogether. When you read the Fathers, you really, you really can get the impression that the essence and the energy of God are two different things. But the fathers express themselves in this way only in order to, to, to stress the distinction in God between essence and energy. 
But what these theologians fail to notice is that the fathers teach that the energy of God is the natural energy of God's essence. In other words, this energy is an essential energy. The essence of God has a natural energy whose existence arises from the existence of the essence. The fathers do speak about this natural energy of the essence. The other point that the fathers stress is that this natural energy of God's essence is utterly simple, even as God's essence is utterly simple. Nevertheless, this simple energy is indivisibly divided among individual creatures. But what does this mean? If we apply Aristotle's law of contradiction, it is nonsense. After all, does it make any sense to say that something is indivisibly divided among individual creatures? What does it mean for an energy to be separated into parts without being parted? How can a thing be plural and singular at the same time? Yet, this simple energy really is indivisibly divided among individual creatures. The fathers do make this statement. St. Gregory the Theologian says it. In fact, this very expression can be also found in the writings of St. John of Damascus and St. Gregory Palamas. They all maintain that the simple energy is multiplied. How? Without being multiplied. Where? Through, throughout many creatures. But what does this mean? It means that when a prophet is in a state of theosis, he is in contact with God and can see that this simple energy of God is present throughout all of creation. God's energy is one, but it has many resultant energies. And this one energy is in each distinct energy. And within each of these energies, all of God is present. When God created the world, he did not create the world through his essence, but through his energy and at will. So there is a union between God's uncreated energy and creation. Although this energy of God is quite simple, we can perceive differences between God's creative energy, his providential, preserving energy, his purifying energy, his illumining, illumining energy, and his glorifying energy. These distinct forms of the one self-same energy of God are not identical. If they were identical, then all of creation would partake, for example, of God's glorifying energy. But what would that mean? It would mean that all of creation would see God. But how do we know that these energies are not identical? The Church knows full well on the basis of her experience of divine grace that God's illumining energy and his glorifying energy are not the same. How do we know that they are not the same? We know this from the fact that some people, the saints, have reached a state of theosis while others have not. So being indivisibly divided among individual creatures does not mean that something big is divided and becomes small. It does not mean that God is diminished. Chapter 42 on the mystery of the divine Eucharist. Indivisible division is also at the very core of the mystery of the divine Eucharist as well. After all, what is the prayer that the priests read after the consecration of the precious gifts? Don't they say, Broken is the bread of life, which being broken, yet is not divided, being ever eaten, never is consumed. Footnote 118 Based on the standard form of this prayer from the liturgy of St. John Chrysostom, uh, 
quote, broken and divided is the Lamb of God, which being broken yet is not divided, being ever eaten, never is consumed, but sanctifieth them that partake thereof, end of quote. Returning to the text. But what does this mean? Since Christ's human nature also shares in the New Testament mystery of God's presence, Christ's human nature is now the means by which God is present in our midst and manifests himself to us. Now even his human nature is indivisibly divided among individual creatures. In the same way, we know from the experience of theosis that one simple energy of God is indivisibly divided among individual creatures. We also know that the Incarnation is the source for what takes place during the Divine Eucharist. After the Lord's Resurrection, we no longer know Christ according to the flesh. We only know the glorified Christ or the Christ or Christ in His glory. But this does not mean that Christ does not have flesh. Christ does have flesh and a complete human nature which now after His ascension has been glorified. Footnote 119, note that glorification and theosis are synonymous. Returning to the text. Now when we commune of the Lord's body and blood, we do not receive only a piece of Christ who is then within us, but each communicant receives Christ in his entirety. But this does not mean that there are many Christs. There is only one Christ, and he dwells in his entirety within every believer who has consumed of the Immaculate Mysteries. When the priest cuts into pieces the lamb on the holy patent, Christ is not cut into pieces. He is multiplied without being multiplied among many. In other words, Christ in his entirety is in every pearl or in every piece of divine bread. This is the mystery of God's presence to man. Now this same mystery was also at work before Christ assumed flesh when he appeared to the Old Testament prophet. While the word or the angel was manifesting himself to the prophet, he was at that very moment simultaneously present throughout the rest of creation as well. The angel or God was present with both the prophet and the rest of creation at the same time. Chapter 43 on God's presence and absence. God is not limited in any way whatsoever. This is why the Father stressed that God the Father is everywhere present through his energies. Since the Word and human nature are united by virtue of the hypostatic union, footnote number 120, referring to the hypostatic union, St. John Cassian writes, quote, in virtue of the ineffable unity of the mystery by which man was joined to God, there is no separation between Christ and the Word. From the book of the conferences specifically book book 4 chapter 5 returning to the text Christ being the word is also everywhere present through his energies and although Christ is as the word and logos absent from the world in terms of his divine nature his human nature is everywhere present in terms of its nature God or the Holy Trinity is by nature absent from the world because God is not connected to the world through his essence. God's dealings with the world are solely at will through his energies. Only Christ's human nature, which is everywhere present, is connected in terms of its nature to the world. Christ's divine nature, however, does not have this connection. 
These distinctions form the Orthodox Christian teaching on God's essence and energy. This teaching is really quite simple. Its foundation is the very experience of theosis itself. No philosophy whatsoever slips in here. The Church Fathers are not making these distinctions on the basis of philosophical reflection because they know by their own experience, their own personal experience, that during the experience of theosis, the glorified believer is united with God through God's energy. But Christ's hypostatic union with God, with God the Word is qualitatively different from our union with God. Christ is not united with the Word and Logos through God's energy or simply by the will of God. Christ's human nature is united with the Word and Logos by nature. Chapter 44 On the Mystery of the Holy Trinity While a human being experiences theosis when he shares in or partakes of God's energy, the theosis of Christ's human nature arises from its union, without change or alteration, with God's essence. A human saint is able to see God's energy, but Christ can see or know God's essence. Because in the person of Christ, there is a hypostatic union between the Logos, the Word, and Christ's human nature. So, when a person partakes of the glory or energy of God, he knows only what God reveals to him and as much as God reveals to him. If someone were to partake of God's essence during an experience of theosis, then he would acquire all the knowledge that the Holy Trinity possesses. But the person who has experienced theosis knows that he does not have all the knowledge held by the Holy Trinity. This is why it is considered blasphemy to say that man partakes of God's essence. Man is utterly incapable of partaking of the essence of God. Only the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit possess the divine essence. Only God knows the essence of God. The Father knows His essence. The Son knows His essence. And the Holy Spirit knows His essence. So the knowledge of God's essence is the exclusive possession of the three persons of the Holy Trinity. No human being can have this knowledge as a possession because whatever a person knows about God is known solely from the revelation during the experience of theosis. But this knowledge gained from the experience of theosis is not really knowledge because human knowledge is based on similarity and difference. But in this case, no similarity can be found between the created and the uncreated. Therefore, this knowledge about God is not really knowledge. That's why this knowledge gained from the experience of theosis is also called unknowing. Another reason why it is called unknowing is that the person who is accounted worthy to experience theosis goes beyond the limits of human existence. But how does he transcend himself? During an experience of theosis, a person leaves behind everything that he has known until that time, enters the realm of the uncreated, where he does not recognize anything at all, and knows God by means of God. God himself is the medium for conveying knowledge. Then that person knows the Father and the Holy Spirit by means of the Word and Logos. This is why Christ said, He who has seen me has seen the Father. John 14.9 This refers to the fact that a person can know God only by means of God. After the Incarnation, a person can know God only by means of Christ. Now, man's reason and noose noetic energy and sensitivity, as well as his senses and body, all share in this knowledge. 
man in his entirety participates. Man in his entirety experiences theosis. It is not just the soul that experiences theosis. The body experiences it as well and for that reason becomes fragrant because in the experience of theosis all of man participates and all of man is able to see. But what does he see? This, that is the question. What does he see? He does not see any color. He does not see any form. He does not see depth. He does not see size. He does not see light. He does not see darkness. He does not see anything that resembles what is encountered in man's life and work, with one exception. He sees the glorified human nature of Christ at the center of this revelation. And in seeing Christ, he also sees the Father in the Holy Spirit. Now the three persons of the Holy Trinity are connected through their mutual indwelling or permeation. This is the one kind of connection. Another kind of connection characterizes the union between Christ's human nature and the Word. Yet a third kind of connection is observed in the union of the glorified believer with God. These last two connections in particular are quite different from one another in terms of what a human being in a state of theosis experiences because that person who is united with God the Father by means of Christ's human nature discovers that we human beings participate in the uncreated divinity differently from the way Christ's human nature does, and that there is yet another kind of relationship between the persons of the Holy Trinity. So the fathers made the above distinctions so that this spiritual experience and reality could be correctly sorted out and classified. But what was their ulterior, ulterior motive? They certainly did not make these distinctions in order to have a better understanding of some mystery, but they did so in order to fight against the heretics who had utterly misinterpreted the nature of this reality. The fathers did not write their works and use such special terminology so that any particular dogma would become comprehensible, because the goal of dogma is not for it to be understood, but for it to be set aside. Dogma is set aside when the believer is united with the very mystery that the dogma tries to put into words and that can never be made intellectually comprehensible anyway. Once there is union with the mystery itself, the dogma is set aside. Union with the mystery, however, does not mean that the mystery is set aside. The mystery remains. When a believer is united with the mystery of the Holy Trinity, he is united with someone who eludes every human concept. Because when a believer is in a state of theosis, has a vision or an experience of the mystery, he is confronted with something indescribable. Not only are the divine hypostases indescribable, but even the divine energies are quite literally indescribable. Knowledge about God's energies cannot be placed among subjects that a human being is able to know because knowledge of the divine energies transcends human capabilities. So when we say that God is outside of Aristotle's law of contradiction, not only is God's essence exempt from that law, but also are his energies. For example, when the fathers say that God dwells in light, dwelling in light unapproachable, from 1 Timothy 6.16, or within darkness, darkness was under his feet, from the, book, the Holy Book of Psalms, chapter 18, verse 9, as well as when they say that God is expressible, inexpressible, and beyond all expression, they are not referring to God's essence, but to his energy. So what we call 
apophatic theology applies not only to God's essence, but also to his energies. God's energies do not bear any similarity whatsoever with any kind of energy, activity, influence, or force known in this world. After all, can you think of a single created thing or energy that is indivisibly divided among individual creatures? The only reason why we know that there is no similarity whatsoever between God's essence or hypostases and creation on the one hand, or between God's energies and creation on the other, is that that's how those in a state of theosis experience God's presence or revelation. The experience of theosis transcends the human faculty for knowing. This is why in apophatic theology we encounter all sorts of expressions such as to know unknowingly, to know beyond knowing, and so forth. This bizarre terminology in the Church Fathers arises because God, as a known object, is not within the scope of human faculties for knowledge. So from this point of view, the patristic distinctions between essence and energy or between hypostases and essence are completely unrelated to metaphysics, ontology, Aristotle, Plato, and so forth. They do not have anything to do with any of these philosophies or philosophers whatsoever. However, we note that the fathers altered their terminology from time to time. They would adjust it so that they could find the right terms appropriate to the needs of their times. They certainly did, did not do this, however, in order to obtain a better understanding of the church's teachings, but in order to strike down the heresies that had sprouted up. After all, illumination and theosis are what enabled us to understand the church's teachings. Philosophical reflection on the church's teachings as well as philosophical or philosophical, philological studies cannot lead to this understanding. So the doctrines formulated by the fathers are not aimed at being understood, but at leading man to union with God. When man attains union with God by grace, the mystery of God is revealed to him and dogma is then set aside. Chapter 45 on the experience of theosis and the three stages of the spiritual life. Now when we read the Old and New Testament, whom do we see attaining theosis? In the Old Testament, the prophets reached theosis, while in the New Testament, the apostles did. However, the first person to reach theosis in the New Testament was St. John the Baptist. Afterwards, although certain apostles reached theosis, the entire group of the apostles did not attain it since there were only three of the apostles present on Mount Tabor. Up until the time of the Transfiguration, we can be certain in the New Testament that, apart from the Theotokos, of course, St. John the Baptist and the other three apostles, Peter, James, and John, attained to a state of theosis. Only at Pentecost did all the apostles and the Seventy experience theosis. At Pentecost, all the apostles attained theosis, with the exception of Judas the betrayer, who was replaced by Matthias. And the apostles were not alone in experiencing theosis at Pentecost, since many others also experienced it and were baptized on that day. Next, we run across something that strikes us as out of the ordinary. Cornelius the centurion, the first Gentile and heathen to reach theosis in the New Testament, did so before his baptism. He is like the Old Testament Job, who reached theosis even though he was a heathen and not a Jew. But we also know of another case where someone experienced theosis and was afterwards baptized. That person is the Apostle Paul. The Spirit blows where it wills. John 3.8 This is why in the case of Cornelius, Peter also says, quote, Whom 
am I to dis disagree with the Holy Spirit and not baptize Cornelius, since the Holy Spirit has given him the same amount of grace that he gave us at Pentecost? Based on Acts 10.47 But saying that God's will is not is not restricted is guiding someone to theosis but saying that God's will is not restricted in guiding someone to theosis is quite different from saying that we all partake of the grace of theosis because that is just nonsense the divine energy of theosis acts only in those who by the grace of God have reached the state of theosis but this divine energy of theosis acts gradually in stages in its first stage it is called an effulgence and is pure and is a pure and simple flash ela elaempsis in greek those upon whom this light has shined have experienced this effulgence of god's glory that lasts for a short period of time from a second to several minutes next we come to the second stage during which we can talk about the vision of the uncreated light those who undergo the experience of seeing the uncreated light have experienced theosis. Finally, there is the third stage of the perfect. In this stage, we can speak about continuous vision. This is how we can classify the experiences of the divine energy of theosis. Now, the divine energy of illumination is not the same as that of theosis. The divine energy of illumination refers to the illumination of the heart by the Holy Spirit. In its advanced stage, the energy of illumination can be identified with noetic prayer, while in its early stage, known as new illumination, it is not usually accompanied by this state of noetic prayer. Those who are newly baptized on Holy Saturday, or the newly illumined, are in this early stage and state of illumination. Of course, the newly illumined are supposed to become fully illumined with the further instruction that they receive during the period of time stretching from Pascha to Pentecost. Certainly everyone does not reach a state of noetic prayer by the day of Pentecost as a matter of course, that is, within 50 days. Some people may require 60 or 100 days. Others may require from 1 to 3 years. Still others may never obtain it. The time frame depends mainly on the newly illumined Christian and on how much he legitimately struggles under the able guidance of an experienced spiritual father. If someone does not ever reach full illumination, it means that he has spiritually stagnated as far as the Holy Fathers are concerned. The passions of soul and body cannot be purified merely through knowledge. Of course, we need to know about dogma. We need to know what is written in the Bible. We need to know about prayer and so forth. Our ability to reason can help us to weigh our decision to determine what our treatment should be and even to decide whether or not we want to be cured. In this way, we count the costs, we determine whether the anticipated results are worth the effort, and we finally make our decision. All of these processes have to do with human reason. The Holy Spirit certainly helps us choose the proper course by influencing the human mind and heart by means of the conscience, but he will not force someone who does not want his help. But when you decide once and for all to follow the difficult and narrow way that leadeth unto life, Matthew 7:14, your training at the hand of God begins. You may be able to get a degree from college by hook or by crook, but the only way to obtain the degree of illumination is to earn it. Either you are illumined or you are not. Either you are in the state of theosis or you are not. 
Modern Orthodox theology, however, automatically calls the newly baptized newly illumined and considers them to be newly illumined temples of the Holy Spirit. Footnote 129, as though this magically takes place regardless of whether or not the newly baptized have been instructed and regardless of whether or not they have been illumined by the Holy Spirit. Divine Cyril of Jerusalem exhorts the catechumens to purify themselves before being baptized, since the grace of the Holy Spirit is given according to faith and purity, for he says, Purify your vessels so that they may receive more grace. For while remission of sins is given equally to everyone, communion in the Holy Spirit is granted according to each person's faith. If you offer a small amount, you will receive a small amount. If you labor a great deal, your wages will be great. First catechism. First Catechetical Teaching, Saint, uh, quotation from the St. Nicodemus, the Hagiorite, the Way of the Feasts, Thessaloniki, Orthodox Kipsili, Publications, 1987. Returning to the text, Today we can even hear some priests give homilies in which they say, Since we are baptized, we are temples of the Holy Spirit, and since we are temples of the Holy Spirit, absolutely everything that St. Paul writes about this subject applies to each and every one of us. But if you read St. John of Damascus, and in particular what he writes about the holy relics of the saints in our church, you will see that he attributes all these Pauline passages about who is a temple of the Holy Spirit exclusively to the saints. St. John of Damascus also explains what made the saints of the church saints. He explains that they really were temples of the Holy Spirit, and he, refer he only refers to the saints as temples of the Holy Spirit. Their holy relics are proof of all this. Consequently, if we baptized Christians, if if we baptized Christians, are all temples of the Holy Spirit, as modern Orthodox theologians claim, we should all leave behind holy relics and become saints when we depart from this life for the Lord. But this does not happen. If you carefully read the Holy Fathers, you will see that the teaching presented in recent books on the mysteries of the Church differs from the patristic teaching on this subject. This is the reason why modern orthodoxy is in the midst of departing from patristic tradition and orthodoxy itself. This means that a return to that tradition is in order. So we know about the grace of theosis. We can speak about the grace of illumination. And there is also the grace of purification. Purification is the first stage in the spiritual life, a stage that is also the work of the Holy Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit who purifies, illumines, and grants theosis. It is God who purifies, illumines, and glorifies. The teaching about purification and illumination not only defines the central task set out before the catechumen, but it is also the chief duty of his spiritual father who is to open the eyes of the catechumen's soul and to prepare him for holy baptism. Footnote 130. At this point we note the following consecutive stages. One, hearing the hearing the instruction that also precedes faith as Paul says faith cometh by hearing number two heartfelt faith in other words inner faith number three verbal confession as Paul says with the heart man believeth unto righteousness and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation and number four baptism that follows sealing faith and confession wherefore Basil the Great said faith and baptism are two ways of salvation they share the same nature and are indivisible Faith is perfected through baptism. Baptism has its foundation in faith, and each is accompanied through the same names. For as we believe in the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, so are 
so we bow, are baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. While confession comes before, leading to salvation, baptism follows afterwards, sealing our consent. Quote from a letter to Amphilochius, chapter 12, found in St. Nicodemus the Hagiarite, the way of the feasts. Returning to the text. Naturally, a spiritual father should already be in a state of illumination in order to be able to lead others to that state and to guide them to the baptism of water and to remission of sins and of the Spirit. One Footnote 131, Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Amen. From John 3.5. Returning to the text. Naturally, a spiritual father should already be in a state of illumination in order to be able to guide and lead others to that state and guide them to the baptism of water and remission of sins and of the Spirit, which takes place when it, which takes place when the Holy Spirit visits the heart of the baptized and illumines it. Footnotes to follow 132 and 133. The Lord first purifies and then he illumines. So whoever would like to be illumined by God must first be purified of the passions by the commandments that makes one godlike. For where purification is present, there is effulgence. Effulgence says St. Gregory the Theologian in his Discourse on Theophany, For without the first, the second is not given. If someone seeks to be illumined before being purified, he labors in vain and without benefit. St. Nicodemus the Hagurite, the Way of the Feasts. Followed by footnote 1, 133, Adults go through these same stages even if they were baptized as children, but later sinned and now repent. Their spiritual father, who is himself in a state of illumination, first guides them to a second baptism by tears of repentance. Once those repenting have purified themselves, thus fulfilling the spiritual prerequisites for the next stage, their spiritual father guides them to the third baptism by the Spirit. The baptism of the Spirit introduces them to the state of illumination in which they receive the gift of unceasing prayer of the heart. This means that the grace of the Holy Spirit acts automatically and unceasingly in the human heart, praying on their behalf, so that their bodies become literally temples of the Holy Spirit. Returning to the text. So, in the early church, once the catechumens become newly illumined through baptism, their spiritual father continues to instruct them and guide them through their ascetic course of treatment. And when the spiritual father says that someone is ready for full illumination, then that person is brought to church and illumined, that is, he is chrismated or anointed with holy chrism. In the next stage... The Holy Spirit comes and dwells permanently in that person because he has acquired love, keeps the holy commandments, and so forth. If you want to see these spiritual stages for yourselves, please read chapters 14 through 17 of the Gospel according to St. John, where these stages are set down in writing with great clarity. This is also the reason why we read these chapters in church on Holy Thursday. In an earlier age, those about to be baptized on Holy Saturday were instructed on how to interpret what was expected to happen to them during Holy Baptism, when they would receive new illumination, so that their introduction to this new spiritual experience could take place smoothly under proper direction. After their new illumination, they were to reach full illumination by the day of Pentecost, completing their illumination within 50 days from Holy Saturday to the Feast of Pentecost, although this time period was not absolutely fixed, as we have already mentioned. 
During this time, they were regularly instructed on the stages of the spiritual life. This is the reason why the Gospel according to St. John is read in church between Pascha and Pentecost. The Gospel according to St. John is the Gospel of Illumination and Theosis, while the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke are the Gospels of Purification. The distinction between the spiritual stages are the grounds for including among the divine energies the energies of theosis, illumination, and purification, which is the energy associated with those being instructed in the faith. All Christians are not in a positive. Are, uh, uh, forgive me. All Christians are not in the position to participate in the energies of theosis, illumination, and purification. You have to be an Orthodox Christian in order to participate in these energies. And every Orthodox Christian does not do so, but only those who are properly prepared, spiritually speaking. Now, in addition to these three divine energies, we can speak about the creative energy of God in which all creation participates, as well as the cohesive and per per preserving energy of God in which all creation also participates. Everything within the universe partakes of the cohesive and preserving energy of God, because God is the one who preserves the cosmos. Besides these energies, there is also the providential energy of God, divine providence, the loving energy of God, the chastising energy of God, and so forth. Chapter 46 on the divine energies. Now, according to patristic tradition, God's energy is as simple as his essence is. The essence of God is simple, cannot be imparted to creation, and creation cannot participate in it. Nevertheless, creation does participate in God's energy, which is the natural energy of God's essence. But everything created does not participate in God's energy in the same way. Not only can created beings participate in God's energy in different ways, but there are also different kinds of divine energy open to participation, as we've already said. In other words, the energies of God can be distinguished from one another. This is the reason why the fathers mentioned that the one simple natural energy of God's essence is divided into different kinds of energy among the many who receive them. But how is it divided? Indivisibly. It is indivisibly divided. In other words, it is multiplied without being multiplied. It remains simple in spite of the fact that it is multiplied among the many, that is, among many created beings. The energy of God is indivisibly divided among individual creatures. The Old Testament uses the word glory as a name or term to convey the unique and simple energy of God that is indivisibly divided among individual creatures. Since the New Testament identifies the dwelling place of God with this glory of God, it follows that this one dwelling place is multiplied and becomes many dwelling places. Since this dwelling place of God is the glory of God, the Church says that the Father has prepared a dwelling place where every human being can live, provided that he becomes worthy of the reign of God. This dwelling place is the glory of God. It is multiplied without being multiplied and becomes a dwelling place for each person who reaches theosis. These dwelling places are only for those who reach theosis. This is what Christ means when he says, In my Father's house there are many mansions or dwelling places. From John 14.2 Christ wants every believer to reach theosis so that this dwelling place or his glory becomes the place where each believer lives. So every believer should aspire to dwell within such a mansion. These alternative meanings 
which we have mentioned, have their origin in the experience of theosis, illumination, and even in the experience of purification. After all, someone who is in the process of, <coughs> of purification has some grasp of these matters. Since that person reads the Fathers, since he reads Holy Scripture, since he accepts biblical and patristic teachings, he has enough understanding, even before reaching illumination and theosis, to be in a position so that his spiritual father can help him to discern for himself which spiritual stage he is in and if he is on the right track or in delusion. Orthodox Christians used to know these distinctions and spiritual stages before modern Orthodox theological schools began to crop up because the monks used to teach the people about these topics in the villages where the monasteries were located and the people turned to the monks in order to learn how to read patristic texts. Although this teaching was known throughout Greece until the Greek Revolution of 1821, Footnote 135, this teaching was also known to the Greek inhabitants of Asia Minor, Turkey, until the population exchange of 1922, as well as to the refugees from Asia Minor who came to Greece. Returning to the text, if af it afterwards fell into oblivion with the foundation of the modern Greek state. But how do we know that it fell into oblivion? We know it from the fact that this material is missing from the textbooks used in Greek schools and universities. Chapter 47, Metaphysics and Empiricism Orthodoxy is concerned primarily with this life here and now. The Father stress, after death there is no repentance. But since modern Greek theologians keep in step with their teacher Adamantios Koreas, their understanding of orthodoxy is metaphysical and their methodology for explaining religious issues is an imitation of Roman Catholic and Protestant methodology. At that time, theologians from modern Greece went abroad in order to study theology in Europe and Russia as still, they still do today. Following the end of the war, they would also go to America for studies. Studying abroad, they would find themselves in the midst of a major controversy that began many years ago, the controversy between the empiricists and the metaphysicists. The empiricists are the successors to the Enlightenment who follow in the footsteps of the Enlightenment figures of the French Revolution of 1789. What distinguishes empiricists from metaphysicists is a fundamental difference in approach. Observation is the core of empiricism, while philosophical reflection is the core of metaphysics. Back then, anyone who was religious advocated metaphysics, and this has continued to be the case until recent times. Meanwhile, anyone who was an empiricist was an agnostic, if not an atheist. Why? Because philosophy is not at the core of an empirical approach, even if it usually presented as empirical philosophy or the philosophy of the empiricists. In America, the empiricists carried the day in their conflict with the metaphysicists and did a great service on behalf of orthodoxy, but they were devastating to modern Greek theology. They made havoc of modern Greek theology. Today, footnote, the year is 1983. Today, all the Marxists who live in Greece are empiricists. Of course, they do not realize this because Greek ideological Marxists are not familiar with the Marxist family tree like their counterparts in Europe and America are. Over here, they just mechanically memorize their lesson in Marxism like a Jehovah Witnesses would. I think it is a real tragedy, and I am not talking about a tragedy of Aeschylus 
but about something shameful. Uh, here, Father John is making a play on the word, play on words, from the original Greek, that that there that there are not any intellectually compelling Marxists in Greece. Of course, their absence is a windfall for the police, the political right, the modern Greek theologians, but it is a misfortune for the pursuit of truth. Marxism started out with principles taken from experience and ended up where it ended up. From a scholarly point of view, Marxism and patristic theology share the same foundation, so that if Marxists and patristic theologians would come together, they would be able to communicate with each other. Although it is true that Marxism came into conflict with religion, we need to ask ourselves with what kind of religion did it come into conflict. It did not come into conflict with revelation, but with religion that is identified with metaphysics. Adamantios Correas belonged to that group of metaphysicists who made such an, ident such an identification, identifying the destiny of Hellenism with metaphysics. At the root of the difference between the empiricist and the metaphysicist is the metaphysicist's tendency to make an identification between reality and something that appears to be logically certain. This is the metaphysicist's chief trademark. Of course, well-reasoned arguments can lead you to logical certainty about something, but if this certainty does not coincide with what can be empirically verified or confirmed, how can you be sure about what you are thinking and inferring from logic? After all, it's just an idea. How can you identify your idea with certainty? The metaphysicist goes ahead and makes this identification while the empiricist only allows for the existence of what he can perceive by empirical observation and then he arranges these observations in groups. While Calvinists and Roman Catholics have some difficulty in the context of metaphysical versus empirical certainty, Lutherans live in their own world when it comes to these questions. Now if someone is an atheist, why does he not believe? because he does not have the gift of the Holy Spirit or inner faith. And just because someone says that he believes, does that mean that he is really a believer? Not always. For example, Calvinists frequently say that they believe because they are predestined, but in so doing they are treading along a path that goes against science since their position is not undergirded by any empirical reality. In fact, they do not even have metaphysical support to defend what they believe. Naturally, they are well aware of this since they are intellectuals who know about matter, know how matters stand, but they nevertheless continue to move in this direction. This is the reason why both Calvinists and Lutherans are noted for taking refuge in existentialism. The same scenario is also played out by American Protestants who add emotionalism to all the rest. Protestants in America both worship and behave in a highly emotional way. Chapter 48 on Monasticism During the early years in the life of the Church, a communist approach regulated the early Christians' way of life. If you have a smattering of intelligence, you will clearly see, when you read the Acts of the Apostles, that everyone had everything in common at that time. If someone wanted to be baptized, he was supposed to put whatever he had in his possession into the parish's common treasury. Nobody possessed any private property. Everything was in common. In fact, we see this in the famous instance of Ananias and his wife who told lies and died immediately from the book of Acts 5, 1 through 10. Some people maintained that these conditions were present only in the apostolic parish, but St. Justin Martyr, the philosopher, told the pagans, we Christians have everything in common. 
footnote 140 in St. Justin Martyr's First Apology in chapter 14, quote, the demons misrepresent Christian doctrine, he writes. We who valued above all things the acquisition of wealth and possessions now bring what we have into common stock and communicate to everyone in need. End of note. Returning to the text. Now, if we take into consideration the fact that Justin Martyr died toward the end of the second century AD and the fact that he was not aware of any Christian parish that did not have everything in common, this means that communal ownership had become an institution that had been preserved for at least 200 years. When it later started to break down, Cenobitic monasticism began to appear. When monasticism first appeared, it was called the apostolic life. We see this Cenobitic way of life, in which everything is held in common, being preserved in Orthodox monasticism for centuries. But in order for Orthodox monasticism to be successful, man must first undergo an inward change or a change in his outlook on life. And this change is brought about through repentance. Marx and Lenin agree with this point. People first need to experience an inward change and transformation in order to ensure the success of the Cenobitic way of life, or for the communists, the communist way of life. Footnote 141. For Marx, the interchange was an awareness of loss, alienation, and a non-human situation that allowed for revolution and then communism. For Lenin, the interchange was the acquisition of the socialist consciousness. Returning to the text, so if sociologists would examine communism and orthodox Cenobitic monasticism in terms of the external structure of their societies, they would not detect any difference. Communism and orthodox Cenobitic monasticism are also in agreement that man must undergo an inward change, since the fathers also say as much. In the church, holy baptism is what potentially brings about this change in the human person. But orthodox monasticism, which flourished for so many centuries, has at its core an ascetic course of treatment. The Father's aim was to help man undergo that inward change, which they called the good transformation. They said that man required an ascetic course of treatment in order for this change to be successful and to become a reality. This is the reason why we find abstinence, non-possessiveness, fasting, and prayer in monasticism. But the Fathers do not view these principles as being just for unmarried people. They're intended for married people as well. One piece of evidence for this is St. Gregory of Nyssa, the brother of St. Basil the Great. St. Gregory was one of the greatest ascetic writers of the church and a married bishop. Footnote 142, at that time this was permitted, returning to the text. In fact, he wrote a very fine book entitled On Virginity. Some people think that virginity consists of biological virginity alone but that is not the spirit of the fathers. When the fathers speak about abstinence and fasting, they're also referring to married people. Footnote 143, when couples abstain from carnal relations, the fathers use the word chastity to refer to this practice. Turning to the text, the ascetic course of treatment in the Orthodox Church is for all Christians, unmarried and married alike. Nevertheless, this ascetic course of treatment in the church has historically been observed to be a success primarily in the church's ascetic and monastic centers. In the past, monasteries were not located exclusively in outlying secluded areas. They were also located within the cities. Constantinople itself was so full of monasteries that it was called the Great Monastery. 
Nowadays, we have the tendency to drive monasteries out of the cities so that they take to the hills where they will not be able to have an impact on anyone. In this way, modern Greece, which has always wanted to follow the urban life of the middle class, remains uncontaminated. Of course, if urban society were to be successful and grow, if the bourgeois, those bearers of European and American culture, were to put roots down, monasticism had to be pushed out of the cities because monasticism was a danger that stood in the way. Chapter 49, Orthodoxy and Ideology. When we look at the teaching about purification, illumination, and theosis, we're looking at a science. But can we give this science a political character? Can we Orthodox Christians claim, for example, that only leftists are able to acquire noetic prayer, or that someone who possesses noetic prayer is obligated to be on the left or on the right? Of course, we cannot make such a claim. So the science, which we call orthodoxy, should never be associated with politics, because someone who loves his neighbor cares for every human being, no matter who he is, no matter what convictions he might hold. When it comes to the questions of ideology, orthodox Christians are primarily concerned about whether the church has the freedom to carry out her work, which is to heal the sick in her care. The church must have this freedom. So if an ideology hinders the church from carrying out her work, it is immaterial as far as the church is concerned, whether it is called atheistic Marxism or right-wing masonry. Footnote 144, today we could also include the New, New Age movement. Continuing to the text, for the church, they are both the same, hostile forces from whom she is equally obligated to defend herself. Today, the year is 1983, we happen to face the right on the one side, which is directed by the Masons, and on the left on the other, which is directed by Moscow. Today, although Moscow tolerates religion, at least officially, it nevertheless permits dishonest, anti-religious propaganda. What other explanation can we give for how the old metropolis of Leningrad, and footnote 146, in June 1991, Voters passed a citywide referendum restoring the city's name of St. Petersburg after going under the name Leningrad for 67 years. End of translator's note, returning to the text. What other explanation can we give for how the old metropolis of Leningrad, the capital of Tsarist Russia, became a, a museum of atheism? Unfortunately, this is how communism turns out when it is actually put into effect. Of course, communism is under no obligation be put into practice in this way, but when it is put into practice, it is always to the detriment of the church. And when the church is faced with an adversary who does not play fair, it is her duty to defend herself. So based on what we have just said, is the church obliged to support any specific ideology? Of course not. Medical science ought to support whatever political party is interested in public health. A doctor exercising his medical profession is under an obligation to use medical criteria in this case. Chapter 50 on Existentialism Now a proponent of existentialism does not find ontology to be credible. Footnote 147. Bear with me. Some simple working definitions may be helpful for the general reader. In this text, ontology 
includes metaphysics and refers to the study of being or the basic characteristics of reality by means of philosophical deduction and analysis. It postulates the existence of ultimate, genuine, unchangeable reality or realities in which all else is grounded. Representative figures include Plato, Aristotle, Aquinas, Descartes, Kant, and Hegel. Phenomenology, on the other hand, examines objects as they appear in the human consciousness. Representative figures include Herschel, Sherrill, and Heidegger. Existentialism, with its roots in phenomenology, investigates particular and individual existence through the choices man makes in his relationships within a concrete historical world. Representative figures include Sartre, Jaspers, and Heidegger. Logical positivism affirms that only formal sentences of logic and mathematics, as well as the factual propositions from the sciences, are meaningful. Representative figures include Wittgenstein, Carnap, and Ayer. End of translator's note. Returning to the text. For the existentialist, ontology is non-existent, but philosophical phenomenology does exist. That is, the phenomenon, or that which appears, does exist in contrast with the ontological or real being whose existence is posited by ontology. However, for the metaphysicist, ontology, ontological reality is what really exists, while the phenomenon is what only appears to exist. On the one hand, ontology attempts to penetrate the very essence of being by means of metaphysics. This is the reason why it is called ontology and is synonymous with metaphysics. In this way, knowledge about the essence of being becomes the ontology of substance. So, ontology is the science that inquires into the essence of things, but employs philosophy and speculation to do so. On the other hand, phenomenology says that inquiry into the essence of being is a waste of energy and restricts itself solely to phenomenon as they appear. In other words, phenomenology maintains that ontology is a wasted effort. Since existentialists presume that you cannot penetrate into the essence of things, they operate within the conceptual structure of phenomenology. Existentialists deal with things as they exist and are known by man because they are convinced that man cannot get beyond the appearances that he knows. For the existentialist, these appearances are existence itself. They look at things as they exist in their existential reality. They are not like people who try to know these things on the basis of a metaphysical process using philosophy to enter more deeply into them. This is the reason why existentialists usually reject metaphysics. And if they do not reject it, they at least consider it to be an unknown quantity, a question that might be able to find a way to deal with someday a question that they might be able to find a way to deal with someday. But logical positivists also reject metaphysics. Now, given what we have said earlier about the patristic distinctions between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, we can see that the Fathers are not making essentially ontological or phenomenological distinctions because their attention is not directed to knowledge that already pre-exists in the human consciousness, and can be analyzed using philosophy. Instead, 
the fathers speak from their personal experience of theosis. Although the experience of theosis is a kind of knowledge, it is not a kind of human knowledge, but a knowledge that is not of this world, and that God himself gives to man with the understanding that God, in his essence, does not become known to man, since the mystery of God remains in effect even during the theosis of the human person. Hence, from the standpoint of Orthodox theology, nothing requires someone who has reached theosis to speak to us about the questions raised by various forms of human speculation, for example, by metaphysics, positivism, existentialism, and so forth. And this is because the question raised by different philosophers mainly have to do with creation. Philo philosophers may enlarge their scope to deal with the question of whether or not something can become known on the basis of that which a human being does not immediately notice and cannot empirically confirm. Since philosophers investigate created things, it is not at all helpful in orthodox theology to use terms such as metaphysics, ontology, existentialism, phenomenology, and so forth. Chapter 51 on Theology When the fathers speak about God, they begin with Holy Scripture as well as with what earlier church fathers said. In the meantime, they do not present their own theology until they gain the experience of illumination, because until they reach illumination, they are merely disciples. In other words, they are still being trained under spiritual fathers who prepare them for illumination. These spiritual fathers give their apprentices the Old and New Testament to read. They sit down with them and interpret the Bible so that their disciples will be historically well-versed in Orthodox tradition. They assign them the task of practicing noetic prayer, fasting, and so forth. And in general, they train them in order to, for each disciple's noose to be thoroughly purified and emptied of all thoughts, both good and bad. In this way, those disciples who have acquired a pure noose are in a position to receive a visitation by the Holy Spirit. They begin to speak theologically only now that the Holy Spirit has come and begun to pray within them. Advancement along such an ongoing process also brings about the healing of the human person. In practice, this is achieved through a continuous and intense struggle lasting many years. During this struggle, grace repeatedly comes and goes until it purifies the struggler of his passions and makes him skillful in opposing them. Now, during this entire struggle, Philosophy is not at all helpful. It is not even the least bit helpful, because what is ultimately purified is not the human reason or intellect, but the human noose. The human intellect is purified quickly during the initial stage of the struggle, while the human noose or heart requires a much greater length of time in order to be purified, provided it goes without saying that the struggler abides by the precepts of the ascetic life. So, as we have said before, the human intellect and the human noose are different faculties. In science, the human intellect or reason is what is enlightened by scientific knowledge. A genuine theologian, however, is doubly illumined. Although his reason also needs to be enlightened by instruction in the faith, it is mainly his noose or spiritual heart which must be illumined. But in Western theology, theologians identified inspiration with inspiration by the Holy Spirit, 
with bringing the reason into harmony with Plato's archetypes, which were thought to exist within God. In fact, according to Augustine, inspiration is identified with knowing these archetypes, if not directly, at least through creation. More specifically, the theologian was to know these archetypes by studying the Bible and philosophy, as well as by meditating on the Bible. So they claimed that in this way the theologian comes to know the archetypes and automatically knows the laws of truth, ethical behavior, and so forth. From the standpoint of Western theological tradition, ontology is extremely important because ontology is the foundation for the theological distinctions that are formulated in Western theology. And this is the case because those in the West are cut off from the experience of illumination and theosis found in patristic tradition. So instead of producing theology on the basis of the experience of illumination and theosis, the Protestants believe that the Bible is the only source of truth, while the Roman Catholics believe that the Bible, texts by the Church Fathers, and the Church's oral traditions are the sources of the truth. And both factions just sit down and read these books. While they're reading, they believe that the Holy Spirit dwells within them and enlightens them so that they can properly understand what they are reading. Protestants in particular believe that the gift of the interpretation of Scripture was given to the entire church. Therefore, anyone associated with a Protestant denomination can say the reading from the Holy Scripture, regardless of whether that person is a priest or not. But in the Roman Church, they believe that the Holy Spirit was chiefly given to the hierarchy, and that is why, during consecrations to the episcopacy, their bishops say to the person being consecrated, Receive thou the Holy Spirit. The consecrating bishops want to show that they are the successors to the apostles by imparting the Holy Spirit, just like Christ, who told his apostles, Receive ye the Holy Spirit. From the book of uh, the Gospel of John, chapter 20, verse 22. Of course, it is assumed that they have the Holy Spirit and can impart the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is given to these bishops so that together with the Pope of Rome, who also personally has the Holy Spirit, they can make the right decisions about questions that come before them. But in the Orthodox tradition, there are prophets, apostles, and saints. They are not just authoritative in their own right. The only reason they are authoritative is that they have experienced theosis. So each person who attains to the experience of theosis also personally becomes an authority because he partakes of the authority that the prophets, apostles, and saints have. He does not say anything different from what they have already said because he now shares in a common experience with them. Those who have the same experience say the same things. Metaphysics or ontology can be defined as a branch of knowledge that is concerned with reality, that does not change, with things that remain immutable, with the ground of being, or even that which remains immutable for a long, very long period of time, but cannot be tested. But today it so happens that the physical sciences have demonstrated that everything in the created world is relative. Everything changes. This is the reason why philosophers have now completely abandoned the idea that something ontologically exists in terms of remaining immutable. The cosmos is continually changing and with it all of creation. But when we Orthodox Christians talk about God, we say that God always existed and always will exist. But what does this mean? Does it tell us or reveal to us 
what God is or what God is not? Does it reveal God's being to us? Of course not, because this expression is apophatic. It means that God is not like things in the created order that change from one state to another, that were, that were created at one time, are in existence for a season, and then cease to exist. No, God always existed. He existed before this world, and he will also exist after this world ends. He is immutable. This also this means that God is by nature everlasting and immortal. But this expression tells us what God is not. It does not tell us what he is. But metaphysics, according to its devotees, involves the study of being, not the study of non-being. It examines what exists or that which is. It does not examine that which is not or what does not exist. When the fathers speak about God, they say that God is unknown in his essence. We do not know God's being. We do not know what God, the ground of being, is. In fact, we even say that we cannot ever know God in his essence. We only know that he exists. And how do we know this? Through the fact that he has revealed to us his glory, his energy, and his light. And even when you see the light of God, you do not understand what God is. You do not know and you are not able to know what God is. This is the reason why we say that God is a mystery. Chapter 52, Speculation in Orthodox Theology But in Orthodox Theology, a speculation is also present in precisely the, the same way that it is present in the exact sciences. In the exact sciences, every researcher who makes advances in his field continually forms hypotheses, but he does not presume to adopt these hypotheses and to turn them into laws before their validity has been tested by experimentation or empirical knowledge gathered through scientific methods. In the exact sciences, there could be no progress without speculation on accumulated knowledge. On the basis of this speculation, scientists create theories and form hypotheses that they later test by observation and experimentation to determine whether or not they're sound. But with Orthodox theology, as you advance in the knowledge of God, you also speculate less frequently because your speculation is constantly being tested and circumscribed by the light of the revelation of God's glory. Speculations and hypotheses are replaced by knowledge. As you proceed from purification to illumination, you spend less time in speculation, completely setting it aside when you experience theosis. During theosis, a person looks directly at truth itself, and the truth that reveals itself to that person is none other than God. The tradition of the church remains unaltered throughout the ages in terms of God's revelation to man. And it remains unaltered because God's revelation to man is the same in every age. It was and always is the same for everyone who experienced theosis from the time of Adam until the present day. Everyone who reaches theosis, including prophets, apostles, and the saints, has the same experience during theosis. They all experience Christ who reveals himself to them in the Holy Spirit. The only difference 
in this experience is that in the Old Testament, Christ revealed himself without flesh as the angel of great counsel, whereas in the New Testament, after the word had become flesh in the person of Christ, Christ revealed himself with his glorified human nature as he did to the three apostles on Mount Tabor. All of this means that in Orthodox theology, knowledge about God is simply verified as it is revealed again in every age to those who experience theosis. Although this knowledge is always of the same nature, there are different rungs on the scale of God's revelation to man. Each person in a state of theosis experiences the fullness of God's revelation to a different degree. When God reveals himself to man, he does so to the extent that he wills to reveal himself and to the extent this particular person is able to receive or to take in God's revelation. The highest degree of God's revelation to man took place at Pentecost when the Holy Spirit guided the apostles into all truth. Chapter 53 Western Theology and Modern Science During the Middle Ages, Europeans accepted a geocentric cosmology. In other words, they believed that the earth was the center of the universe and that all celestial bodies revolved around the earth. Then the first astronomers of the modern age came along, Galileo in particular, and proved that the sun does not revolve around the earth, but that the earth revolves around the sun. Galileo came to this conclusion on the basis of observations that he made with his telescope. He used observation to prove what he asserted instead of using philosophical arguments to make his case. The ecclesiastical authorities at that time, however, were not convinced, even though Galileo urged them to look through his telescope and interpreted for them what they were looking at. And so, Galileo came close to being burned at the stake as a heretic by the Inquisition. In fact, he was compelled to demonstrate his repentance in order to escape death. Now, footnote 152, in 1992, Pope John Paul II publicly confirmed that the Roman Catholic Church had made a mistake in condemning Galileo. Returning to the text, this incident subsequently generated the suspicion that the basic facts about the natural world as we know it are not in keeping with descriptions made by theologians of the past who used to make up the most important literate and intellectual sectors of Western society. The world was in fact completely different from the way it had been described until that time. During the Middle Ages, Aristotle gained such prestige that his authority was equal to that of the Bible. So by necessity, Holy Scripture was interpreted on the basis of Aristotle's views. Footnote 153, Aristotle asserted that the earth was flat and not round. Returning to the text, whoever disagreed with Aristotle, that is, with the Franks' interpretation of Aristotle, was putting his life in danger. This is the reason why scientists in the West have a certain subconscious hostility when it comes to the figure of Aristotle. It is not because he was not an important philosopher and naturalist in his own right, but it is because the Frankish Middle Ages were so very rooted in Aristotle. One of the reasons why we have so many important advances today in the West in the exact sciences is because scientists opened fire on Aristotle's logical system in order to reach the place where they are today. Of course, 
Their aim was to over, overthrow the authority of the Western Church on questions involving the exact sciences. Naturally, this created problems in Western tradition, not only for Roman Catholics, but also for Protestants, the majority of whom act so modern around us today and forget that the reformers, Luther and others, were likewise attached to the old cosmology. This old cosmology can be clearly seen when medieval Westerners expressed their views on paradise and hell as well as on the relationship between the earth, paradise, and hell. This brings us to the poems of Dante, who was actually a superstitious and narrow-minded person without the faintest inkling about patristic tradition as we know it. From an orthodox point of view, he was simply an obscur obscurantist and a medieval obscurantist at that. Dante was the father of the Renaissance in the West and a faithful son of the theological and religious tradition of the Franks and nothing more. The same holds true also for Boccaccio and Petrarch who are also considered to be the fathers of the European Renaissance. The European Renaissance and the so-called humanism are no more than a return to the classical learning of Greek antiquity. In other words, it was a reversion to the classical age and a revival of ancient Greek literature in general and ancient Greek philosopher in particular. Dante personally did not trigger this rebirth of classical philosophy of ancient Greece because that started at least two centuries earlier. In fact, it has been demonstrated that Dante was a follower of Thomas Aquinas. His work entitled The Divine Comedy is a poetic adaptation of Thomas Aquinas's theology. However, scholars have begun to demonstrate that Thomas Aquinas's interpretation of Aristotle was not correct. It was a misinterpretation. Aristotle's authority in the West was seriously shaken following the advances made in the exact sciences. In particular, it so happens that the astronomical techniques, which became standard under Galileo, produced studies in ast astronomy that began a revolution. And so we have now reached the point where I do not think there is any serious human being who is an advocate of Aristotle or Plato, naturally with the exception of some people living in Greece. Aristotle and Plato do not have adherents any longer. Of course, there are still students of Aristotle and Plato, even as there are students and scholars who study any intellectual figure in history. But here in Greece, no one seems to make the distinction between philosophy and the history of philosophy. Since I moved here, this was in the 1950s, I've noticed that modern Greeks are very fond of figures from the past only when they agree with them. In other words, we're dealing here with good guys and bad guys. If someone is a good guy, we like him and everything he says is right. But if he is a bad guy, everything he says is wrong. In other words, it is either black or white, and historical reality is simplified and distorted. So if we say that Plato is important, this means that we are obliged to accept whatever Plato teaches, because if Plato is important, he has to teach the truth. If someone does not teach the truth, then he's worthless. So if Plato did not teach the truth, then he's worthless. But this way of thinking just confuses the issues. Now when you join this way of thinking with modern Greek patriotism, you can only conclude that all the ancient Greeks were important. Plato was important, and so was Aristotle. By itself, 
This is a sufficient reason for many people today to become attached to Plato and Aristotle. Of course, I do not know if there are any followers of Plato here in Greece, but there has always been a weakness for Plato among churchgoers and those who have religious tendencies, culturally speaking. But we can see a propensity for Aristotle among the practitioners of theological philosophy in Greece's theological circles. Recently, some people have indicated that they find existentialism rather attractive. So, in order to prove that the church fathers are modern, they say that the fathers were platonic, if Plato is in vogue. If, however, the latest trend dictates that you have to be Aristotelian in order to be modern, then they dig up patristic references that show how someone like John of Damascus had spent some time on Aristotle and had interpreted his works. Thus, they create an Aristotelian father in order to maintain the reputation of, a, of the patristic tradition. But those who have studied in Europe or America saw that neither Plato nor Aristotle carries much weight. They found out that logical positivism predominates in the Anglo-Saxon world, where existentialism holds sway in Europe and particularly in France. Existentialists are in turn divided between atheist and religious existentialists. So in order to prop up orthodoxy so that it does not fall apart, they read religious existentialists. Of course, I do not know if they understand them, but in any event, they do try to imitate them. Then they come to Greece and write books about existentialism in order to introduce young people in Greece to the deep waters of existentialism so that even we can become modern. So we become more and more modern. We ape the latest thing as much as we can, and in the end, we never really become modern anyway. Chapter 54, What is the difference between Orthodox Christians and heretics? Now, from the standpoint of tradition, modern Orthodoxy and traditional Orthodoxy are not the same. Of course, they share something in common the Bible. But that is only part of tradition. The question remains, what is the essence of tradition? And what is the core of tradition? You will find the answer to this question if you approach it as you would approach any problem in an exact science. In Orthodox tradition, there are written texts in addition to the oral tradition. We Orthodox Christians have the Old Testament, we have the New Testament, we have the decisions of proceedings from the ecumenical and local councils, we have the writings of the Church Fathers, and so forth. But even Roman Catholics and Protestants have quite a few of these written texts. So the question is raised, what is the fundamental difference between Orthodox Christians and members of other Christian confessions? What makes some people Orthodox and others heretics? What is the crucial difference between Orthodox Christians and heretics? I think that we will be able to understand the fundamental difference if we look to medical science as a model. In the field of medicine, doctors belong to a medical association. If a doctor is not a member of the medical association, he cannot practice medicine or work in the medical profession. In order to become legally a doctor, you not only have to graduate from a recognized medical school, but you also have to be a member of the medical association. The same kind of standards applies to lawyers as well. In these professions, constant review and re-evaluation re are the norm. 
So if someone's guilty of misconduct or does not properly practice his profession, he is tried by the, by the appropriate board and the professional association that he belongs to as removed from the body of the profession. But the same proceedings also take place in the church when a member of the church is expelled or cut off from the church body. If that person is a layman, the corresponding process is called excommunication. If he is in the holy orders, it is called removal from the ranks of the clergy. In this way, heretics are excommunicated from the body of the church. It is impossible for the medical establishment to give a quack permission to treat patients. And in like manner, it is impossible for the church to give a heretic permission to treat the spiritually sick. After all, since he is a heretic, he does not know how to treat others and he is not able to heal others. Heretics are not able to cure the spiritually sick. Period. Just as there can never be a union between the medical association and an association of quack doctors under any condition, so there can never be a union between Orthodox Christians and heretics at any time. Reading a lot of medical books does not make you a genuine doctor. Being a bona fide doctor means that you have not only graduated from a university medical school, but that you also have been an intern for a considerable period of time near an experienced medical school professor who has demonstrated his competence by curing the sick. Chapter 55, Who is a Genuine Theologian? Now, who is a genuine theologian? Is someone a theologian simply because he has read a lot of theological books and keeps abreast of the pertinent bibliography? Such a person resembles, to give example, a microbiologist who has read a lot of books relating to his science but has never used a microscope, has never perform performed laboratory analysis, and has never done other similar procedures. In all the exact sciences, the person whose opinion is respected and who's authoritative in his field is always that scientist who has experience with the object or phenomenon that he deals with and has studied. In other words, an authority has experience in observation and understands the phenomenon that he observes. Now, when someone observes the energies of the Holy Spirit, the fathers refer to this experience with the word theoria or vision. Uh, footnote 156. The word theoria usually means vision, looking at, viewing, and beholding. In the context of philosophy, it has the meaning of contemplation. Given Father John's comments about metaphysics and empiricism, the standard translation of theoria as contemplation, though appropriate for Western mystics, is unacceptable for the tradition of the prophets, apostles, and saints. The saint in a state of theoria is not contemplating, thinking about, or imagining God or a religious subject, but rather God reveals himself and that person's attention is drawn to what he sees or beholds. This also happens to be how this word is used in both the Old and New Testaments. We see forms of the word theoria used when Manoah and his wife looked on the angel when prophet David praised to see the beauty of the temple of the Lord and when Daniel saw visions in his sleep. In the Gospels, this word is used when the evangelist mentions that Christ beheld Satan as lightning falling from heaven and that Christ prayed for his disciples to see his glory. In Acts, it is used when it is mentioned that St. Stephen 
sees the heavens open. End of translator's note and returning to the text. A person encounters the first stepping stone to vision when he experiences in his heart the self-activated prayer of the Holy Spirit or noetic prayer. When noetic prayer becomes active through the grace of the Holy Spirit, the Christian's inner faith becomes well grounded. Colossians 1.23 He begins to behold God and to know God through this experience of the grace of the Holy Spirit. Now the grace of the Holy Spirit helps the Christian so that he can be guided by the Old Testament prophets, the New Testament apostles, and the church fathers who interpret the Old and New Testaments through their experience of the Holy Spirit. This help from grace and guidance from the saints enables the Christian to correctly interpret the Bible and to fathom what is meant by the expressions used in Holy Scripture and the writings of the Church Fathers. In certain cases, this Christian may ascend from time to time to higher stages of Theoria. For example, when it is God's will, he may briefly see an effulgence of God's glory or participate in the uncreated light that is experienced Theosis. From a patristic point of view, a theologian is someone who has attained to Theosis because after someone experiences Theosis, he cannot be deceived, so he can produce theology without the fear of falling into delusion. In other words, according to the Fathers, only Theoptes, those who have seen God, are theologians. The Church has given the title Theologian par excellence to very few, very, very few Fathers, even though many saints have theologized. Those saints who have theologized without being theologians par excellence, only attained to a state of illumination or ceaseless prayer of the heart. Since they were illumined by the grace of the Holy Spirit, they were able to theologize on the experience of those who had attained theosis, yet they did not personally produce some novel theology. Of course, some intellectuals practice theology using their minds merely because they have read some books on theology, even though that is strictly forbidden by the fathers of the church. Chapter 56 on Prayer If you are ever present at a Roman Catholic or Protestant gathering, you'll notice that as a rule they're accustomed to staying extemporaneous prayers. This practice mainly stems from a very careful reading of the Old and New Testament that took place when the Protestants revolted against the papacy. Protestants of that time read the passages in the New Testament that described the Holy Spirit coming and praying within the believer and concluded that the believer is gently prompted how to pray by the Holy Spirit who has come to dwell in him. Protestants believe that the act of prayer proves that the Holy Spirit has touched someone since the Holy Spirit who dwells within that person gently prompts him and inspires him to pray. This interpretation was common among Protestants during the age of their Reformation and they have preserved it until the present day. In other words, they believe that when someone wants to pray, the Holy Spirit will come to gently prompt that person and to inspire him so that he will pray correctly. But in the Orthodox tradition, something else happens. Every time Scripture mentions the Holy Spirit praying within, the, within someone, every time it says that the Holy Spirit prays within a prophet or within an apostle, it is not talking about prayer using the rational faculty but about prayer using the noose. This worship is not reasonable worship, but noetic worship. 
So on the other on the one hand there is reasonable worship that is offered to God when we use our rational faculty to read or chant the church services. The divine liturgy is an example of reasonable worship as are all the church services with printed texts. On the other hand there is noetic worship which is qualitatively higher form of worship. Man does not offer God noetic worship on his own initiative. He offers noetic worship to God because at a certain stage in his spiritual development the Holy Spirit came to him and to his heart in particular and transferred the worship of God from his brain to the place of the heart. From now on this person's worship of God becomes noetic worship in the region of the heart. The mind keeps an eye on the prayer of the heart but it does not participate in it using the forms of rational thought. It simply eavesdrops on the Holy Spirit's prayer in the heart. This is what is meant by the Holy Spirit praying in the human heart. As we said earlier, man becomes a temple of the Holy Spirit, and his heart in particular becomes a place for this temple's sacrificial altar when the Holy Spirit begins to pray noetically within him. And man can sense this happening he is able to listen to the Holy Spirit saying the prayer. See 1 Peter 2.9 And his heart is then able to serve like a priest and respond like a chanter. And so he experiences an inner mystical priesthood. This is when he becomes a member of the royal priesthood. This is when he becomes an active member of the body of Christ and an active member of the church. After all, the Holy Spirit is the one who has introduced him to the mystical body of Christ which is in fact the church. When a Christian received chrismation in the early church, chrismation was the very confirmation that sealed the fact that this Christian had become a member of the body of Christ. Now when someone who has the prayer of the Holy Spirit active in his heart desires to pray using his ability to reason, he can do so and pray using words that are different from, from that which he hears also in the chamber of his heart. But he can also allow himself to repeat or articulate what he hears being said in his heart. But it is not within Orthodox tradition to make up extemporaneous prayers unless you are in this spiritual state. If you do not have noetic prayer, you should pray with your mind using prayers from the church services, because extemporaneous prayer is quite dangerous spiritually for those who have not reached the spiritual stage that corresponds to praying extemporaneously. Footnote 163, an example of this danger is provided by the Pharisee in the Gospel, Luke chapter 18, who prayed extemporaneously and fell into pride. Continuing in the text, the Comforter, that is the Holy Spirit, is the one who knows how to pray correctly and who teaches man how to pray correctly. Someone who has been taught by the Holy Spirit how to pray correctly is also able to teach others to do the same. Christ spoke about this state when he said, The Holy Spirit will come and dwell in you, and I will also come with the Holy Spirit and with my Father, and we will dwell in you. John chapter 14 through 17. Christ clearly says this and tells us how this will take place. He tells us, Ask and it shall be given to you. He speaks about prayer. He speaks about love. And if you put this all together, what conclusion do you come to? Christ is talking about a state in which he and the Holy Spirit come and dwell in the believer. Will the believer recognize, recognize it when this is taking place within him? 
or perhaps he will not recognize it or be aware of it while it is happening. In other words, when the Holy Spirit enters a human being, does he come without being observed or with observation? Footnote 166, And when he was demanded of the Pharisees when the reign of God should come, he answered and said to them, The reign of God cometh not with observation. Neither shall they say, Lo here or lo there, for behold, the reign of God is within you. Luke 17, 20-21, that is, the coming of the Holy Spirit to the soul is not outwardly observed, but does, but does mean, but does that mean that his coming is also not inwardly observed? Translators note. Or perhaps the Holy Spirit will come because some bishop or priest said so. Returning to the text. I remember when I was a newly ordained priest, I also used to repeat what St. Paul says, we are the temples of the Holy Spirit. And if you destroy this temple and so forth. We used to discuss this and talk about it over and over again, moralizing on St. Paul's words. But when the apostle said, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit, we are the body of Christ, and you have the Holy Spirit within you, and the rest, he intended his words for the parish of Corinth. If you read carefully this entire passage, you will see to what kind of believer he is referring, since he says, I want all of you to speak in tongues. He is referring to those believers who speak in tongues. In other words, St. Paul is referring to those who possess various forms of noetic prayer. In their sermons, priests often say, Dearly beloved Christians, you know you really should not get upset. Look at what St. Paul says. The Holy Spirit is within us and guides us, and the Spirit knows our needs and how to pray, and so on and so forth. In other words, they give a sermon and talk about some kind of prayer of the Holy Spirit within the believer, but the believer cannot sense this prayer. He is unaware of its activity within him. He cannot detect it inwardly. He does not hear it being said from within. But when St. Paul talks about this prayer of the Holy Spirit, is he talking about prayer that can be perceived or about prayer that cannot be perceived? Does the Apostle Paul really speak in such a vague way about some ill-defined prayer of the Holy Spirit? Is he really so vague about our participation in the body of Christ? Or does he give us the basic concrete facts taken from experience that explain how this all comes about? In other words, when St. Paul talks about prayer and participation in the body of Christ, is he talking about something that is sensed noetically and perceived inwardly in a palpable way? Or is he talking about something that is neither noetically sensed nor inwardly perceived? When we read the Church Fathers, we learn that it is impossible for someone to be a temple of the Holy Spirit and be unaware of it. It is out of the question that such a person would be unable to sense that he is a temple of the Holy Spirit, because the Spirit bears witness to our spirit that we are children of God, Romans 8.16. But what does it mean for the Spirit to bear witness to our spirit? Isn't this noetic prayer? Because if it is not noetic prayer, what is it? Is it just the imagination of someone with a high opinion of himself? There's one and only one interpretation for St. Paul's statement, the Spirit bears witness to our spirit that we are children of God. It refers to noetic prayer. This noetic sensation, this state, and this experience that the Holy Spirit awakens in the Christian is what makes up the patristic tradition handed down from generation to generation. On the basis of this tradition, a spiritual father can tell when his spiritual child has passed from a state of purification to a state of illumination.
Isn't this something that the spiritual father is able to know? And how does he know it? How does the spiritual father know that his spiritual child has reached the state, uh, stage of illumination? He knows it from what we have just described. So when we talk about theology based on experience, we're talking about piety based on experience, but not pietism. Theology is experiential piety. It is not just talk. It is really something quite concrete. Chapter 57 On the Contemporary Spiritual Condition of Greece Today, the year is 1983, we happen to be at a crossroads in church history where a quack doctor does not realize that he is a quack. In other, in other words, a spiritual father who is not able to properly treat or guide his spiritual children. But is a quack in a position to recognize a genuine doctor if he meets one? We can answer this by saying that if his conscience has grown insensitive, he will, will not recognize him. This happened with Judas, who was familiar with Christ but did not know him like the other apostles knew him. Judas did not understand who Christ was. Why? Because he was not in good shape spiritually. In other words, Judas turned out to be a quack and was not able even to save himself. Does contemporary orthodox theology enable us to detect a genuine doctor and to distinguish him from a quack? In other words, if we were able to take a group of spiritual fathers today, would we be able to discover who is genuinely a spiritual father in a position to heal others? Or to put it differently, are we able today to spot a saint within a crowd? It seems difficult. Today, Christians have reached the point where it is difficult to separate spiritual doctors from quacks. And we have reached this position because we have replaced experiential patristic theology with a textbook theology of dogmas that can be classified with Western theology and that does not guide the soul to purification from the passions. We have driven out the hesychistic tradition and replaced it with dogmas and morality or moralism. And this took place in the years following the Greek Revolution of 1821 with Adamantios Correas acting as the ringleader. Chapter 58 on Councils Some people are convinced that sacred tradition is guarded by Episcopal synods. But contemporary synods in the Orthodox Church are not like the local or ecumenical council of bishops in the age of the early Christians, because the early councils were composed of bishops who had mastered the Church's therapeutic method. Their aim in coming together as a council was not merely to safeguard the Church's doctrine and liturgical order, as is the case today. No, their aim was to preserve and protect the church's therapeutic method. So a proper bishop is a master of the therapeutic method of the church. During those early years, the work of a bishop's synod was absolutely vital, more so than today. Their task was to preserve and protect the church's therapeutic method and curative treatment. But when the bishop's synod would safeguard this method, they would struggle along two fronts. The inner front involved taking care to safeguard sound ascetic culture and practices within the church. The outer front consisted in safeguarding doctrinal teachings for the cure of the soul. Another aspect of the inner front was protecting dogmas from heresies, which always have their source in people who have not mastered the proper therapeutic method. Whenever an innovation appears within the church, 
it always means from the very moment it appears that the person introducing the innovation not only fails to view doctrine properly, but he also fails to be in a healthy spiritual state. Some of the greatest fathers of the church were systematizers who situated their understanding of doctrine in the context of the therapeutic method. They include St. John of Damascus, St. Maximus the Confessor, St. Simeon the New Theologian, and St. Dionysius the Areopagite, among others. We should also mention the disciples of St. Gregory Palamas. Moreover, we also find all these basic principles present and organized in the works of St. Irenaeus, Bishop of Lyons, as well as in the works of St. Ignatius the God-Bearer because this is an unbroken tradition dating back to the first century. The same basic principles are also present throughout St. Paul's epistles, as well as throughout the entire Old and New Testament. If we have the proper criteria, we can discover the presence of these basic principles and locate them in the text that contain them. St. Macarius of Egypt carefully explains these issues by setting forth a coherent body of principles. He claims that Christians who do not have noetic prayer, are not intrinsically different from believers in other religions. The only factor that makes such Christians different from believers of other religions is that these, these Christians intellectually believe in Christ and merely accept Christian doctrine, while the believers in other religions do not accept Christian doctrine. But such Christians do not gain anything from this kind of intellectual faith, because it does not heal them or purify their hearts from the passions. In terms of healing the human personality, they remain without benefit and with behavior that does not differ from that of non-Christians. This can be seen in their way of life. Consider an Orthodox Christian whose soul is sick, but who not only fails to struggle to be healed, but does not even imagine that the Church has an effective therapeutic strategy for curing his sickness. What is the difference between such a nominal Orthodox Christian and a Muslim, for example? Does doctrine make him different? But what good is doctrine when it is not used as a pathway towards healing? What good is doctrine when it is merely kept hung up in the closet so that it can be worshipped? In other words, what is the point of worshipping the letter of the dogma and ignoring its spirit hidden within the letter? Chapter 59, Orthodoxy as the Official Religion of the Roman State Keeping all of this in mind, we can see why the government of the Byzantine state sought to make Orthodoxy its official religion, and why it frequently took such pains in order to ensure the purity of Orthodox doctrine. Why did the state take these steps? Did it take such steps merely in order to safeguard dogma for dogma's sake, or instead, did it take these measures because the particular orthodox dogma in question was necessary for the curative treatment of its subjects, and thus for the social reform brought about by the healing of personality, by healing the personality of each individual citizen? More likely than not, the second scenario is correct. What was the national anthem of the Byzantine Empire? Wasn't it, O Lord, save thy people and bless thine inheritance? grant victories to the kings over the barbarians, and by thy cross preserve thy civilization. This hymn gives expression to an ideology, if we can call it such, for putting into practice orthodox teaching, faith, and life at a national level on a multi-ethnic scale. 
Since the government could foresee how implementing orthodox therapeutic teaching and methods could be beneficial and contribute to society, the government passed legislation sanctioning and promoting the orthodox faith as the official state religion, so that the empire would be filled with parishes in which priests would provide this therapeutic treatment. So in time, the number of healthy citizens in the parishes would increase, and by extension, the number of healthy citizens throughout the nation itself. This is the reason why the Church naturally did not say no to the state, but collaborated with it. There were, however, repercussions on account of the authority that was given to the Church and the ecclesiastical organization needed for administrative purposes. These new realities helped create a civil servant problem as a necessary evil. Footnote 174. In Greece, as in Byzantium, bishops and priests are paid by the state. Today, as in the past, some people seek employment from the state on account of job security and benefits rather than on account of a clear vocation. End of translator's note. Returning to the text, many people who were not really orthodox pretended to be orthodox because they had designs on being employed by the state, and so the church began to be secularized. In spite of all this, the church continued her mission, which then included the related task of protecting the state from quack doctors or heretics. The local ecum and ecumenical councils were concerned precisely with this issue. In the Acts of the Ecumenical Councils, we come across the expression, It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. Acts 15.28 Those who were present at these councils could say this, because all the members of these councils had acquired the permanent gift of noetic prayer, which enabled them to recognize in their hearts the truth of the decrees that were formulated. But if a council of bishops could meet in our days, when noetic prayer is rarely found in the episcopacy, and if if they would all rise at the beginning of their meeting and say in unison, O heavenly King, Comforter, the Spirit of Truth, who art everywhere present and fillest all things, will the Holy Spirit come to illumine them without fail? Will the Holy Spirit come just because they are canonical bishops who gather together for a council and say a prayer? But these are not the only conditions needed for the Holy Spirit to respond in this way. Other conditions must also be present. Those who are praying should already be in a state, an inner state of ceaseless noetic prayer when they come to a council, in order for the grace of God to illumine them. At false councils, those who were present did not have this prayerful state. In the past, bishops did have this spiritual experience, and when they came together as a body, they knew in their heart what they heard from the Holy Spirit on a specific issue. And when they made decisions, they knew that their decisions were correct, since all of them were at least in a state of illumination, and some of them had even reached glorification or theosis. So as you can see, in the early church, the charismatic element, or those with the gifts of the Holy Spirit, led the way, while the institutional element, or those with solely administrative capabilities, followed behind. In other words, those known for external, ecclesiastical, and administrative, administrational talents listened and accepted the decisions of the more spiritually advanced. This is quite clear in the writings of the New Testament, the early church, and the great fathers of the ecumenical councils from the first ecumenical council, A.D. 325 until the Ninth Ecumenical Council, A.D. 1341, 1347 
1351 that was held during the age of St. Gregory Palamas, A.D. 1359. Footnote 176, the Eighth Ecumenical Council is considered to be the one that was held during the age of Photius the Great in, in A.D. 879. Returning to the text. Those with noetic prayer active in their heart are the only ones who really know what it is what is meant by the Holy Spirit bearing witness to their spirit in this way. Noetic prayer is an experience that verifies and confirms that the cure of the human noose has begun. This healing is within the reach of everyone, provided that the spiritual conditions required for this therapeutic process are present. It is not a process meant or intended only for some monastic types who wear black robes, but it is for everyone. After all, there is no biblical distinction between monastic spirituality and lay spirituality. The Holy Scripture speaks about only one kind of spirituality. Have you, ever find, have you ever found a single passage in the Bible that speaks about a distinct spirituality for the laity and another spirituality for the clergy? The Bible does not make such a distinction. There is only one spirituality in Christ for all believers. This spirituality in Christ is at its core a therapeutic course of treatment that Christ offers all people. It is intended for all people. It is not just for monks or priests or for the educated or intellectuals because it is not at all a matter of the intellect. It does not have anything to do with one's outer appearance but with one's inner and hidden state. Chapter 60 on Ecclesiastical Music Let's say a few words about the music that is appropriate for church use. The aim of church music is to invoke compunction or praise, but not romantic sentimentality. But in Western tradition under the Franks of the Middle Ages, it became the norm to blur the distinction between love songs and religious songs. If you listen to Protestants or Roman Catholics chanting in church, you will immediately realize that they are in fact singing in church. They are not chanting at all. Their hymns are sung with an erotic undertone. When Roman Catholics sing hymns to the Virgin Mary, the text is not alone in being erotic, even the music is erotic. It is as if they were flirting with the Virgin Mary. It is as if they were flirting with Christ. The melody that one hears is sentimental and so is the music. They try to evoke sentimental religiosity in their members by playing with their emotions. Given the sentimental nature of their tradition, sober-minded individuals in America and Europe are not churchgoers because they do not find such sentimentality convincing. Those serious-minded people who do go to church do so because they are sentimental and inconsistent in their investigation into all fields of inquiry. Under such conditions, a consistent European or American is naturally an atheist and will not become Roman Catholic or Protestant. These are hard words, but that is how matters stand. After all, a sober-minded scholar can never accept the foundations of Roman Catholic or Protestant theology. This difficulty, together with sentimentality in their worship, completely alienates some very serious-minded circles from the Roman Catholic and Protestant world. This is why their churches are empty. I am afraid that the Orthodox Church will suffer the same fate if she allows pietism, sentimentality, and rationalism to take over Orthodox theology, 
because I believe that the crisis that the Church is going through today will be her last. Afterwards, there will not be anything left standing to be shaken or to undergo a crisis. Part 2 on heretical teachings and how the fathers responded to them. Introduction When someone attains to theosis, he relives all the stages of revelation, transfiguration, Pentecost. This means that a person in the state of theosis relives all these truths that were revealed to the apostles. Then he experientially sees for himself that orthodox theology has a cyclical character and that the cycle revolves around the Incarnation. The Incarnate Word is the center of a phenomenon that we can describe as a circle or a spiral. At the center of this circle or along the central axis of this spiral is the Incarnate Word. When we behold the Word, we behold the Father in the Holy Spirit. When we behold the Word, we behold the Church. When we behold the Word, we, become, we behold the communion of the saints. When we behold the Word, we behold all the mysteries of the Church. You cannot see matters correctly unless you consider this center. When you reach this core during an experience of theosis and reach that point where all truth is revealed, you cannot be deceived by anything relating to God, the faith and worship. And since the revelation of divine mysteries is the same for all people who reach theosis, their teaching is identical. This is the patristic tradition to which all Orthodox Christians refer. Now when someone is cut off from the core of this experience and cut off from this teaching and even its history, that person will inevitably fall into heresy if he attempts to theologize. It is unavoidable. He is going to fall away. And if he does not fall into heresy, he will at least misinterpret the Bible or sacred tradition. So the fathers who experienced theosis knew by experience that they became gods by grace and not by nature. But is Christ the incarnate word God by grace or God by nature? Arius said that the incarnate word was God by grace. The Father said, No, Christ is God by nature. The incarnate word is God by nature. Arius maintained that by grace the incarnate word was the source of the uncreated glory of the Father. On the one hand, it is true that Arius did not deny that Christ was a source of uncreated glory, but on the other hand, he maintained that Christ was not the natural source of uncreated glory. Instead, he said that by grace Christ was the source of the uncreated glory. He said this because human nature is created, therefore Christ is God by grace. Chapter 61 How Did the Fathers Respond to the Heretics? Arius stressed that the Word was begotten of the Father before the ages. In spite of this, St. Athanasius the Great accused him of defending the temporal generation of the Word. But why does he accuse him? It is because Arius added the phrase, quote, There was a then when he was not. At footnote 179, the standard translation is, There was a time when he was not but we are leaving the translation more literal so that Father John's exegesis will become clearer. He added the phrase, there was a then when he was not. But then and when are adverbs of time. In other words, when you say there was a then when he was not, it means that there was a period of time during which the word did not exist. This is what this phrase means linguistically. 
But if you place yourself within the context of apophatic theology, whatever you say about God is limited by categories related to the passage of time. Whatever word you use for God, you cannot avoid the dimension of time. How is this so? For example, we say, the word is begotten of the Father. From the standpoint of linguistics and semantics, the phrase is begotten of the Father can possibly mean that he is begotten at some time of the Father, or that he is begotten eternally of the Father, or that he is begotten in time of the Father. The same scenarios are also generated when we say the word was begotten of the Father. The fathers were obligated to employ various sets of terms in order to formulate their teachings and to provide a defense for the teaching of the church. Of course, even the fathers say the word was begotten of the father before the ages. But the point that the fathers stress is that human thought merely co that, that human thought merely corresponds to human experience. So man's every thought and every intellectual concept correspond to everyday human experiences and nothing more than human experiences. Man cannot break through the limitations of his created nature in order to be able to grasp the uncreated. According to the fathers, it is absolutely impossible to break through these limitations. We can think about the uncreated and how something exists that wasn't created, that always exists, and that does not resemble created things, but none of these categories are positive. They are completely negative. They are not positive positions, but negations. When we say that God is uncreated, we are not saying what God is, but simply what he is not. The word uncreated simply means that God is not a creature. But this says what God is not, not what he is. So we have said what God is not. Now, let us try say, let us try to say what God is. But there is not any name that can define what God is, because it is part of human nature for man to be un utterly unable to grasp God. The fact that man is a creature is the underlying reason for this inability. Man was created in order to know God, but on his own and by his own resources, it is not within his power to know God. Only when God himself reveals himself to man does man know God. And this takes place through the light and grace of the Holy Spirit. This is the reason why the Father spent so much time on the phrase, In thy light we shall see light. Psalm 36, 9. In other words, within the light of God, we shall see the light of God. You can see the light only when you find yourself within the light. It is just like what happens in the natural universe. When you are in the dark, you cannot see anything at all. But if you find yourself in the light, then you can see the light. This epistemological principle is dominant in the Church Fathers. Strangely enough, at first glance, the fathers come along and identify this light of God with darkness and use the words light and darkness interchangeably. So for the fathers, in thy light we shall see light, and in thy darkness we shall see darkness have the same meaning, because God is neither light nor darkness. And this is the case because God is not a creature, so he does not resemble something created like light or darkness. Since our faculties for knowing are appropriately are appropriate for created things and do not extend to the uncreated realm, we are only able to know created things. Consequently, whatever terminology we use for God will be borrowed from human daily experience and not from some human capability to describe the uncreated. 
This patristic approach to epistemology perfectly coincides with modern research being conducted today by neurologists, biologists, biochemists, psychologists, anthropologists, and some psychiatrists psychiatrists of Logosan on epistemological questions. All the sciences that deal with these questions agree on how a human being functions epistemologically. Based on our present knowledge, all human ideas, even abstract speculations and mathematical calculations, are taken from daily human experiences. It is now accepted as an established fact. Everything in the human mind is but an extension of the world's material existence and has no spiritual immaterial existence whatsoever. In any event, Athanasius the Great accused Arius of teaching that the word was begotten in time and based this accusation on Arius' own words. The Orthodox took advantage of Arius' formulation and constantly bombarded the Arians on this issue. They bombarded them so much that the Arians were forced to offer a response, but their answers were lost when the many writings of the heretics were later destroyed. The fathers accused Arius of teaching that the word was begotten in time. For the fathers, the fact that Arius referred to a then and a and to a when is evidence. Yes, that is true, but there are surviving fragments of what both Arius and the Arians said in protest to this statement by the Orthodox. The heretics maintained that they were being slandered when the Orthodox asserted that the heretics taught that the word was begotten in time. After all, the heretics argued that they also taught that the word was begotten of the Father before all ages. Now this phrase, before the ages, is highly significant because the ages and time are not the same. The fathers make a distinction between the ages and time, even though they did not know modern physics. In physics, time as understood in the past no longer exists. In the past, time was measured by the movement of the earth relative to the sun and the moon, but now our understanding of time has changed drastically. But what matters to us is the fact that the fathers clearly distinguish between the ages and time. So the fathers say that when God created the world, he first created the ages, then the angels, and afterwards both this world and time. In other words, the fathers knew that time was a dimension of a particular aspect of the created universe because the ages were the first creation to be created and not time. Time was created later on by God. The main difference between the ages and time is that in time, one event is followed by, in turn by another, while in the ages, events do not necessarily follow one another. Instead, events and reality coexist in such a way that what happens is not necessarily entangled in the process of succession. But since man exists within time, his experience is limited to alternating states. Existence without this process of succession is not within man's experience, but there is one exception. He can acquire this experience and the experience of theosis, because during theosis, time is no longer in effect. Only someone who has reached theosis has experienced a way of being that transcends existence, that transcends time, that transcends the ages, that transcends space, that transcends reason, and so forth. Someone in the state of theosis experiences the uncreated, but still does not know epistemologically 
what this uncreated reality is, because the uncreated epistemologically remains a mystery to the person in a state of theosis. In other words, even when God reveals himself to someone who has reached theosis, God remains a mystery. Even if someone perceives God with his noose, reason, senses, and body, God nevertheless remains a mystery, since he remains outside the boundaries and means of human knowledge. And this is the case because human knowledge is based on similarity and difference. But there is no similarity between the created and the uncreated realms. For example, if on the one hand we see an elephant, but we do not know anything about elephants, the elephant before us does not resemble anything else. It is simply different from other animals. If we later see two elephants, we will say, hey, these two look alike. But if we examine them more carefully and discover that one elephant is male while the other one is female, then we will be able to see that they differ from one another in certain parts of the body. Yet in spite of these differences, they possess such an overall similarity that we can return to talking about elephants and place them in the same category with other elephants. When someone experiences theosis, on the other hand, he can recognize a difference, but he cannot find a similarity with anything. Nevertheless, there is a difference. He sees something that he has never seen before in his life. But there is no similarity between what has been revealed to him and what he already knows. Why is this the case? Because the glory of God is different from everything created that he has observed within the created realm. It is different, but it is also utterly unlike anything known within creation. Why is it not similar to anything? It is not similar to anything because it does not have color it cannot be measured, it is not light, it is not darkness, it is not big, it is not small, it does not have a shape, it does not have a form. This is the reason why the fathers speak about the glory of God being like something without shape or form. Of course, to say that, to say that it is without form, is to offer a rebuttal to the Platonists, since the Platonists believed in the existence of a world of forms. But when the fathers say that the glory of God is without form, this means that it has nothing to do with Plato's conceptual world. Whenever the fathers describe the glory of God as being without shape or form, and whenever they refer to this absence of shape and form, they are making a direct assault on the opinion of Plato and Aristotle and on philosophy in general. This means that patristic theology completely avoids these categories that belong to philosophical ways of thinking. Of course, there's nothing wrong with someone studying philosophy as long as he rejects philosophy's teachings on the existence and nature of God. After all, philosophy trains the human mind. This is what all the hesychistic fathers say, including Basil the Great, John Chrysostom, and Gregory of Nyssa, the church father, whose ability to reason like a philosopher is unsurpassed. And if you read St. Dionysius the Areopagite, you will see that he even follows the same line of thought. So we can conclude that there is nothing wrong with someone spending his time with philosophy in order to train his mind, but it is sheer stupidity to accept the teachings of philosophy when it comes to theological subjects. Chapter 62 on Medieval Philosophy and Scholastic Theology We all realize that in the Orthodox Christian tradition, we only have to deal with Greek and Roman philosophy, since we do not have any further philosophical developments. 
But in the West, there is a, a distinct philosophical tradition called medieval philosophy, which is the philosophy that developed in the confines of the Germanic tribes that conquered Europe. Normans, Franks, Goths, Saxons, and Lombards, among others. Those who took part in this development are the so-called scholastic theologians of the Western Middle Ages. We call them Latins. We used to call them Franks, but nowadays we refer to them as Europeans. These tribes that conquered Western Roman culture have their own particular theological tradition called scholasticism, which in turn has its own particular philosophical tradition called medieval philosophy. These are the names used when textbooks for the history of philosophy refer to these subjects. These textbooks do not examine the theology of the Eastern Fathers. They are only concerned with the theology of those Western Fathers whose teaching agreed with the Frank's understanding of theology. Thus we are left out of the history of developments in both theology and philosophy after the schism between the churches because according to the Franks we have become heretics. In other words, as far as the Europeans are concerned, there are no fathers from the East after the schism. If you read their patrologies, you will be able to confirm this. They say that St. John of Damascus is the last church father in the East, while Isidore of Seville is the last church father in the West. Afterwards, they turned their attention to the appearance of so-called scholastic theology in the West together with medieval philosophy, but they do so without making even the slightest reference to the East. Western Christians will not admit that Palamism is patristic theology. The Western line is that Eastern Christians did not understand the early church fathers, while those in the West have remained faithful to the patristic tradition that we have distorted. When the Franks distinct theology surfaced, they adopted this opinion and held to the absurd claim that the Franks remained faithful to the patristic tradition while the Greeks betrayed the Greek tradition of the fathers. Uh, footnote 182. In early versions of the primarily French dictionaries, the word Greek had the meaning in the West of heretic, liar, thief, and deceiver. Returning to the text, what is particularly noteworthy, however, is the fact that the Greek-speaking Romans of the East, as well as their counterparts in the West, especially in Italy, have unbroken links to the past. This continuity with the past includes epistemology, history, culture, language, and theology. Meanwhile, in the West, we observe that Roman Orthodox Christians were enslaved and transformed into illiterates. This occurred in both France and Spain, where the Western theologians known who are the last Roman writers and who are the Frankish writers. That is, they know the last Romans and the first Franks to write in Latin. It is curious how Roman literature comes to an end in France and Spain and is succeeded by Gothic and Frankish literature. This radical breach in continuity marks an ethnic catastrophe for the Romans and a victory for the Germanic tribes. These two people were divided with the Romans being enslaved to the Germanic tribes. And this enslavement of the Romans to the Goths and the Franks lasted for a very long period of time. These two factors created a situation in which the Romans of the West would lose their age-old contact with Constantinople and the rest of the Roman world. In contrast to this discontinuity in the West, there is not the slightest interruption or breach in the historical development of the East during the same period of time. Instead, we find an un uninterrupted continuity in terms of spiritual experience, patristic literary activity, the tradition of the ecumenical councils, and so forth. 
Nevertheless, the Franks remain obstinate in the face of reality. In the middle of the 9th century, they accused the Greek, in other words, the Eastern Romans, of infidelity to patristic tradition. They would like us to believe that the illiterate Franks are the ones who remain faithful to the patristic tradition, even though the Franks had no knowledge of Greek whatsoever and did not even know how to read Latin texts correctly. And from that time until the present, they continue to have the audacity to presume that, that, that they not only preserved patristic tradition, but even improved it with their scholastic theology. In contrast to this whole state of affairs, there is the enduring and perennial methodology of Orthodox tradition and theology. We also note that the same theological method that is present in the East can also be found among Orthodox Romans of the West. Western Romans possess the very same method. In both places we find the same experience of illumination and theosis, and hence the same theology. Anyone can verify this by examining the writings of those in the West, especially Western Romans, on questions concerning the spiritual life, asceticism, and so forth. Orthodox Christians are not the only ones who accept this. In fact, the Anglicans admit that the theology of the East and the West share the same spiritual foundations and that the theology used to be the same. They determined when and how the West began to differ from the East on theological and spiritual matters. There is one characteristic feature to the development of these differences in the West. The conquering tribes abandoned the ancient tradition of electing bishops from those who had reached the state of illumination or theosis. Instead of electing bishops for spiritual reasons, they elected them for administrative purposes. Thus bishops in the West were transformed from spiritual fathers into political administrators with political and military authority. In the Gothic, Frankish, and Norman tradition, bishops became feudal lords. This was not so much the case, however, in the German tradition, because German feudalism is really quite different from Frankish, Gothic, and Norman, Norman feudalism. The reason behind this difference is that most Germans did not have Roman serfs for slaves because the Romans did not live in German territory. The Germans simply had captives of war for servants. In this context of the development of feudalism, the bishop became a feudal lord and began spending his time governing and subjugating Roman serfs and villains. Ignoring spiritual questions and theological writings, he turned his attention to administrative matters. Theology was then taken over by certain monks in the monasteries. Of course, it is customary for theological science to be cultivated in monasteries, but in the monasteries where these monks got their hands on theology, they were not concerned with how they could reach the stages of illumination and theosis. These monks did not even aspire to reach illumination or theosis because they were influenced by Augustinian theology and accepted a philosophical approach to illumination and theosis. So in the lands where the Western Romans were conquered, the experience of illumination was transformed into a philosophical abstraction and Plato's conceptual world penetrated the teaching on illumination. When this twisted and counterfeit understanding of illumination entered Frankish monasticism, it began to follow its own particular course. This is why Frankish monasticism is not a continuation of the ancient spirituality and ascetic life of the church, but a mutation into a different tradition. Of course, this tradition is not altogether new, since it is also Augustine's tradition. This connection results from the fact that the first Frankish theologians and spiritual fathers read a great deal of Augustine, but almost none of the other church fathers. Given this context, it is really quite absurd for those in the West to claim that they are the only ones who understand patristic tradition, 
and that we have deviated from it. In fact, they contend that starting with the age of St. John of Damascus, we became an idolatrous form of Christianity. Footnote 183, obviously, in fact, the very opposite is true. Returning to the text, this is the background for the debate in the West over different categories in patristic theology. For some reason, those in the West assumed that God's essence and energy are one and the same. In other words, they identify God's essence with his energy. Furthermore, there are strong indications in Augustine's own writings that he also identified God's essence with his energy. At least in his early writings, this clearly appears the case. Apparently, he identified God's essence with his energy by employing a clearly philosophical approach. He also repeatedly contended that God is one essence or substance, and that whatever exists in God is identical with this one substance or essence. Augustine does not make this statement just once. He repeats it many times. So, apparently, the Germanic tribes adopted this teaching during the Middle Ages. This identification between God's essence and his energy became the central axis of the scholastic tradition. Along this axis, however, there are certain variations on the theme. Some scholastics make a distinction between God's essence and attributes. In this Western development, the most prevailing tendencies are represented by Thomas Aquinas on the one hand, Duns Scotus on the other, and William of Ockham representing yet a third position. Duns Scotus, whose followers are called Scotatists, makes a distinction between God's essence and attributes that is somewhat similar to the Orthodox distinction between the essence and energy of God. It is similar but not identical because his distinction is clearly philosophical, while the orthodox distinction is clearly empirical. This is the reason why his distinction is also called the ontological distinction or the metaphysical distinction. At the same time of the early church, heretics would systematically make such ontological or metaphysical distinctions between God's essence and energy. In response to these philosophical distinctions, believers in the early church would also make a distinction, but their distinction was clearly empirical since it was based on the experience of illumination and theosis. Chapter 63, How Did the Fathers Theologize? But how do the fathers theologize in the Orthodox tradition? First of all, the fathers invoke Holy Scripture in order to support the teaching of the Church. But when a heresy appears, they likewise invoke the experience of those who have reached theosis and are still alive. When the Arian heresy appeared, the fathers invoked the experience of those who had reached theosis and were alive during the, the age of the Arian conflict. So there are two ways that a theologian can build his argument. Nevertheless, in order for a statement to be orthodox, the two kinds of reasoning must be reconcilable. The argument should be identical or complementary. They must not contradict each other. While reasons are formed and conclusions are drawn mainly from Holy Scripture, the argumentation is always sealed and confirmed as sound on the basis of the documented experience of the Church Fathers, including both the saints who have fallen asleep and those saints who are alive at the time of the heresy's appearance. But this is precisely what takes place in every science. If we look at Chinese manuscripts on astronomy, for example, we will read about an immense explosion that occurred in the universe on July 4th, 1054, and that the Chinese astronomers were able to record. For two weeks, they could see the light from this explosion. In other words, we possess a Chinese manuscript that refers to this incident. 
Now when we read this manuscript today, we might call it a bunch of nonsense, but contemporary astronomers have verified that this explosion or supernova really did happen at that time and resulted in a cloud that they have since called the Crab Nebula. In other words, we have before us recorded written evidence for a phenomenon that is confirmed by the experience of contemporary astronomers. In like manner, the Bible documents the experience of the prophets and the apostles. But how can we verify their experience of theosis today? How can we confirm that the Bible's descriptions of God and Christ are reliable? From a patristic point of view, the saints living in every age who have reached the stage of seeing Christ in glory provide us with this verification and confirmation through their personal experience. They can assure their contemporaries that what is mentioned in the Bible is true. So we not only possess the personal experience of the Church Fathers, which is the same as the experience of the Prophets and the Apostles, but we also have the experience of the saints living in every age. And we can see that this tradition of the experience of Theosis was vigorous and flourishing until the end of the Turkish yoke and still looms large in the consciousness of Orthodox Christians. So some Church Fathers in their own struggle against the heretics would also invoke their own experience of Theosis. For example, St. Gregory the Theologian invoked his personal experience in his struggle against the Eunomians. But the question is whether or not we understand the relationship between the written text of the Bible and the experience of Theosis that exists today. Naturally, whether or not a contemporary experience is genuine is another matter, but we will examine that topic separately. For the time being, we can, we can see the very same issue of documentation and experience also at work in astronomy. On the one hand, there are texts about astronomy. On the other hand, there is empirical or observational astronomy. The relationship between what is documented in astro astronomical texts and what is observed astronomically through a modern telescope forms a perfect analogy to the relationship between the prophets and the apostles' experience of glorification documented in the Bible, as well as the experience of theosis documented in patristic literature and the contemporary experience of the saints who are alive today. If we ignore the contemporary experience of saints who are alive today, it is like ignoring telescopic astronomy of the observatory and being satisfied merely with what is documented in books on astronomy. If for some reason contemporary astronomers one day would be content to merely read the descriptions in astronomy books, and if they were not able to confirm by observation through a telescope what these books mention, would we consider this astronomy to be orthodox or heretical? We would assuredly consider such astronomy to be heretical or not genuine. After all, how could it possibly be genuine since it would not be able to be confirmed empirically by observation? Besides, a description can never fully do justice to a lived experience and living reality. We encounter the same relationship between written descriptions and empirical verification in all the exact sciences. We also encounter it in theology. Lived experience tests the absence or presence of authenticity in the documented descriptions of written and oral tradition. Question from a student. Is the testimony of Holy Scripture not sufficient? Why is the experience of theosis necessary for the verification of biblical truth? Answer. It is necessary because of the rise of modern Greek theology that has caused modern Orthodox Christians in Greece to sit around and busy themselves with the Bible, irrespective of the prerequisites for such. Moreover, as far as they are concerned, 
The Bible is a book separate from the experience of the prophets and the apostles. Even though the Bible itself speaks about the prophets and the apostles' experience of theosis, modern Greek theology is not aware of this and could care less for what Holy Scripture has to say on the subject. If you want proof, check out some modern theological writings. You will not find a single passage where they talk about the theosis and glorification of the apostles and the prophets. In other words, this patristic interpretation of the Old and New Testament has disappeared from biblical hermeneutics in, the contem in contemporary Greece. Why? Because the Russians, Protestants, and Roman Catholics have strongly biased our own biblical interpreters against taking into consideration the patristic method of biblical interpretation. We have the Old Testament, we have the New Testament, we have the decisions of the ecumenical councils, and we have the patristic tradition. Nevertheless, in Greece today, there are people who claim that they are conservative, but who in fact accept tradition out of a blind devotion to tradition. In other words, their acceptance really does not go beyond external forms. If someone does not know what the foundation of the prophetic, apostolic, and patristic experience is, which is the foundation of doctrine, how will he be able to defend orthodox doctrine without referring to the experiences of the fathers? Will he be able to do so only on the basis of what the Bible mentions? If he only refers to the Bible and does not refer to patristic experiences, he will not be able to explain how the fathers formulated doctrine. And so, he will be forced to agree with the heterodox who maintained that when the fathers formulated doctrine, they were in fact philosophizing on the basis of what is mentioned in Holy Scripture. But the truth of the matter is that the fathers formed dogmas on the basis of their experience of theosis, and not after philosophical reflection on what is mentioned in the Bible. Thus, when modern Greek theology deviated from the hesychistic tradition, which was preserved until the end of the Turkish yoke, an absurd tradition emerged in which modern Greek theology was forced unwittingly to follow the path of those church fathers who did philosophy, such as Augustine and his followers, that is, modern Greek theology was forced to portray the fathers as philosophers in the spirit of Greek antiquity who formulated doctrine by means of philosophical reflection. But this is not a description of patristic tradition. It is an outright caricature. So from a purely scientific perspective, it is imperative for us Orthodox Christians to spell out how Orthodox theology has progressed through history on the basis of patristic methodology so that we will be able to understand our present situation. If we do not do this, orthodoxy won't be able to stand its ground, because from a scientific point of view, orthodoxy cut, from, cut off from the patristic method is sheer nonsense. Anyone who is well acquainted with modern philosophical methodology, the scientific method, the history of philosophy, and the history of theology, a la the heterodox, will be able to see that this kind of orthodoxy can stand its ground only when the backing only with the backing of the armed forces. No serious-minded person will be convinced of the truth and validity of orthodox doctrine in this way. And for starters, I certainly would not be convinced. If orthodoxy were in fact what is described in modern Greek textbooks, I would be an atheist today. When orthodox teaching is cut off from its roots, it becomes utterly ridiculous. And this includes the teachings about the Holy Trinity, the Incarnation, and everything else. For instance, what does the phrase one essence and three hypostases mean if this formulation is cut off from the experience of theosis, the transfiguration, and Pentecost? Logically speaking, it is absolutely meaningless. And in that case, 
what would be the aim of theology. Perhaps the purpose of having a sacred dogma is for me to be able to put into my to put it on my dresser and worship it, or maybe I need to have a dogma so that I will be able to make moralistic speeches. The crux of the matter from the patristic point of view is that every human being is sick. There is not a single human being who functions normally apart from the saints. Today, everyone has his own criteria for what functioning normally means. But who is really normal? Who, who is insane and who is not? There are some people who are so very abnormal that they are locked up in mental institutions because they are, they are either dangerous to themselves or to society. But there are also many others who are equally dangerous but who are not locked up in mental institutions. So how can we determine who is normal and who is abnormal? Then, patristic theology comes along and says that no one is normal, and it explains how God gave man noetic energy, which is a physiological component of human nature, but which unfortunately does not function at all in the average human being, or merely functions in an underdeveloped way. In order to make this noetic energy function again, the human personality must first be healed. Now, the need for healing and the process of healing the human personality are the parameters that form the core of Orthodox tradition. But Orthodox Christians are not the only ones whose noetic energy needs to be healed. Noetic energy is not something Orthodox. This need for healing is not a trait of Orthodox Christians alone, but of all humanity. Everyone has a noose, and that noose must be healed. So when we talk about orthodox spirituality in the patristic sense of the term, it means that we are talking about the healing of everyone's noose. In other words, orthodox spirituality is a curative course of treatment that is aimed at all people and designed to include all people. It is called orthodox because you cannot be healed if you have not embraced orthodox doctrine and acquired an orthodox dogmatic conscience. In this case, dogma is not aimed at making man submissive and locking him up within the confines of a religious system. No. It is aimed at contributing to his cure. On its own, dogma has no other purpose besides leading man to this cure. Now, what is wrong with modern Greek theology? Although the fathers recognize that everyone has a noose, footnote 186, the church services refer to the healing of the noose as a treatment that clearly applies to all people. Returning to the text, that everyone has a noose and that it needs to be healed, modern Greek theology and modern orthodoxy do not recognize this need. If the curative treatment of the noose is not placed once more at the base of modern orthodoxy, and if its patristic foundation is not restored, then we will suffer the consequences. Dogma cut off from its foundation will become untenable and incomprehensible. Orthodoxy will stray from its main objective and work, and consequently not be able to stand on its own. In this case, orthodoxy will be like a skyscraper that does not rest on a foundation but on a cloud. If the common man sees such an image, what will he say? He will say, that is ridiculous. And if there are some people who believe that it is possible for a skyscraper to be supported by a cloud, won't they be ridiculous as well? Can they possibly be anything else? In like manner, if you cut off dogma from its foundation, dogma ends up being incomprehensible in terms of its origin. So what do the modern Greek theologians do next? They remove the experience of theosis as the foundation for doctrine and put the Bible in its place. Of course, the prophets and the apostles' experiences of theosis are described within the pages of the Bible. It records how this person was glorified and how that person was glorified. Yes, it is true. 
that Holy Scripture mentions that all the prophets saw the glory of God. But when there is no way to verify this experience, everyone begins to use his imagination in order to interpret what is mentioned in the Bible. For example, someone reads that Christ ascended into heaven in a cloud. On the one hand, if this person can think for himself, if this person has nothing to do with the experience of theosis, and if he has not even heard about it, he will start laughing when he reads such an account. He will say, how is it possible for man to sit on a cloud? On the other hand, if this person is a superstitious Orthodox Christian, he will say, oh, look, how sweet little Jesus did this miracle too. He sat on a cloud and ascended into heaven, and he will believe it. Someone else might even imagine that at the ascension, Christ began to be lifted up on a cloud as though it were an elevator. But according to the Holy Fathers, this cloud is not a created cloud. It is not a mass of water droplets. This cloud is the uncreated glory of God. In the Bible, the glory of God is called a cloud, light, and fire. When the Bible mentions how the pillar of fire and the pillar of cloud went before the children of Israel in the desert, the Bible is referring to the same phenomenon, the glory of God. Footnote 187, see the the book of Numbers, chapter 14, 14. Hence, Christ did not ascend in or on a cloud of water droplets, nor did he go up to heaven as though he were riding an elevator. Rather, he ascended in glory, as the dismissal hymn for the Feast of the Transfiguration clearly states. In other words, Christ simply disappeared in the midst of uncreated glory before the apostles' eyes. When dogmas are cut off from their source, they become untenable. This is why the Church of Greece is now going through a crisis. After the War of 1940, Greek children went to catechetical schools and were instructed in pietism. They learned a new Protestant-style interpretation of the Bible, a new interpretation of doctrine, a new kind of orthodoxy, and so forth, and their minds were filled with moralizations and puritanism. And of course, they learned these things through cute little phrases. And who knows how many of you have gone to such catechetical schools that have so many slogans and ditties where they teach orthodoxy using ditties like, O our Christ, O our Christ. But what happened next? Whatever became of those who went to such catechetical schools? Their faith was shaken because it was not well grounded in anything, and so they were left with Puritanism. This is the reason why we have moralistic politicians in Greece who now make speeches on improving morality. Instead of using the law as a criterion for legal order, these politicians use ethical criteria in order to assess the behavior of citizens, whether they are good or bad. This is why democracy in Greece is in danger today. When the law is identified with morality, you cannot have a democracy, because under such conditions you cannot tolerate bad people. And now, how will these people become orthodox after their faith has been shaken? I assure you that given the way ideas move about freely today, this kind of modern Greek orthodoxy will be buried, whether it will be buried by materialistic ideology, Marxism, existentialism, atheism, and so forth, or by a revival of patristic tradition is another matter. In any event, what is certain is that it will be buried. It cannot possibly survive. Perhaps the patristic tradition will be rekindled and will bury the pseudo-orthodoxy. But if the, the patristic tradition does not bury it, modern scientific thought will certainly do so, because a Bible, a biblical interpretation that fails to explore thoroughly the theological method of the Bible and to demonstrate its relationship with that method cannot possibly remain standing today. The theological method of the Bible is based on the experience of glorification and theosis, 
How do we know this? Read the Old and New Testaments. You will see for yourselves how often it mentions that a prophet was glorified. In other words, he saw the glory of God, he saw the angel of glory, he saw God, and so forth. We can see the same emphasis in the New Testament as well. The Bible is a description of revelations of Christ before and after the Incarnation. The question is whether or not we correctly interpret the Bible. In other words, how do we know if a revelation of Christ or an experience of theosis that is described in Holy Scripture is genuine? How can we know or determine whether someone who says that he saw God as a true prophet or a false prophet? According to St. Paul, the true or genuine prophet has reached theosis, while the false prophet claims to have reached theosis without having reached it. Someone who has reached theosis knows about the creation of the world, because in the state of theosis he can see that which is derived from the Father and that which is derived from non-being. In other words, he can see not only what comes from non-being and is dependent on the will of God, but also what is from God, which includes the three persons of the Holy Trinity, the essence, the natural energy of the essence, the dominion, the rule, the glory, the energy of God that is multiplied without being multiplied among many, and so forth. Whatever comes from the Father and has its existence from the Father and not from non-being is uncreated, while whatever comes from non-being is created. What was written in the Bible about the creation of the world was written on the basis of this experience of theosis. Holy Scripture did not get its description from heaven, nor did its description appear out of the blue. The Muslims claim that the Quran comes from heaven and believe that the Quran is uncreated, but the Bible is not like that. It did not fall from the sky. It is also not an intellectual revelation cut off from the experience of theosis. The Bible talks about the experiences of the prophets and the apostles. It also talks about glorification. It also talks about the prayer of the Holy Spirit. So we can see biblical tradition that was present before the appearance of the Bible and before the writing of the Mosaic Pentateuch. The Bible appeared as a, at a specific moment in history, but the core of the Bible was present before its appearance as a written manuscript. Now what is this core? It is the patriarchs and the prophets' communion with God. Biblical tradition does not revolve around the Bible as a book, but around the patriarchs and prophets' experience of, experiences of theosis. So what does Holy Scripture do? It simply records in writing the description of these experiences even though they really cannot be described, because they are literally indescribable and beyond human reason. Holy Scripture does not aim at describing God because God is indescribable. Holy Scripture aims at guiding man to union with God. This is the reason why the Bible uses symbolic language when it talks about God. After all, the prophet is forced to use concepts, forms, and images taken from human experience in order to describe the uncreated, which remains indescribable. Chapter 64, Distinctions Rooted in the Experience of Theosis Now what is at the root of the distinctions that emerge from an experience of theosis? Empirically speaking, the distinction in God between essence and energy is based on several observations. On the one hand, man both sees the Word, who is the natural source of God's glory, and participates in this glory by grace. On the other hand, man never becomes God by nature during this participation, because only God by, but only God by grace. Every experience of theosis is at its core rooted in participation in divine glory as a gift from God to man. 
It is equally rooted in the revelation that the glory of the word and the essence of the word are not the same. When you participate in the word's glory, you are not, you are not also participating in the word's essence. You can participate in the word's energy, but not in the word's being. But the word, who is the natural source of glory, does participate in the essence of the archetype, who is the Father. Therefore, the relationship between the Father and the Word is a natural and essential relationship. They are not related by grace, because the Word is God by nature and not by grace. The glory from the Father naturally belongs to the Word. It is not His by grace. But when the Father gives His glory to the Word, He does not give the Word His fatherhood. So the Father is related to the Word as the source of the Word's existence, but not as the source of the existence of the Word's glory, because the glory that the Father gives to the Word is the very selfsame glory of the Father. Therefore, the Word also becomes a natural source of glory, but this glory of the Word is derived not only, not only from the Word, but also from the Father. Although the Word receives His existence from the Father, He does not receive the Father's existence. The Word is not the Father. The Word and the Father are different persons. So we can speak about God the Father and God the Word. Nevertheless, we do not have two gods, but one Godhead, because they have the same nature and glory. Someone in a state of theosis perceives these distinctions at their very root. He is well aware that he is personally is, is not God by nature, so he can conclude that he does not participate in God's existence, but in his energy. He also realizes that the grace of theosis is a gift of God to man. While the Word participates in the glory of the Father by nature and not by grace, man participates in this glory by grace. In both the Old and New Testament, the Word participates in the glory of the Father by nature. But the Incarnation introduces the Word's human nature to this participation, and human nature itself is united to the Word by nature and not by grace. So, in the person of Christ, there is a natural union and a hypostatic union of Christ's two natures, human and divine. This union is not a gift or charismatic state. In other words, Christ is not a prophet, but the Word himself who became man. A human being gains this knowledge through an experience of theosis when he is united with the glory of the Word and through the glory of the Word with the glory of the Father. And this knowledge in turn compels the church to make a clear distinction between God's essence and energy. Thus, when someone becomes God by grace during the experience of theosis, God forms a relationship with this person through his energy and will, but not by means of his essence or nature. God is naturally and hypostatically united to human nature only at the incarnation in Christ, the incarnate word. This union between the uncreated and the created in the person of Christ is by nature and not by grace. Christ is by nature God. In the person of Christ, we are not dealing with a union that is the result of a gift, but with a natural union of divine and human nature. This union is simultaneously also hypostatic because of the hypostasis that was united to the human nature was neither the Father's hypostases nor the Holy Spirit's hypostases. It was the hypostases of the Son or Word, the Logos. 
Again, how do we know this? We know this from the experience of theosis. The experience of theosis verifies and reconfirms that Christ's human nature is united with the Word, but not with the Father or the Holy Spirit. So we know, first of all, that when we behold Christ, we behold the source of uncreated glory, and second, that the only person in the Holy Trinity to be incarnate is the Word, and not the Father or the Holy Spirit. If we examine these clearly biblical experiences from every angle, we can immediately see why the Church felt obligated with the passage of time to speak about one essence and three hypostases, as well as about the one natural energy of God's essence. Now the Word became flesh, but the Father and the Holy Spirit did not become flesh. This means that in terms of the Incarnation, the three persons are somehow different, and this difference means that something is not shared. So in the Holy Trinity, certain characteristics are not shared or held in common. These characteristics are the persons, the quality of being the Father, the quality of being the Son, and the quality of being the Holy Spirit. The three persons of the Holy Trinity are what is not shared among themselves. Of course, here in Greece, there are some books that refer to, to a communion of persons in the Holy Trinity, but the Fathers never spoke about a communion of persons in the Holy Trinity. Rather, they speak about an incommunicability of persons. In other words, the persons are not shared with each other. In the Holy Trinity, there is only communion in essence and in the natural energy of the person's essence. In this case, there is an identical there, if Loison, there is an identity of energy and an identity of essence. This energy and this essence are what are held in common in the Holy Trinity. The hypostases are not shared. These incommunicable features are what characterize each hypostasis. What is the reason for all of this? The Father is the source of existence for the Word and for the Holy Spirit. In other words, He gives existence to the Logos and to the Holy Spirit. He gives existence to their hypostases, but he does not give existence to the essence or to the natural energy of the essence of the Word and of the Holy Spirit. In other words, the Father's essence and natural energy are in communion with the Word's and the Holy Spirit's essence and with the natural energy of their essence, but the Father remains the source of the existence of the hypostases of the Word and the hypostases of the Holy Spirit. In terms of expressions, the Fathers could also have used other sets of terms in order to express these mysteries, which are really inexpressible. Nevertheless, the terminology that held sway in the Church was the one employed in her struggles against the heresies that she confronted. The Church has always adjusted her terminology in order to clarify and bolster her teaching in response to concrete heresies that rose up against her. This is the reason why the terminology for her teachings always developed in connection with the heresies that sprouted up and not because some theologians in the church had a desire to probe deeper into orthodox theology. The fathers did not practice metaphysics. Intellectual probing of theological subjects does not exist within the patristic tradition. There is simply a clarification of the terms used for the mysteries of the church and of the descriptions of these mysteries, but there is no attempt to probe them. So the history of Orthodox theology is not the history of the attempt made by certain theologians to speculate philosophically on doctrine, 
From an orthodox viewpoint, someone probes more deeply into dogmas only when he uses them in his attempt to reach the state of illumination. This is the orthodox way to probe more deeply into the mysteries and dogmas. It is not an intellectual probing that aims at attempting to comprehend the mysteries or the dogmas or to enter their depths. Dogmas cannot be comprehended. In fact, dogmas are annulled in an experience of theosis because they are replaced by the very living truth that they express. Dogmas are simply guides to God. When you behold God, then dogma is set aside. So this is the context for the patristic distinctions between essence and energy as well as for the distinctions between the hypostases in God. Other sets of terms in this context include three hypostases, one essence, natural energy of essence, natural energy of the essence, divine grace, consubstantial, generation, procession, and so forth. Are these distinctions philosophical? In other words, are they ontological or metaphysical distinctions? The answer is no, because they are deiform distinctions. They are made in a way befitting God. In view of the experience of theosis, these distinctions have no relationship whatsoever with philosophical reflection. Those who did speculate, speculate philosophically on these subjects fell into heresy. Chapter 65, The Distinction Between Essence and Energy Now what is the difference between the philosophical distinction between essence and energies and the patristic distinction between essence and energies? One of the greatest problems faced by the early church was Aristotle's philosophy and his teaching on entelechy. This teaching says that every being that changes into another being has a potential principle and an active principle. For example, a seed is potentially a tree. So a seed is not perfect, but imperfect or incomplete. The seed becomes perfect or is perfected when it grows and develops into a tree after having been planted and watered. In other words, the seed's perfection lies in it having become a tree. Entelechy is present in all things that change. As the changeable things changes, from a potential being into an actual being it is perfected. Now Aristotle observed this process in all things that change. He differentiated things that do not change from those that do. In other words, he made a separate category after what is observed in nature for beings in which change from a potential state to an active state does not occur. These things are unchanging because they are not, because they are by nature perfect or complete. And why are they perfect by nature? They are perfect because they are not natural and do not change. For Aristotle, the visible celestial bodies that seem to be unchanging belong to this metaphysical category after natural things, because the ancients believed that the celestial bodies moved in a way that did not change. The Aristotelian philosophy created some serious problems for the Christians because the philosopher said that the God of the Christians is not really God because he undergoes change. In other words, since Christians claimed that there was a time when the world did not exist, this meant to the philosophers that although God was potentially the creator of the world, he actually became the creator of the world after creation. That is, the God of the Christians was imperfect because he created the world in order to become perfect and needed the world in order to be perfected. The Aristotelians said that the Christian God could not exist without the world. And when Christians claimed that God loved mankind, the Aristotelians interpreted this in a platonic fashion to mean that God was in love with the world. But erotic love is a weakness for Platonists, since they would reason that if someone has an erotic love for an object, it is because he is in need of it. 
If he did not need it, he would not be in love with it. So God is in need of the world, and that is why also he is in love with the world. In this context, certain Christians felt the need to respond to these Aristotelian arguments and took refuge in the distinction that the fathers made between essence and energy. In other words, they told the Aristotelians that by essence, God is neither potentially the creator nor actively the creator. God is by essence immutable because he is absolutely free. His will cannot be identified with his essence. If God's ability to will were identified with God's essence, then God would not be free. But since God is free, essence and energy are not identical in God. This is the reason why God does all things through volition and never on account of his essence, because if God acted on account of his essence, he would then be enslaved to some necessity. So if God were potentially the creator by essence and later actually became the creator by essence, the Aristotelians would certainly be right in saying that God was in need of the world. Now, in this way, the Christians were highly successful in taking these contrasts and applying them to make their case to the Aristotelians. So on the basis of this line of reasoning, the Christian's answer was that God does not do anything on account of his essence, but does everything through the exercise of his will. Therefore, God is free. Hence, God could, could have not created the world because the world does not add anything to him. By essence, God is what he is, but he does what he does through the, will, through the use of his will and not on account of his essence. In other words, he acts with absolute freedom and without being coerced by anything. So some Christians took the distinction made by the fathers between essence and energy and God and turned it into, turned it into the philosophical syllogism that we have just described. And we say that they turned this distinction into a philosophical syllogism because everything that we have said so far has to do with philosophical distinction between essence and energy and God. It is worth noting, however, that this philosophical distinction between essence and energy would become a seedbed for heresies. Now, the patristic distinction between essence and energies does not have anything to do with philosophical speculation, but is derived from the experience of theosis. Apparently, the church fathers were not very impressed by the arguments against Aristotle advanced by the heretical movements of Paul of Samosata, among others, because their own way of, approached the, their own way of approaching the dogma about the creation of the world was not philosophical. But their tactics were not philosophical, because they had learned the distinction between the created and the uncreated from the experience of theosis and knew that the Bible did not speculate philosophically when it spoke about the creation of the world. Notwithstanding this philosophical distinction between essence and energy in God was apparently the reason why a very large number of idolaters became um, decided to become Christians. This distinction was very powerful and continues to be very powerful. After all, I've been personally using this distinction for years. The first edition of my book, The Ancestral Sin, was based from beginning to end on this philosophical distinction between essence and energy in God, but I will straighten out this issue in the book's new edition. Footnote 193 is referring to the revised edition that, of Ancestral Sin that came out in 1992. Returning to the text, nevertheless, by using the philosophical distinction between essence and energy in God, I convinced many heterodox who could not understand the empirical distinction between essence and energy that this distinction is necessary. Yes, on the one hand I convinced them on this issue, but on the other hand I convinced them in the wrong way, because I later discovered that the fathers did not make a philosophical distinction between essence and energy and God, but an empirical distinction. 
In other words, the distinction was the biblical distinction that is based on the experience of theosis and not on philosophy. On these issues, Origen is really quite orthodox. He is heretical on other issues because he accepted the pre-existence of Christ's soul, the restoration of all things in the heretical form of this teaching, the pre-existence of human souls, and so forth. In other words, Origen held some superstitious ideas like these. Nevertheless, Origen is not the father of Arianism. The father of Arianism is clearly Paul of Samosata. The root of the evil was at first the dynamic monarchians and later the modal monarchians. Footnote 194. The rationalistic or dynamic monarchians viewed Christ as a mere man filled with divine power, but they believed that this divine power was active in him from the beginning. Representative figures include Paul of Samosata, Theologians or Alogi, Theodotus, and Artemos. The Patrapassian or modalistic monarchians identified the Son with the Father and admitted at most only a modal trinity that is a threefold mode of, of threefold mode of revelation but not a a triper a, a tripersonality representative figures of this heresy included praxius noetus callistus and berlus end of uh, footnote 194 translator's note Continuing to the text, the dynamic monarchians had two offshoots, the Arians on the one hand, who, whose onset can be traced to Lucian, and the Nestorians on the other hand, who became heretics over Christolo Christological questions. Arianism and Nestorianism have the very same philosophical foundation. They are both based on turning the distinction between essence and energy in God into a philosophical distinction. A few years ago, this view was generally held the view was generally held that in the beginning only the Cappadocian fathers made the distinction between essence and energy and God under limited conditions on the basis of their experience of theosis and that later only St. Gregory Palamas made the clear distinction between essence and energy and God. But even Arius makes the distinction between essence and energy and God. So it was discovered that in addition to the patristic distinction between essence and energy that is based on the experience of theosis, there is also a heretical distinction between essence and energy, which is based, however, on the use of philosophy and which we have just described. Here we have a classic example of someone taking from the church a teaching that is based on the experience of theosis, using the teaching for philosophical speculation, ultimately being harmed in this way and becoming the originator of many other heresies. This is also how the philosophical distinction between, between essence and energy and God became the basis of the heresy of Paul of Samosata and of Lucian, who was one of Paul of Samosata's followers. Paul of Samosata's spiritual grandchildren were the Arians, and his spiritual great-grandchildren were the Nestorians. So it is worth noting that the first three ecumenical councils had to deal with the same philosophical distinctions that gave rise to the three forms of heresy mentioned above. This philosophical line of thought took shape in the vicinity of Antioch, was based on the distinction between the essence and energy of God, a distinction that both ancient Jews and early Christians made. Christians in the early church employed this philosophical distinction between essence and energy of God in their conflict with the Aristotelians, and apparently dealt them a mortal blow by using these arguments that were derived from this philosophical distinction. You can find details of their arguments in some writings that are attributed to St. Justin Martyr, the philosopher, 
although it has been demonstrated that these writings do not really belong to him. You can also find such arguments in Origen's against Silas, in which Origen responded to a philo philosophizing idolater who poked fun at Christian teachings. One of the points that the idolater mocked was the Christian teaching about the creation of the world. Of course, today, this all might sound like a joke to someone who grew up in an Orthodox environment where Orthodoxy is guarded on all sides by the Air Force, Army, and Navy. Uh, footnote 196, this protection in which Orthodoxy is constitutionally provided for as the official state religion may have held true in 1983, but it no longer holds true today. Returning to the text, and who does not understand how powerful this philosophical thought is and how cognate the objection to the orthodox teaching concerning the creation of the world was. But all the scholastic theologians were preoccupied with this very question. In fact, it was a determining factor in the development of the scholastic tradition. The post-scholastic post philosophers in the West were also preoccupied with this subject. And up to the present, there are still some philosophers and theologians who study these issues. Chapter 66 on the existence of God and the creation of the world. Now at certain points the question about the creation of the world is interwoven with the philosophical problem concerning the existence of God, although they remain simultaneously independent issues. The idolaters' philosophical arguments against the existence of the Christian God were the same as their philosophical arguments against the doctrine of creation. In other words, the idolaters would say, you Christians claim that there is a God who is the creator and that he is perfect. And if this God were perfect, why would he have the need to create the world? The creation of the world philosophically proves that God is different before the world's existence and after it came into being. After all, if God were perfect and perfectly happy with himself, if God were love that loves itself, if we can use Christian categories about love in this case, he could not have had the need to create the world. But the Christian God apparently created the world because he is not perfect. This use of philosophical arguments against the Christian faith rested on the philosophical distinction between the essence and energy in God. But the Church's distinction is not a philosophical distinction. It stems from God's revelation to man. In other words, it is experiential. This is how the Church proves the distinction between essence and energy in God because this distinction is based on the experience of those who have attained theosis. In like manner, the Church also proves the existence of God on the basis of experience. For the Church Fathers, perhaps the only argument that can demonstrate the existence of God is a fact and not a proof governed by dialectics and logic. And what is this fact? There exists a group of human beings called prophets, apostles, and saints who have seen God. A philosopher or scientist, regardless of whether he, whether or not he is an atheist, is obligated to respond in some way to this assertion that the prophets, apostles, and saints have seen God. He cannot pass over it with indifference. In other words, you will either believe it or you will not believe it. You will either admit that these people saw God and that what, they, and that what we call the experience of theosis exists, or you will discuss this topic in order to determine whether or not the state states of illumination and theosis are, are a reality. But in order for this discussion to, to take place, certain conditions and common criteria must also be present. A proper scientific discussion cannot take place with people who spot off 
ready-made answers because someone who spouts off ready-made answers will say yes or no in advance even before the discussion begins and will not get beyond his foregone conclusions. An example of such a person would be would be that that dedicated Orthodox Christian who was raised in the church and grew up around the altar. When he was a little boy, he would hold the censer for the priest and would enjoy going to receive Holy Communion because that little bit of sweet wine tasted good. He would also look forward to receiving Andiderone on Sunday because he was getting hungry and had been waiting for the Divine Liturgy to end. Later, he would become a chanter and so forth. In other words, we are talking about someone who has been absolutely convinced since childhood that the Orthodox doctrine that he believes believes in is correct. He accepts as a given the correctness of Orthodox worship in which he has taken part his entire life. He takes its correctness for granted. He does not harbor the slightest doubt about anything. Everything in Orthodoxy is beautiful and right just the way he believes in it and understands it. In other words, such a person does not leave any room for investigation and inquiry into the rightness and the truth of his beliefs. He has no doubts and for that matter never did. Perhaps he will even go to college without ever doubting these things, since he will only be interested in passing his exams so that he can get his degree and find a position in the Greek school system where he will be set for life. He might also become a priest and try to qualify for the highest salary category so that he can set up, can be set up in a parish, have a good life, and marry off his children. Naturally, this kind of person does not have the wherewithal for a scientific discussion. Everything he believes in is beautiful as long as it has the backing of the armed forces. But pious and zealous Orthodox Christians are not alone in being absolutely convinced about their religion. There are also those outside of Orthodoxy with a corresponding mindset. For example, Muslims, such as the Iranians, who supported Khomeini, believe that if they preserve the correct faith, God will grant them relative material prosperity, and so forth. Footnote 197, in 1983, when these lectures were delivered, there were still fresh impressions about the Islamic revolution of Ayatollah Khamenei in Iran in 1979. Returning to the text, But when you leave Greek territory and the protection of the Greek armed forces, it is a different situation. Each church lives in its own space and by means of its own strengths. And these churches outside of Greece wage war with each other on the basis of ideas and convictions. Lately, the churches of the West that belong to the scholastic and Protestant tradition have been having a rough time of it, and there is a noticeably and appreciable turning towards orthodoxy. In Germany alone, there are 200,000 Germans who have already become orthodox, but these converts usually go to the Russian church to be baptized because of an agreement between the ecumenical patriarch and the local Greek Orthodox Church of Germany, which is under the ecumenical patriarch. They have agreed not to admit converts to the faith or to the ranks of the clergy. I am not so sure, however, if this agreement is valid under canon law, because according to the canons of the church, every bishop has the responsibility to guide heretics or non-Christians under his jurisdiction to orthodoxy. He is obligated to do this. And according to the canons, any bishop who refuses to accept a repentant heretic into the, into the orthodox church is to be deposed. Apparently, the ecumenical patriarch considers heretics to be a thing of the past. At any rate, these questions about the creation of the world and the philosophical way of viewing these problems are quite important in Western society outside of Greece. You only need to study philosophy in the West from the post-scholastic period until the current era in order to see how Western thinkers repeatedly try to use philosophy to solve this simple problem. In other words, they repeatedly struggle both with the question of how a perfect God can be considered the creator of the world and with the meaning of the creation ex nihilo. Given that nihil is non-existence, 
the problem is how God brought beings into existence from non-existence while he himself always existed. In this case, the basic categories in Orthodox theology are the created and the uncreated. The created comes from non-existence or non-being, while the uncreated is not created, always existed, and always will exist. All uncreated things always existed and always will exist, whereas all created things are derived from non-existence and will exist in the future, provided that God wills that they exist. This is the teaching of Holy Scripture. This is the teaching of the Jewish tradition before the writings of the Old Testament. This is also the teaching of the Church. But as soon as someone tries to speculate philosophically about this teaching, he will encounter the difficulties that we have just described. In other words, the difficulties come from making this teaching part of a philosophical syllogism. But perhaps one of you will ask, where did the prophets, apostles, and saints learn about these dogmas on creation ex nihilo, the created, the uncreated, and so forth? First of all, they learned them from the Bible once the Bible was written, but where did the prophets learn about these dogmas in the period prior to the writing of the Bible? What was there before Holy Scripture? There was the oral Hebrew tradition from Adam to Moses. And who is at the heart of this oral tradition? Who are the people that conveyed it from one generation to the next? They are the patriarchs and the prophets. The patriarchs lived before the existence of the written text of the Old Testament. But what made them bearers of this tradition? How were the patriarchs different from other people? They were different because they had the vision of God. They saw God. Even Adam and Eve were God's seers. This core of tradition is the vision of God, this encounter between God and his friends, the patriarchs and the prophets. In other words, the core of this tradition is related to a certain kind of experience. The experience of the church fathers and the saints is recorded in their lives informs us that they were able to verify these teachings for themselves through the experience of theosis. From this experience they learned that there is no similarity between the created and the uncreated and that God is self-existent, since he is not similar to created things and since his existence is not caused by anything else. In other words, God has no antecedent as the cause of his existence. Footnote 198, the law of cause and effect, dependent on proximity in time and space, the temporary priority of the cause and continuous contact does not apply to God. Translator's note, returning to the text. In other words, God has no antecedent as the cause of his existence. God the Father exists on account of his existence. Import, uh, footnote 199, this self-existence was revealed by the very name of God, entrusted it to Moses when he saw the pre-incarnate word in the burning bush. Quote, and Moses said unto God, Behold, when I come unto the children of Israel, and shall say unto them, The God of your fathers hath sent me unto you, and they shall say to me, What is his name? What shall I say unto them? And God said unto Moses, I am that I am. And he said, Thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, I am hath sent me unto you. End of quote. Exodus chapter 3, verses 13 through 14. End of footnote and translator's note. Returning to the text. In the experience of Theosis, the fathers also learned that the archetypal light is the cause of the existence of both the Word, or the incarnate image of the light, that is Christ and the Holy Spirit. They also discovered during the experience of Theosis that the third persons, that the three persons of the Trinity have one and the same glory and essence. Of course, the fathers and the saints did not experience God's essence because no man has ever experienced God's essence, 
but some people have experienced the natural energy of God's essence or the glory of God. By experience, they verified that there is a thrice radiant Godhead in one Godhead or in one light. In other words, one light is three lights, but they are not three separate lights. Someone in a state of theosis sees the archetypal light in one light by means of another light. This is the cornerstone of their experience. But they also found out that all created beings come from non-being. Although all created things exist by an act of God's will, they did not issue forth from God, that is, from the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. They came forth from non-being. And the fathers determined even this from the experience of theosis. So we can see that the church fathers and the saints share the same self-same experience with the patriarchs and the prophets. They all confirmed the same truths. So the distinction between the hypostases of God, between God's essence and energy, between the incarnate word and God, and between the, 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 between the theosis of the incarnate word and the theosis of human beings are all based on the experience of theosis. In the church, all these shades of meaning expressed in the form of various sets of terms have the experience of theosis as their ultimate foundation. This is the reason why the distinction made by the church between God's essence and energy is not a philosophical distinction, but, but a clearly empirical one. Chapter 67, Heretics and Their Teachings Now, as we've mentioned earlier, heretics made a philosophical distinction between God's essence and energy. Although the biblical distinction is not a philosophical distinction, the heretics took the biblical distinction and turned it into a philosophical distinction. These heretics include Paul of Samosata, Lucian, the followers of Lucian, or the Arians, and afterwards the Nestorians who belong to the same tradition as those who precede them. Paul of Samosata taught that there is not a natural union of the two natures in Christ, but a union by an act of will, by energy, or as he himself mentions, in certain passages, a union in terms of quality. In other, in other words, there was no union in Christ between divine nature and the words human nature, not a union between God's energy and the energy of the words human nature. This is why Paul of Samosada was condemned as a heretic. But he was not only a heretic on account of the way in which he made the distinction between essence and energy in God, he was also a heretic on account of his Trinitarian teaching. That is, he denied the existence of the three persons in the Holy Trinity. He did not believe that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit were permanent distinctions in God. Instead, he taught that there were temporary distinctions, that God has only one essence and one hypostasis, which has its own energy, and this energy can be the Word or the Holy Spirit. So the hypostasis of God the Father has the energy of the Word and the energy of the Holy Spirit. Consequently, the Word and the Holy Spirit have become two uncreated energies of God. For Paul of Samosata, there is an incarnation of the energy of God, but not the incarnation of the hypostasis of God the Word. Hence, Christ is not God incarnate, but an inspired human being or a human being in whom God dwells. This is why Paul of Samosata was condemned as a heretic, not only for his Trinitarian teaching, but also for his Christological teaching. In other words, he was a heretic twice over. But afterwards, his disciple Lucian modified the teaching of Paul of Samosata, and you can recognize this modification only if you take into account the fact that Paul of Samosata was a heretic. Lucian adjusted the above teaching because Paul of Samosata was condemned. The followers of Paul of Samosata, Lucian, and his disciples, who were Arians, attached to the Godhead, 
the two hypostases of the Son and the Holy Spirit, an addition that Paul of Samosata would not accept, and they did this so that they would not share his fate and be condemned as heretics as well. Since we do not possess the writings of Lucian himself, we have to turn to the writings of the Arians who were students of Lucian in order to learn that this adjustment was made. In other words, Arius, Eusebius of Nicodemia, Nicomedia, and others inform us that this modification was made. Since Paul of Samosata was condemned on account of his refusal to accept Christ's essential union with the hypostases of the Word as well as Christ's natural union with the essence of God, they added that the Incarnation was also by nature and by hypostases. So the followers of Lucian taught that God is three hypostases, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that Christ is God and man, and that the union of these two natures in Christ is natural and moreover by essence. If someone were to encounter this adjustment, he would say, hmm, they teach just like the Orthodox. How can we take offense at them and at their disciple, Arius? After all, even Arius said that the word was begotten of the Father before the ages, which is precisely what all the church fathers were saying. So why should the Arians and Arius be heretics? But the Arians are the followers of Lucian, made a philosophical distinction between essence and energy in God, and this distinction put them in the position of being compelled to teach that the Father and the Son cannot be related by essence, because a relation by essence means a relation by necessity. This is why God cannot beget the Word by nature, but creates the Word by energy and an act of will. After all, God cannot have compulsory relations with another essence. The Arians went so far as to accept that the Word is a hypostasis, the Father is a hypostasis, and that there are two pre-creation hypostases, or hypostases, that existed before the creation of the world. But they could not admit the possibility of the hypostases of God the Father and the hypostases of the Word were related by essence. The two hypostases had to be related by energy and an act of will. They claimed that God the Father has relations with all hypostases and all beings by an act of will and by energy, but not by essence because God is absolutely free and not subject to any necessity. So if by essence means by necessity, it follows that the Father does not beget the word by essence, but by energy or by an act of will. Although this theory is at the heart of Arius' teachings, it is derived from Paul of Samosata, who did not accept the dogma of the Holy Trinity or, or a real incarnation. After all, according to Paul of Samosata, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit do not stand for three hypostases, but the word Father does, does represent the single hypostasis of the Father. So in God, there is one hypostasis and there is one essence. And this one hypostasis or essence of God has an energy that is called the Word and another energy that is called the Holy Spirit. The Word, the Logos, is for him God's reasonable energy while the Holy Spirit is God's loving energy. So, in Paul of Samosata's teaching, there is one hypostasis, one essence, with one energy, which is reasonable, creative, preserving, loving, and so forth. But these energies of God are grounded in Paul of Samosata's philosophical distinction between God's essence and energy. He really did make this distinction, but what else did he do? He identified the Father with the essence or the hypostasis, and separated him from the energy, which are the Word and the Holy Spirit. For Paul of Samosata, God is not related to anything by essence. The energy of the Word and the energy of the Holy Spirit do not create a problem for Paul of Samosata because these energies are uncreated. But the Incarnation does create a problem. 
how does God become flesh? In his system, the uncreated energy of God that is called the Word becomes flesh, and a man who is named Christ is begotten of the Virgin, and this Word dwells within that man. Who is this Word? He is the uncreated Word, who, according to Paul of Samosata, is an energy of God. So in his teaching, Christ has his own human nature and hypostases, and the energy of God, which is called the Word, dwells within Christ. This is the reason why Christ is the Word, but he is not the incarnation of an hypostasis and a nature, but the incarnation of an energy of God. Of course, when Paul of Samosata was alive, essence and hypostasis meant the same thing, because this distinction between essence and hypostasis is a later distinction, as is this, the distinction between nature and hypostasis. So Paul of Samosata was condemned at two councils in Antioch around the year 277. He was condemned because he did not accept that there are truly three persons in the Holy Trinity, but he degraded two of the persons to energies and refused to accept the essential union of the two natures of Christ. At the time of these councils, the expression by essence was used. Of course, the terms essence and hypostasis were later distinguished from one another, and the more correct term hypostasis was used. This is why the Father spoke about hypostatic union and natural union, but rarely use the expression essential union. Of course you can use that expression, it is not wrong. After all, there is an essential union in Christ because there is a natural union in Christ. Nevertheless, the union is chiefly hypostatic since the word became the word alone became flesh. We have already mentioned the basic argument of the early Christians against the Aristotelians. It was so widely and successfully used by the heretics against the idolaters that in spite of the fact that Paul of Samosata was condemned for using this philosophical distinction between essence and energy in God, this philosophical distinction continued to sprout up again in the form of new heresies. This is how we can confirm the fact that the philosophical foundation is the same for the teaching of Paul of Samosata, Arianism, and Nestorianism. This fact means that this line of argumentation against the idolaters was so strong, very strong, that they become very deeply rooted in Christian tradition. After all, it was the reason why many idolaters became Christians. Paul of Samosata was condemned on two grounds. First, he was condemned for rejecting the hypostatic word. Secondly, he was condemned for rejecting the real incarnation of the essence of God, that is the essential union of two natures in Christ. These positions are in turn the foundations for the Arian heresy. So as we have already mentioned on account of Paul of Samosata's con condemnation, his grandchildren, the Arians, made an adjustment in his teaching. Perhaps they did so in order to keep their positions in the church and to continue to enjoy the benefits that accompany those positions. But what did Arius do to avoid condemnation in addition to Lucian's adjustment that we referred to earlier? Arius introduces an hypostatic word alongside of the unhypostatic word that he still retains. So on the one hand, Arius' writings refer to an uncreated, unhypostatic word or an uncreated energy of God that is called the word and thus retain a feature of the older teaching. On the other hand, his writings introduce a hypostatic word who is a created being and who is the one who becomes flesh. Although this hypostatic word is related to God by essence, that is by necessity, because he is dependent upon God, God is not related to this hypostatic word by essence, but only by energy and by an act of will. So God is free with respect to the hypostatic word, but this hypostatic word is not free with respect to God. He is 
a slave that is inferior to God as well as a created being who becomes an instrument for creation and so forth. According to Arius, this hypostasis of the word, this creation of God is the one who became flesh. Of course, he became flesh by necessity and not by an act of will. This hypostatic word is also united by essence with Christ's human nature, but for Arius, Christ's human nature is not complete in and of itself because the hypostatic logos takes the place of Christ's mind. So the human nature, um, <coughs> forgive me, so, so the human Christ has a created noose, intellect, and soul, but the guiding principle, the logos, of his created human existence is not the normal guiding principle, logos, that every human being has. Footnote 201. In most cases, we have followed theological convention and translated logos as word. Logos also designates the human spirit as expressed by human reason, logikon. In this case, the human logos is the guiding principle that reveals the contents of the human heart. It is not simply the ability to reason or to express the experience of the heart, but it is also the bearer of inward knowledge about who the person is as a whole. Tra end of translator's note, returning to the text. Instead, in Christ, the created hypostatic word, logos, created before the ages, takes the place of the created human guiding principle, logos. A footnote 202. In other words, for Arius, Christ is not the God-man, but a kind of superman. End of note. Returning to the text. So in this way, the Arians temporarily avoided being condemned like Paul of Samosota because they seemingly accepted three hypostases, or hypostases, as well as a natural and essential union in Christological doctrine. But in order to make this concession, they inserted an energy called the uncreated word between the hypostases of the Father and the hypostatic word. This energy is what, is what created the hypostatic word. God fashions his hypostatic word by means of his uncreated energy or uncreated word. So by energy and by an act of will, God fashions the hypostatic word and an energy of God comes between the hypostases of the Father and the hypostases of the word. So the Son of God or the created hypostatic word is the Son of an act of will or the Son of an energy. This is a basic doctrine for the Arians as the entire created cosmos is the result of God's uncreated energy. In like manner, the hypostatic word is also a result of God's uncreated energy. So the Orthodox and the Arians differ because the Orthodox reject the idea that the word could be a result of the Father's energy and maintain that the word possesses all the uncreated energies of the Father. According to the Orthodox, if an energy belongs to the Father, it also belongs to the word. Both of them possess the self-same energies, and neither one of them results from the energy of the other. But according to the Arians, the hypostatic word is the product and result of the Father's energy. At any rate, it was very difficult for the Church to discover Arius's heresy. In the beginning, many Orthodox did not realize that it was a heresy. Two teachings, however, caused it to betray itself. The first clue was that Arius said that the Father's that the Father fashioned and begot the hypostatic word before the ages, but ex nihilo, that is, not from the Father. But in the mind of the Fathers, nothing ex nihilo exists before the ages. Everything that exists before the ages is uncreated and from the Father. 
The creation of the ages is what begins creation ex nihilo. Afterwards follows the creation of the angels and the creation of time. Augustinian tradition has the notion that God is the eternal present and that for God everything is, is always in the present, including both things from the past and things in the future. In other words, both past and future form a continuous present for God. This notion led Augustine and his followers in Roman Catholicism to reason that if man could be liberated from time, then he would be able to grasp the continuous present or the eternal present. And when man would grasp that, he would be able to comprehend the uncreated and even envisage the essence of God. This entire theory about time developed by Augustine was decisive for the course taken by the scholastic tradition. In the patristic tradition, however, there is a sharp distinction between the ages and time. Although time exists within the ages, all created beings are not circumscribed by time because there are certain created beings, such as the ranks of angels, the demons, and the souls of the departed, who are independent of time and do not live in time but in the ages. This is the reason why they can move at lightning speed. This is why angels, demons, and the souls of the departed saints can move about so quickly that it seems as though they were are in many places at the same time. In other words, it seems that they are not restricted by time and space. The second clue that betrays Arius's heresy concerns the Incarnation. Throughout the duration of the conflict between the Orthodox and the Arians, their respective teachings intersected at certain points. They both taught that God is the only one who knows his essence and that God has an essential energy that is distinct from his essence, that is the distinction between essence and energy. This is the reason why at the time of creation God does not create the world through his essence but by an act of will or through his energy. So there is a union between God's uncreated energy and creation. Of course the various forms of God's uncreated energy differ from one another. After all God's creative energy is not the same as his preserving energy, his purifying energy, his looming illumining energy or his glorifying energy. They are not the same because if they were the same, then all creation would participate in the glorifying energy of God. All these observations stem from the Father's experience of theosis and lay the foundation for their teaching in response to the heretics. In other words, the starting point for the patristic teaching is the ability to differentiate and observe distinctions between the energies of God. The Arians took these observations and turned them into philosophical propositions. Although they accepted the distinction between essence and energy, they fought against the church by claiming that the word does not know the essence of God. They claimed that the proof of this is the fact that the word does not possess all of God's energies, since he does not know the day of judgment. They claimed that this proves that he is ignorant of certain things that only the Father knows. Consequently, since he does not possess all knowledge, this means that he also does not possess God's essence. In other words, the fact that he does not have knowledge of all God's energies is proof that he also does not know the essence of God. In this dispute, both the Arians and the Orthodox went through the entire Bible, divided it into sections, made three columns, one for each person of the Holy Trinity, and recorded one by one in each column all the energies that are mentioned in the Bible. They would write down one set of energies as the energies of the Father, another set of energies as the energies of the Son, and yet a third set of energies as the energies of the Holy Spirit. In other words, they arranged this information in a table. This is how the Orthodox were able to determine that all the energies that the Father possesses, the Son possesses as well, 
and that all the energies that the Father and the Son possess, the Spirit also possesses. Having said this, that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit have the same energies, the Orthodox could conclude that they also have the same essence, since these energies are the natural energies of the essence. So the three hypostases have communion of essence and essential energies. This is what the fathers taught. But then the Ar- but then Arius came on the scene and said, Hold on, this is not how it is. Although the Father has all these energies, the Word does not have all of them. The Word only has some of the energies. Afterwards, he said that the Holy Spirit does not even have all the energies that the Son has. This is how a conflict was provoked that lasted for years, from the First Ecumenical Council of 325 A.D. until the Second Ecumenical Council of 381 A.D. The Church Fathers responded that the Arians' assertion that by essence means by necessity was not true. Therefore, the philosophical problem posed by Arius does not have anything to do with the Father begetting the Word by essence, because just as by an act of will does not mean by necessity in God, likewise by essence does not mean by necessity in God. When we speak about something taking place by essence, we begin by looking at the experience of theosis and not by looking into some philosophical problem. But let's suppose that the problem were philosophical. We know that there is no similarity between the created and the uncreated. The existence of something in creation does not imply that it also exists in God. When we speak about God, we use human language and human concepts, but nothing implies that these words and concepts are fitting for God, literally speaking, simply because during an experience of theosis, all prophecies and interpretations of Holy Scripture, all languages and concepts, as well as the human language that refers to God, passes away because God transcends all things human. There is a beautiful passage in St. Dionysius the Areopagite's writings in which he tells us that during the experience of theosis, man discerns that God is neither unity nor trinity, that God is not one, that God is not God, is not love, and so forth. And the reason for this is that no name or concept exists that is capable of conveying what God is. Man cannot grasp God. It is impossible. Concepts and words are used only to guide man to God, but not to convey or explain anything about God. The core of the Aryan teaching about God is that by essence and by nature mean by necessity, while by energy and by an act of will mean freedom. So since God is free, they make this this distinction between essence and energy in God in order to safeguard God's freedom. In this way, God creates the world in absolute freedom without the creation of the world being a necessity of his essence or nature. In other words, he created the world solely because he wanted to do so. If he did not want to do so, he would not have created the world. In this way, the arguments of the Platonists and the Aristotelians were invalidated because God is not obligated to create something in order to perfect himself, as were the arguments of the Gnostics, who saw creation in terms of their theory of emanations from the highest being, so that the creation of the world ends up being portrayed in terms of negation, weakness, or ignorance, a downward fall from the highest being. Now, this philosophical line of thought that the heretics made made standard in the region of Antioch was extremely powerful and a great many idolaters became Christians on account of these arguments. In spite of this fact, the church rejected this line of reasoning. But why would the church reject it? Arius accused Athanasius the Great of introducing necessity into God by saying that the Father begets the Word by nature and not by an act of will, as Arius maintained. Arius's accusation 
was that Athanasius's statement was like an affirmation that the Father is compelled by necessity to beget the Word and cause the Holy Spirit to process. Nevertheless, the fathers consider the generation of the Word and the procession of the Holy Spirit to be, a nat to be natural to God and not a matter of God's volition. Of course, the Incarnation does take place by God's active will, so the natural union of the two natures of Christ does exist in the Incarnation. So why did the fathers reject this teaching of Arius? What was wrong with Arius's teaching? Arius was in agreement with apophatic theology that man cannot know God's essence. According to the patristic tradition, God is incomprehensible and unknowable in his essence. The same held, held true in the early Western tradition with the exception of Augustine. When the fathers say that God is known through his energy, this does not mean that we have an intellectual knowledge about God's energy, but that those in a state of illumination and theosis participate in his energy. According to the Holy Fathers, although certain energies of God can become known intellectually from the effects God has on created nature, real knowledge about God's energies is found in the experience of illumination and theosis. Real knowledge about God's energies cannot be found in intellectual knowledge, which is the result of observation and philosophical reflection on God's influence on creation. Now, Arius was so devoted to apathotic theology and insisted so emphatically that God is incomprehensible and unknowable in his essence that he reaches the point of saying that even the Word himself does not know God's essence. But even if we were to say that the Word himself does not know God's essence, if we were to accept this hypo hypo hypothesis that God is not even related by essence to the Word, why does it necessarily follow that by essence means by necessity in God? Does it follow simply because this is what happens in, in nature to a seed? But in the meantime, the Nestorian heresy appeared. And while the Arians taught that God could not be related by essence to a being with another essence or to another hypostasis, Theodore of Mopsutia said that God is related by essence to the hypostasis of the Word as well as to the hypostasis of the Holy Spirit, but not to beings who are created ex nihilo. So he accepted that within the Holy Tradition the Father is related by essence to the Word and to the Holy Spirit, but he also taught that the Holy Trinity is not related in such a way with created beings. This is the reason why the shape of his Trinitarian thought was accepted as being more or less orthodox, but he was quite mistaken in his thought about the Incarnation, because he could not accept that in Christ the Word was hypostatically and naturally united with his human nature. In other words, he rejected the natural union of the two natures of Christ because he held to the philosophical presupposition that God's relations by essence are relations by necessity, and that his relations by energy and by volition are relations of freedom. This is the Nestorian heresy that refused to accept the Word's natural union and his human nature, but accepted a union by an act of will and according to his good pleasure. Up until this point, the arguments against the heretics are formed in a similar way. The Church Fathers opposed the position of both the Arians and the Nestorians by stating that by nature does not mean by necessity. Nature does not mean coercion. But why do they say this? If a seed from a tree is watered and cared for, can that seed ever say for itself, I am not going to grow? Of course not, because according to Aristotle, the seed contains an inward entelechy so that under the right conditions the seed spontaneously develops into a tree whether it wants to or not. In this way, the seed behaves according to nature 
or according to its essence. In other words, in a favorable climate, an inward necessity propels it towards perfection so that it becomes a tree. Aristotle took this natural process from the created sphere as an example and applied it to the uncreated realm. But whenever you take a category from created nature and attribute it to an uncreated nature, you go off course. It is a mistake. With this mistake, the idolaters put forward their argument that God is in need of the world in order to be perfected and that he created the world in order to be perfected. The heretics, in turn, opposed the idolaters' line of reasoning with their own argument. Granted, the heretics dealt with the idolaters, but they did so on the basis of philosophical distinction between essence and energy and God. Using this distinction, they supposedly re relieved God from being coerced into the creating the world. This distinction allows for God to be free to create the world if he so wills and sets him apart from a seed that will develop into a tree whether it wants to or not because it cannot, have, because it cannot behave differently. But the fathers rejected this argument that was put forward by the followers of Paul of Samosato and Arius. Why did they reject it? According to the Arians, what takes place by an act of will is a freely chosen activity or energy while what takes place by essence is an activity or energy resulting from coercion. Paul of Mapsutia said that beings that are homoousia or of the same essence are exceptions to this rule. In other words, entities that are of the same essence, such as the three persons in the Trinity, can be related by essence, since God is the necessary being or the one who necessarily exists. In this way, the Nestorians accepted that in the Holy Trinity, the Father begets the Son by essence and makes the Holy Spirit proceed by essence. However, in the Incarnation, the Nestorians claimed that the Word could not possibly be related by essence to Christ's human nature. This is the reason why the Incarnation only takes place by good, good pleasure or by energy. This is also the reason why they were condemned. Arius was condemned because he insisted that the Father was related to the Word and the Holy Spirit by energy and not by essence. The Nestorians were condemned because they did not accept the natural or hypostatic union in Christ between the Word and Christ's human nature. In other words, although the Nestorians made an exception for the doctrine of the Holy Trinity, they apparently held on to this philosophical principle in their Christology so that they would be able to preserve their philosophy for missionary purposes with idolaters. But when the Church came along and told them that this argument is invalid not only in Trinitarian doctrine but also in Christology, in other words, these are not cases where you can apply the principle that what takes place by essence takes place by necessity. So how are we to pass judgment on the heretics' claim that in God what takes place by essence takes place by necessity and that what takes place by an act of will and by energy implies freedom? This line of reasoning covers the period up to the Fifth Ecumenical Council and reappears in scholastic theology, which followed the, the theology of Augustine. And we can see the, the issues raised by this argument present throughout the philosophical discussions at the Ecumenical Councils as well as in the Western history of philosophy until our time. There are many people who do not accept the Christian teaching about the creation of the world because they cannot picture a God who does not have a need to create the world for his own perfection. So the question of freedom remains an important issue. The fathers speak about orthodox doctrine with great simplicity. 
but their writings become difficult when they begin to deal with heresies. So how did the fathers handle the Arians and the Nestorians on this subject? How did Athanasius the Great of Alexandria and Cyril of Alexandria respond to Theodore of Syros and Nestorius on these subjects? The same response happens to have been given to all the heretics. The same response given to the heretics at the First Ecumenical Council is also given to the heretics at the Second, Third, Fourth, and Fifth Ecumenical Councils. And this is their response. Categories such as necessity and freedom, which are taken from the created world, are irrelevant with respect to God. Since there is no similarity between God and created beings, the philosophical problem posed by Aristotle concerning potential and active states is also non-existence in discourse about God. Aristotelian philosophical categories are taken from nature. Why in nature does something in a potential state change into an actual state given the right conditions? Because that is how its nature is. In other words, there is something within its nature that forces it to develop into its final form. But since there is no similarity between the created and the uncreated, all attempts in both Holy Scripture and theology to describe the experiences where the uncreated is revealed are attempts to describe the indescribable, even though it is literally impossible to do so. God is indescribable, so we cannot use Aristotle's entelechy as a philosophical model because entelechy is based on the observations of created nature. We also cannot cite rules from Aristotle's philosophy because these rules are also taken from visible creation. We cannot even use his his own metaphysics because some of its the subjects that he examines after physics are also visible. We cannot apply any of these principles to God, who is a person who does not resemble anything created. For example, we say that this person is free if he does some things on account of nature because he cannot do otherwise or avoid doing so, and other things by an act of will if he wants to do them. This distinction between what takes place in nature and what takes place by an act of will is clearly apparent in human life. For instance, if someone wants to have children, there's usually, in this case, a combination of what is accomplished by nature and what is accomplished by an act of will. Someone cannot have children only by an act of will by simply using his brain. His decision to have children does not automatically produce them. There has to be a combination of volition and action. In this example, a person does not act solely on account of nature. His, his action is also thoughtfully based on his knowledge and analysis of his requirements, needs, and desires. And so he makes his decision. The ability to act in one way on account of nature and to act in another way by an act of will is a unique feature of created life informed by reason. Nevertheless, these categories cannot be applied to God. This is the Father's response. Hence the, phil the philosophical distinction between essence and energy in God, which is based on Aristotelian philosophical categories, does not make sense as far as God is concerned. It cannot be applied to God. The distinction that the Fathers do make between essence and energy stem from an experience of theosis. The underlying heresy at the root of all these heretical movements and philosophical trends is a betrayal of apophatic theology, which is a betrayal of the teaching that there is absolutely no similarity between the created and the uncreated realm. Hence, we cannot fit God within categories taken from Aristotelian philosophy or from anti-Aristotelian philosophy, which takes its place. When we use the term anti-Aristotelian philosophy, we mean that the philosophy 
that philosophy which is based on the distinction between God's essence and energy and which is derived from the experience of theosis but is converted into a philosophy by the heretics who turn this distinction into a philosophical syllogism. In the heretics' mind, hands, the patristic distinction from experience becomes an ontological distinction. But the patristic distinction does not have anything to do with ontology. You will realize this if you read Dionysius the Areopagite, who says that when you reach theosis, you realize that God is not unity, God is not trinity, God is not one, God is not even God. In other words, all the names and concepts that a person uses along the path towards theosis are, are all set aside during the experience of theosis because God is not identical with any of the names or concepts that man attributes to him. This knowledge is derived from the experience or glorification and theosis. St. Paul describes this very clearly when he writes, quote, whether, there are, whether there be prophecies, they shall fail. Whether there be tongues, they shall cease. Whether there be knowledge, it shall vanish away. From 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 8. This is what St. Dionysius the Areopagite is saying. So the fathers based their refutation of both Arianism and Nestorianism on apophatic theology. And I stress the fact that even Arianism was refuted on this basis because Arianism appears to be apophatic, although it is not apophatic in reality. After all, what does it mean when Arius says that even the Word does not know the essence of God? All right, the Word does not know the essence of God, but where did Arius learn that that what, what takes place by essence takes place by necessity in God? In other words, Arius betrays himself because where, where did Arius learn that God's essence is the necessary being. In scholastic theology they speak about the necessary being who is God according to them but this way of thinking is non-existent in patristic theology because given the fact that we do not know God's essence we cannot even attribute to God the category of the necessary being. This is why the fathers say that if created entities are beings then God is a non-being and that if God is being then created entities are non-beings. This means that there is no similarity between the created and the uncreated. This doctrine is the most basic doctrine of orthodox theology and results from the experience of theosis and not from philosophical reflection. Apophatic theology is not a philosophy. No, it is, it is synonymous with the experience of theosis and with that experience alone. The Holy Church Fathers set out to prove that the Word knows the Father's essence and has all the Father's energy. Behind this undertaking, there is a line of reasoning based on a certain general rules that both the Arians and the Orthodox followed. First of all, both camps agreed that God's essence is distinct from his energy. Both camps inherited this distinction between essence and energy from tradition. In other words, they, they both inherited the teaching that along, although creatures cannot participate in God's essence, certain created beings can participate in God's singular energy that can be differentiated into many separate energies. Yet these certain created beings cannot participate in all the forms of God's energy, but only in those forms of which God permits those created beings to partake. For example, all created beings participate in God's creative and providential energy, divine providence, but out, but out of all these created beings, only certain created beings participate in God's knowing or glorifying energy. Glorifying energy is the energy by, which of, by means of which man can behold God. In the patristic tradition, there are two kinds of theosis. The first kind of theosis is essential theosis, or theosis of God's essence. 
It involves possessing God's essence, and only the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit participate in this theosis because the Holy Trinity alone knows the essence of the Holy Trinity. The only part of creation to participate in this kind of theosis is the human nature of Christ, the God-man, Theanthropos. Hence, the essence of God is not only theosis, union, or vision for Christ as God the Word, but also for Christ as the God-man. In other words, Christ's human nature does not simply participate in the uncreated energies of God alone, but it also participates in God's essence by virtue of the hypostatic union. This theosis is the reason why the union in Christ of the two natures, divine and human, is a union by essence, by hypostasis, and by nature. You can find this terminology in the Church Fathers. On account of the hypostatic union between the Word and Christ's human nature, Christ knows the essence of the Holy Trinity and is a fount of God's glory or a source of the uncreated energies of the Father and the Holy Spirit. After all, each person in the Holy Trinity is also a natural source of uncreated energies since the three persons have the uncreated essence of the Father. Of course, the Word and the Spirit have the essence from the Father. Together with the essence, they also have the essential energy of the essence or the essential power of the essence from the Father. They do not participate in the essence of the Father by grace. They possess the essence of the Father because the Father gave them what he himself has. All things that the Father has, he gave both to the Word and to the Holy Spirit. Now the Father is, a, is in hypostasis and has unbegottenness as the mode of his existence, but he also has his essence as well as his essential energy of the essence. The Father is the cause of the Word's existence as a hypostasis, hypostasis, but he is not the cause of the existence of the Word's essence or of the Word's energy because the Father gave his own essence and essential energy to the Word. Hence the Word has the Father's essence and energy by nature. In other words, the Father's essence and energy are identical to the Word's essence and energy. Nevertheless, the Word has his existence, that is the existence of, of his hypostasis from the Father, but in a mode that is different from the way that he has the essence and energy. This is the reason why the Fathers distinguish the mode of existence for the hypostasis of the Word as well as for the Holy Spirit from the communion of essence and energy. The hypostasis of the Word is begotten of the Father, while the hypostasis of the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father. So the three persons of the Holy Trinity have a communion of essence and energy, but not a communion of hypostasis. This is why the Fathers say that there is a communion of the essence between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but not a communion of persons. The persons or the hypostasis are, are not communicable. This requires special attention because there are some books in circulation that speak about a communion of persons in the Holy Trinity or about a communion of hypostases. An attempt is made to construct a sociology for the Christian faith on the basis of this terminology, even though the Holy Trinity naturally does not bear any relation to human society. If we were to create a sociology that is related to the persons of the Holy Trinity, we would have to say that the Fathers teach an anti-sociology or an anti-sociability between persons, since they clearly say that the persons of the Holy Trinity are incommunicable. Footnote 205, some examples make this clear. With respect to the Holy Trinity, we can speak about a communion of love, a communion of humility, a communion of will, a communion in the creation and redemption of man, and so forth, because we can speak about a communion of essence and energy. 
To speak about a communion of persons means to speak of a communion and unbegottenness with begottenness, with procession, or a communion of fatherhood with sonship, with the quality of the Holy Spirit. This leads to a confusing reemergence of, of modalism or Sibelianism. End of translator's note. Returning to the text. Arius did not accept these distinctions because he understood communion as a partial communion in energy. However, this communion is not merely communion. It also means participation. In other words, the Son participates in the divinity of the Father, even as the Father is able to participate in the Son. A human being in a state of theosis is able to participate in the divinity of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but he does not become a fount of God's essence. Someone in a state of theosis can and, in fact, does become a source of divine grace, but not a source of grace by essence. He becomes a source of grace only by grace, energy, and God's good pleasure, but he can never become a source of God's grace by essence. Hence, what happens to the saints when they reach theosis is different from the case of Christ, because the theosis of the saints involves God's energy, while the theosis of Christ involves God's essence. However, this is a point that the heretics never quite grasped. During the Arian controversy, certain characteristic terms took shape that were used by the fathers of that time and that have continued to be used by all the church fathers following the First Ecumenical Council. Before this council, the fathers' terminology for these topics lacked a certain clarity. After the First Ecumenical Councils, the terms were partially, though not completely, clarified. The final clarification in terminology took place during the Second Ecumenical Council when the distinction between essence and hypostases was introduced. Before this council, the Cappadocian church fathers, Basil the Great, Gregory of Nyssa, and others, were the only fathers who unequivocally supported this distinction between essence and hypostases. Meanwhile, the rest of the church fathers continued to use terms of lesser clarity on this question. Many conservative Orthodox fathers did not like the term homoousios, and please forgive me on the the pronunciations to follow. I simply don't know how they're pronounced. Many conservative Orthodox fathers did not like the term homoousios, meaning of the same essence, consubstantialis, and were opposed to its use because they thought they were a danger of misinterpreting it to mean totusios, or identity which would mean that the Father is identical to the Son. After all, at the time of Paul of Samosata's condemnation, homoousios meant tatu, tatusios. After, but after the meaning of essence, usia was distinguished from that of hypostasis. The danger of homoousios signifying tatu Tatusios, that is, of the same essence, signifying identity, disappeared. From that point on, homoousios was used to mean that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have the self-same essence. In other words, they have the same essence, but not the self-same hypostases. There is an identity of essence and energy, but not an identity of hypostases, because the Father is a hypostasis, the Son is a hypostasis, and the Holy Spirit is is a hypostasis. The three persons have a common essence and essential energy. Hence, 
homoousios does not refer to the hypostases, but to the fact that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have a common essence. In this way, the issues were clarified, and the conservative church fathers agreed to the term homoousios because they accepted the distinction between essence and hypostases. Apparently, the fathers used all these arguments to win a significant victory over the Arians. But, but later, another group of Arians cropped up who had marked off their line of thought from the rest of the Arians. Their leaders were Etios and Eunomius, who used what appears to have been Aristotelian arguments against the teachings of the church. Although Basil the Great has written against Eunomios and Gregory the Theologian has attacked Eunomios in his writings, the best work against Eunomios was written by Gregory of Nyssa. Eunomios marked off his position from the positions of Arius on certain crucial points. In contrast, in contrast with the teachings of Arius, Eunomius identified God's uncreated essence with his uncreated energy and separated God's created energies from his uncreated essence. While Arius made a distinction between the uncreated essence and the uncreated energy, Eunomios made the uncreated essence identical to the uncreated energy, but distinct from the many created energies. Eunomius maintained that each energy must be in proportion to its effect. In other words, although God is all-powerful, he does not use all of his power. Instead, God creates energies that are inferior to his power and in proportion to their effects. The energy that brought the word into existence is the highest of all existing created energies. In this way, all created beings can be arranged in a relative order descending towards qualitatively inferior energies. In any event, according to Eunomius, the word and the Holy Spirit are not included among the forms, although all created beings are forms and each form has its own energy. Gregory of Nyssa accused Eunomius of having a holy pentity with five entities instead of a holy trinity because Eunomius inserted two created energies, one before the word and another before the Holy Spirit. But in this way, the real father of the word is not the first essence, but a created energy. Likewise, the Holy Spirit does not come directly from the Son, but is the work of the Son's created energy. Hence, first we have God and then the Father energy. Next, there is the Word, and then there is the Son energy. After all of this, we come to the Holy Spirit, and finally, all the other energies of the forms. In other words, Eunomius took relevant passages from the Fathers and corrupted them. While the Fathers said that God's essential energy is divided indivisibly, indivisibly among many, Eunomius said that God's one essence has many created energies. In terms of Aristotelian philosophy, Eunomius' identification of God's uncreated essence with his uncreated energy means that God has virtually no direct connection with the world. Instead, God's relationship with the world unfolds with the help of his created energies. Now, this established a new situation. For his part, Eunomius says that Arius and the Arians are mistaken when they assert that God's essence is unknown. Eunomius maintains that God's essence is known and moreover comprehensible. Although Eunomius himself maintained that the Word knows God's essence, the Fathers added that Eunomius said that the Word comprehended the essence. In fact, the Fathers added that Eunomius claimed that the Word is not alone in being able to comprehend God's essence, but even human beings could comprehend it. Eunomius said this because he taught that God himself revealed the names for his essence. The primary name for his essence is unbegotten, 
but he claims that unoriginate and unending are also names for God's essence, and that all these names have been revealed to man by God himself. After this exchange, Gregory of Nyssa takes over and says to Eunomius, Where did you find the word unbegotten, since this name cannot be found anywhere in the Bible? But according to Eunomius, the word Father is a name for God's energy, not for God's essence. Nevertheless, the fathers accused Eunomius of also identifying the word Father with God's essence, even though Eunomius himself claims that he identifies it with God's energy. Precisely what happened remains unknown. In any event, according to Eunomius, God has many energies. God did not fashion the word by essence through his uncreated energy, because Eunomius does not allow for the Father to be related to the Son by essence. So what does Eunomius do? He inserts a created energy in between God's uncreated essence and the word's nature. So God uses a created energy which follows directly after God, the Father's uncreated essence, in order to fashion the word. Next, Eunomius also inserts another created energy that fashions the Holy Spirit. These energies are simple energies. One energy is for the Word and another energy for the Holy Spirit. According to Eunomius, this structure is responsible for the existence of one Word and of one Holy Spirit. Now, with respect to created beings, why did Eunomius teach that the Holy Spirit has many energies? He taught this because of the many forms whose existence would be inexplicable if it were not for a created energy behind each form. Just as one energy brought the Word into existence, and in like manner one Holy Spirit exists because one energy brought Him into existence, it follows the, that this Holy Spirit has many energies for the world because if the Holy Spirit only had one energy for the world, then there would be only one form in the world. Here we can see what happened when philosophy took over the patristic teaching about the Holy Spirit's one simple energy that is div divided indivisibly among many. Patristic teaching is distorted by philosophy and becomes pathetic. It is naturally impossible to study Eunomius unless you are very familiar with Gregory of Nyssa, because in the dispute between Eunomius and Basil the Great, certain aspects of the dispute were not resolved. Only in Basil's second work were these points resolved, but this work was lost. Fortunately, the core of this work can be found in St. Gregory of Nyssa's response to Eunomius. The end, and to God be glory. This book, Patristic Theology, the University Lectures of Father John Romanides, translated by Hiram Monk Alexius Trader, edited by Father Peter Alban Hears, Father George Dokos and Gregory Edwards, paginated and designed by the graphic artists at the Palimp Siston and printed by the Himp Yimp Hing Yip Printing Company Limited Hong Kong in February of the year of our Lord 2008 is one of the many fine titles available from Uncut Mountain Press, translators and publishers of Orthodox Christian theological and spiritual literature. Find the book you're looking for at www.uncutmountain.com and make your purchase at www.uncutmountainsupply.com.